Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Thank you for your patience. Let us go back right into our hearts and begin our opening prayer. So taking this time to commune with your divine self in your heart center, we call forth for the full emergence of your soul, higher self, monad, and mighty I am presence. Feel the integration of your I am presence as we also call in all of our multidimensional beings through to our God presence. Goddess presence, every aspect of our Holy Spirit. See yourself in your pillar of light. It is always there around you. Bring your focus and attention to this mighty pillar of light that is fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. And feel all of the love and support that you are receiving each and every moment in each direction. This is the bridge between heaven and earth. And we are the ones anchoring heaven here today. We invite in everyone across the planet to join us through the following prayer. Please say with me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so we see everyone else in their pillar of light as well. Filled with the white light of God, the light of source, the Christ light, filling us, surrounding us, anchoring into the earth as we are indeed the open door that no one can shut. We invite in for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive all that we receive. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We invite in at this time all of the spiritual lineage, our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. And we welcome as well for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing team, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame. All of our councils, the mission council, our mission council, our ascension council. All the beings that work with us multidimensionally. And we welcome the assistance of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, 
the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the fairy kingdom, the elemental kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome as well all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. We welcome all of the angelic healers and healing teams. As we ask for the highest of healing here today, on every level of beingness, for ourselves, for the planet, and for all upon her. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially the healing teams that we work so closely with, those from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra as well. We welcome all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service, calling for the assistance of the entire company of heaven, and asking our Mother, Father, God to overline all that we do, and magnify, magnify, magnify this work of bringing heaven to earth, 999 billion times 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all the universal laws, all the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of auric field, multidimensionally, through each person's conscious, subconscious, and superconscious mind, the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection, and to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We welcome everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every person, every situation, every condition of life that we have ever placed in it, as we hold the patterns of perfection for heaven on earth to be fully manifest here and now in this divine moment ever after. 
And we ask that anything that is unlike love be perfectly balanced and corrected, restored and renewed in your loving presence. And so we call in all of the energies of of what people are focused on, be it the weather, it's beautiful here, um, Memorial Day weekend, and those that they've lost, be it uh, government here or anywhere else, or any events, or uh, galactic and uh, uh, astrological influences. We call in all of the energies that are affecting us and all of the things that people are focused on into our collective cup of consciousness because we really want to use that energy of everyone's focus and attention into bringing heaven to earth. So we ask to utilize that through the collective cup of consciousness to bring heaven. And we invite Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field, multidimensionally through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal, every vortex, every monument, every sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this spiral of evolution with Gaia, as she takes the rightful place as freedom star. We're working with the white light, but we are also working with, we call in the cosmic Christ fiery blue lightning of purity and victory. Archangel Michael and the legions of light come in now. Beloved Archangel Michael, beloved mighty I am that I am, I offer my love through thee to beloved Archangel Michael. Beloved Michael, come now to each of us. Blaze your great heart flame of your mighty cosmic Christ, fiery blue lightning and purity and victory through each and every one of us. Let us feel your presence, Archangel Michael, now. Let us feel your love and pour, 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 and pour some more of your cosmic blue flame. Whirl them around us like a mighty force of sacred fire blazing around us, expanding those cosmic blue flames until everything that is attached itself to us is cut away. That which we no longer have any use for is now cut away, cutting away to free us to embody more of our great God, Goddess Divinity. And take that forth and express it to all life. Archangel Mikael, descend with your legions now into the earth's atmosphere to all humankind. And pour, 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 and pour some more thy mighty cosmic blue flames. Strike, strike, strike those cosmic blue flames into the atmosphere around planet Earth in through and around us now to purify, purify, purify us 
get this done now. Make us all blazing like the sun. Fire us awake and set us free. Make us all like cosmic purity, beauty, power, liberty, and freedom for eternity. I thank you, I love you, and I bless you for eternity, beloved Archangel Michael. Cosmic blue flames, lightning, purity, and victory, I am. Cosmic blue flames, lightning, purity, and victory, I am. Cosmic blue flames, lightning, purity, and victory, I am. Quickly, permanently, and perfectly, eternally sustained. Beloved, I am. Take care of that now. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. Okay, as we say the following. I thought for Memorial Day it would be good to do the decrees to prevent and end all war on the planet. I am the resurrection and the life of peace everywhere throughout the world, eternally sustained. I am the resurrection and the life of peace everywhere on earth, eternally sustained. I am the resurrection, the life of peace, everywhere on earth, eternally sustained. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Beloved, mighty, I am Christ's presence within and above. Great ascended and angelic host of light. Stop all disruptions to the world's power supply, food and water supply, transportation, all communication systems, the internet, computers, all science and technology, and prevent, prevent, prevent all destructive plans by the master power flame of cosmic prevention. Prevent, prevent, prevent all destructive plans by the master power flame of cosmic prevention. Prevent, prevent, prevent all destructive plans by the master power flame of cosmic prevention. Beloved mighty Christ I am, in all ascended masters who govern and control the powers of nature and forces of the elements, reveal and draw into outer manifestation through the people of earth new power sources that nurture, bless, and raise the planet and all life into the Ascended Master's octave of light. With the purity, ease, grace, and harmony of the cosmic law of the great central sun's heart flame. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. Almighty Rose Christ, I am. As we call forth for the energy of peace, we call forth the beautiful golden ray, the 10th solar aspect of deity, the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance. See it intrude around you in the planet as we say, 
Beloved, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved God and Goddess of Peace, Mighty Elohim Peace, and Legions of Angels of the Peace Commanding Flame of Divine Love, descend into the atmosphere of Earth and project your mighty gold and emerald green flames of invincible peace, the peace commanding presence of all energy, substance, and vibration everywhere we abide every moment of every day. Hold in through and around us our loved ones and all on the planet. Thy peace commanding presence of divine love that forever compels and maintains eternal peace. Then expand the cosmic feeling of invincible peace blazing through us into the mental and feeling world of all the people of Earth especially those that are caught up in any war or violence of any kind, and prove the power of the flame of peace and its authority to silence and remove all discord forever. Draw forth into outer physical manifestation the perfection of the seventh golden age everywhere forever. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. To all presidents, prime ministers, and leaders of all nations and their cabinets, congresses, parliaments, and advisors, and judicial aspects as well, we say, the light of the Christ and love of the Mother's presence compels you to do the right thing for your country and for the world. And so it is. I call forth to Archangel Michael once again and his angels of cosmic flames of immortal love, immortal power, and cosmic life substance. I welcome the descent of Archangel Michael and his angels of the cosmic flames descending into our midst once again across the planet. And I call upon precious Archangel Michael and his angels to create a wall of cosmic flames around me All who seek the light, face the light, and around my loved ones, and all leaders of all nations, and cut everyone free of any discordant lines of force. Build a permanent wall of cosmic blue flames and their cosmic light substance around me, around us all, which becomes a mighty pillar rising up 12 feet high permanently sustained so that we will be disconnected from the discordant energies of the world and all are free to express the great God presence within and its great God dominion over all human appearances in the outer world. So be it and so it is. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Mighty, I am Christ's presence within and above. I am Christ's presence of all the people of earth. Beloved Director Logos, beloved Jesus Sananda, Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, St. Germain, great cosmic owners of this planet, release infinite oceans of cosmic miracle manifestations into the structure of the earth, into the atmosphere of earth, into the powers of nature and the forces of the elements, 
release infinite oceans of cosmic miracle manifestations to enter into the minds, bodies, and feelings of the people and into all other kingdoms that share life on this earth that ends people's selfish ways and their greed, that ends wars, that rolls back and silences the sinister force, that all will silence the ability of leaders to use power destructively, that brings an end to all war, all poverty, all discord, that brings an end to all violence and abuse, and that delivers greater peace into the minds and hearts of all the people. It creates a continuous cleansing and purifying activity so the building of this permanent golden age may unfold more quickly. And we give thanks for this as we say, Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Beloved mighty Christ, I am within and above. Beloved Christ, I am of all the people of earth. Beloved Mother Akasha, beloved Christ, St. Germain, Archangel Michael, and your incarnable legions of angels of the sacred fire. Great silent watchers, I call upon the cosmic law of God's sacred fire power and all Christ's authority to charge into all the decrees, will, energy, meditations, constructive intentions, and visualizations that we have ever done that were given by any students in St. Germain's, Mother Akasha's, and the Christ Dispensations, and all constructive people throughout the world, purified, resurrected, and amplified 999 times by 999 billion times by the master power heart flames of all the entire angelic and ascended hosts to save America and this planet, including all the kingdoms of life eternally sustained. I am so grateful for your divine intervention and assistance. I send you my love, praise, and gratitude. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so today we're also celebrating the goddess of harmony from the seven sacred weeks. And of course, all of my prayers have disappeared. So we're going to call in the goddess of harmony to bless us, to truly bring peace and harmony within ourselves, within our minds, our souls, our bodies our feelings, our emotional bodies, and transfer that to every man, woman, and child, as well as all of our relationships, all of our family relationships, all of our personal relationships, all of our most intimate relationships, all relationships among all neighbors and communities, all cities, all states, all nations, amongst all world leaders. 
that peace and harmony prevail from this moment forward throughout all life. For we know that love and peace and harmony is so much stronger than anything that is less than that. We ask the goddess of harmony to activate her flame of harmony within every man, woman, and child. And that an angel of harmony be placed in each person's auric field. From this moment forward, to expand the energy of harmony within and without each person and amongst all people across the planet and all nations as well. We also invoke that golden flame and golden ray of eternal peace and infinite prosperity to be activated as well. For they do go hand in hand. And we call this forth for every man, woman, and child that everyone be provided with all that they need in each divine moment from this point forward. And we call forth the blessings of the Holy Spirit that we will be working with tomorrow, celebrating, perhaps in some parts of the world, they're celebrating it already, the Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We ask the Holy Spirit to be activated in every man, woman, and child, again, bringing peace, bringing comfort, bringing wisdom, bringing discernment bringing all the gifts and qualities that the Holy Spirit can fill and provide us with. And we ask for this to be sealed, sealed by our Mother, Father, God, to be eternally sustained and maintained, ever expanding to perfection. And we give thanks for being able to serve at this time as is vehicle for heaven on earth. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so, as we conclude here, and we see the perfection in all life, we see everyone recognizing themselves as a divine being, everyone working in harmony, in cooperation, in peace, in love and joy, in divine justice, including all governments and all governmental leaders. Everyone's working for the highest and best of all concerns. No longer relying on selfish concerns, but being in that unity consciousness that fills us with such peace such harmony, such love, and just fills all life with all of these divine qualities. Again, it's being sealed, and we seal it in through and around our divine governments and every aspect of divine government, as we say, victory is ours and love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. 
So thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for your divine service. If you're here in the U.S., we wish you a very um, joyful and and, um, safe and harmonious and peaceful Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be beautiful here in Michigan, so I hope it's beautiful where you are as well. And I wish you each a beautiful, beautiful day and weekend. And I ask you to join us for further divine service on Sunday and Monday. We will be there for Memorial Day Monday. We do a lot of divine government work over that holiday. It's one of the one of the holidays that we focus on government. And so we will be working. Uh, also, we're in the middle of our seven sacred weeks, the 49 days of outpouring of light. So uh, we're working with very beautiful ascended masters. Again, we'll be coming back to harmony. I'm working with Master Kachumi this week. So please join us. The Sunday and Monday night calls start at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Pacific Time, yeah, specifically at 5.45. And uh, we have about 25 minutes of greeting that our beloved Rainbird has been assisting with so uh, diligently and faithfully. And then we have an update from Taran Rama. And then at 9.30, we do our work of bringing heaven to earth, the anchoring of heaven. That's what we're here for, all of us. And meditation and our activations start at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific time. This is all by teleconference calls, so the phone number that we recommend using is era code 4802 uh, okay 4806602224 4806602224 Sunday and Monday, and if you need another way to get on the line, I have local call numbers. You can dial a number that's close to you. You can uh, get on uh, through free conference on the Internet and also their app. So I welcome you in joining us and doing this light work every Sunday and Monday, and I thank you, thank you, thank you for your service here today. We want to thank Tara and Rama for their continuous service and thank Rainbow for her service as well. As I pass this amazing talking stick to you, Rainbird, it has the white, it has the gold, it has the cosmic blue, it has the violet flame, it has the magenta of harmony. And infinite frequencies of uh, all the elementals and the fairies and the angels and the gemstones and um, the unicorn energy and the and the dragons and, and just everything imaginable. So we have a lot, a lot of support at this sacred moment 
And I pass the talking stick to you, my dear. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful weekend, everybody. Stay safe. I got that talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> We're grateful and you for your sound amazing. Thank you, honey. Oh, good. <laughs> And you did too, so we're doing good. And lots of gratitude for your divine service. And let's do some housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's each of, each of us that makes it happen. As we come together each week to pay our fees with BBS Radio for their, this broadcast. Um, <clears throat> this week, we need $25 to finish Two weeks ago, or maybe just last week, yeah, the finish last week. And that $25, it'd be nice to get that sent in tomorrow. And then what we need for this week is $289.50. And here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio. Go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com, and you will see the schedule on the home page for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. This program's on Radio Station 2, and you'll find it listed at 3.30 hour on Saturday. The True History, History, and Affair on Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rala. And that 3.30 hour is Central Time, so configure it from that. <laughs> um, 4.30 Eastern. Anyway, um, yeah, as you click on that, then you'll be taken directly to our account with BBS Radio. And our other two programs on Thursday and Friday are on BBS Radio Station 1, and you'll see them listed at the 8 o'clock hour Central Time. That's 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific. So as you click on those icons there, on Thursday is the Night at the Round Table with the panel. And on Friday, it's the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon, that takes you directly to our account. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We're grateful to be caught up, to get caught up with BBS Radio. And, um, yeah, we're doing good. So lots of gratitude for showing up that way. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this is the end of the month, and we usually have a lot of bills due at this time. And so this week it's $460 in bills that need to be paid. Um, one of them is not due till the 4th, but that's basically the same week, right? <laughs> it's a week from today or tomorrow. So uh, $460 will cover that. And... Uh, and then I'm assuming the um, car bill is still outstanding, though we didn't talk about it. So that was $1,000. So we're looking for generosity. And I think there was a GoFundMe program started for that, but I'm not sure. We didn't talk about that either. Anyway, Tara and Rama need $200 for their own living expenses each week. And so it would be grateful to have that come in as well. So... Lots of gratitude for your generosity. Here's how I make a um, a donation to Rama and Tara. You want to go to the web address, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on that menu grid, it'll drop down a menu, and the donate link is near the bottom of that list, like second to the last. 
click on that, then it'll take you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable account with PayPal, and you can make your donation there in any amount. And if you want to reach the Friends option, you'll see a little red heart there uh, as you scroll down the, the payment options. There'll be a heart, and that's the Friends option. Click on that, and you'll want to be prompted to enter Rama's email address there. So it is as follows, Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that gives you the friends option. So either way is perfect. We're so grateful for your contributions. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as we're sending something, let's just uh, send Rama an email and let him know what you sent and when you sent it, that email address for Rama. Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And <clears throat> that takes care of that so that he knows. And if you need it, the mailing address is Ron D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280 and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. And I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. So much gratitude for all the ways that you show up in your lives, and thank you for showing up in this way. We're grateful, grateful, grateful for that gift. Um. And also, we are uh, working with the NFT Rewards Program, and that address is nftrewards.biz, I mean, yeah, .biz, B-I-Z, B-I-Z, N-F as in Frank, all right, N as in Nancy, F as in Frank, T as in Tom, rewards.biz forward slash register, R-E-G-I-S-T-E-R, register, forward slash, and then um, the username with Tara and Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999. And I'll say it again, nftrewards.biz, forward slash, register, forward slash, Koran, 999. And that gets you, that's where you can go to sign up and you're on a journey from there. It takes a little bit of work and concentration to get things set up for your wallet and for uh, how it works. But that wallet is so that it will save money on a hopefully daily basis. <laughs> we can get to that point, you know, as time will show us. And it's set up in a very friendly way. It's also very new. So some Times there are snags, and as new programs are getting smoothed out and worked on, the software that's needed for such a massive, amazing thing. But there you go, check it out. And with that, I'm passing this talking stick, and it, it is oh, it's full of wreaths for Memorial Day. I get it, yes. We like wreaths on Memorial Day. They call it Decoration Day in these parts where I'm from in North Carolina. And they go to the cemeteries and decorate and celebrate the veterans and all that. So let's do that 
with these stocking stick with grease all over it and then all the good things that Cheryl sent it with, with all the rays and the rainbow rays and all the um, gems and healing stones and, and all the healing herbs and a whole bunch of little people, um, fairies and feathers of all the birds and unicorns and dragons and the magical ones. And also the little people, the Menahunis and the, the blue folk. And the hobbits and the dwarves and everybody else that's little. And corset parts is coming along too. <laughs> Greetings, Taradrama. Here comes this talking stick. And I want to say 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life. <laughs> And uh, no evil. So greetings. Here it is. Greetings. <laughs> Everyone. Um, I'm going to pass the talking sticks to Lord Rama because he's got something to share and I don't. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> not really a lot. Well, I just got, you know, like a short, short text from Tom and Sweet Angelique. And they said that the solar flares are doing their thing. And it's raising the hair on everything. And I sat with a horse today down by one of the farms on the way to Albuquerque and the horse told me to stay in the oneness that I mean it, it is what is being said stay in the oneness leave the other stuff alone and that's an order and it is about what's unfolding here there were ham radio blackouts and other kinds of blackouts today and uh, I've been watching the dimensions physically merge and change in front of my eyes and people go about their business and I watch folks go through the different dimensions and pathways and it reminds me a lot of what I see in the sci-fi movies as portals open and people go 40 light years across the galaxy and uh, you don't need a ship I don't know what to say it's about how we focus our thoughts and who we interact with that is of loving presence in the office of the Christ. All kinds of beings are here, as Angel Sue always says, known and unknown. And it is, they serve under the banner of peace and love. It's a big deal because they're playing out right now. Tom and Sweet Angelique also said Russia, the United States, 
Russia, quote unquote, the deep state. It's all about the deep state, the black budget that Dr. Greer talks about unacknowledged, where senators, Congress creatures, congressmen, congresswomen, um, get approached by the men in black. Not to change the subject, but I watched this one episode last week of the X-Files, and it was like from the early 2000s, and Scully was approached by the men in black, and she was offered $4 billion to turn on Mulder. And she said, I'm not going to take the money. What I'm going to do is turn you over. And she went ahead and started doing that, and um, let's say folks ended up dead. And when you cross them, they do that kind of stuff. Yet she exposed these folks that were offering her the money, and let's say they got disappeared off the planet. And it was by another group of ETs who were working with the good guys, quote-unquote, and not the men in black. I mean, it's an episode of the X-Files I never saw. (laughs) But I'm saying, this is how the black budget craves. And right now, we're watching Ron DeSantis make a fool of himself with Elon Musk. It is very ugly. Yeah, he announced his um, running on Twitter. And there's double negative dark energy on Twitter since Elon Musk bought it. Yeah. It, it, so so <laughs> Elon Musk and uh, Ron DeSantis paired up with more dark energy. Yeah. So you send more love to we that situation and we blaze That's why the horse still me today. Stay in the one is. The horse. I asked Rama, you're sitting, you're hanging out with the horse in the corral? And he says, yeah. So what does the horse have to say? And he said, stay in the one <laughs> I mean, he just licked me, uh, you know, <laughs> and stay in the oneness. I don't know what else to say because... I mean, it's the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and still we got weapons of war on the street. And if you think they're going to kill Thanos, you got another thing coming. Like I say, they're playing with the Marvel character storylines, and, you know, even a nuke isn't going to take Thanos out. It's that insane. What they're playing with, the thing they're not talking about is there are so many galactic forces here, you know, as they tell me, Captain Ashtar has this one, how we pass our test is not to get angry and go buy some ammo and start doing what the other side is doing, send more love, I pass the talking stick. Okay, I just want to make one more uh, strong thank you for all the assistance. Yes, thank you. We made a commitment to all of us somewhere inside to come in at this particular time and era. And the situation is 
that um, a free society with a democratic principle is on the table and at stake. And what the threat is, is um, uh, mass corruption with the intention of being able to dominate in an autocracy versus a democracy where fascistic ideas from the time of Hitler can uh, flourish uh, unimpeded. And uh, that's a very, very dangerous place to be. It is. And this is why the seriousness of it, where supposedly the fake Putin or whatever Putin they got up there is placing tactical nukes on the Belarus-Ukraine border. And this is not a joke. This is real stuff. They're already there? I'm assuming they're already there. Oh, you don't know. Uh, it's been the talk for the last three days out there. Yeah, but they didn't say they were there. They're saying they were thinking of doing Yeah, and I can't determine whether they are or they aren't. And, uh, well, you can talk to your faction, Three White Knights, and they know the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Blades of violent fire. There's a sense of urgency in the air for sure. Yeah. And yet the uh, we're in the aura of the flash, uh, and I believe that's called galactic intervention in that form. And uh, walking that higher path uh, where safety and honoring of the lives of all beings is present. Uh, the other path, the downward spiral path, has no respect for certain life forms. You know, they are determined by a lower egoic um, personality uh, are many who wish to just forget about love and um, power, greed, and control is what they prefer, which doesn't really get you where you want to go. And anger comes behind that and vengeance and revenge of the Sith and blah, 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 blah. Rama, did you ever uh, get a hint that the guns might stop working sometime soon around here? I can just say that um, something awesome is unfolding here, which is... Change of heart, right? The... the, uh, Star system Beetlejuice or Beetle Geist is getting ready to go supernova and that's in our local constellations. That's a huge deal that this star is about to go supernova. And there's another star that actually went supernova earlier in April and the light 
from that galaxy is only coming to the Earth now, yet all of these things are in conjunction with the solar flash as the mechanics of this local galaxy are lifting things so much higher. I wish I had the words. I need to speak to Doctor Who. <laughs> I passed the talking stick. Well, why don't we why don't we pass the talking stick to Doctor Greer? Yes. Tell everybody what this is about. This is Dr. Greer's call to action to join the Disclosure Project legal team for UFO Disclosure. And I have been watching people since George Van Tassel at Giant Rock giving his lectures. And so many people have went over the rainbow for telling the truth and um, raised a violet fire. Okay. How long is this drama? Hour and five minutes. Okay, let's, let's hear what... I heard from a friend, I didn't watch it or listen, that it's really, really informative. Here we go. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and welcome to our YouTube channel. It's a very special event uh, regarding uh, plans that the Disclosure Project uh, is making. Uh, that I think you will be very interested in hearing. I'm very privileged to have on with us uh, an attorney, Derek Garcia. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Dr. Greer. It's very good to be here. And, you know, uh, Derek was a young student when he got involved with what we were doing uh, with the Disclosure Project back in 2000, 2001. I think you were at Wesleyan, if I remember correctly. And uh, he since has become an attorney doing... uh, public interest law generally, I believe, and has helped us with some matters over the years. And he's just a wonderful person. And he is heading up an effort that uh, is history making in many ways. Um, I first want to just introduce the idea uh, of, of why we're, we're going to do this in a moment. But first, Derek, if you could just tell everyone you know, your background and how you got involved and, and just a little bit about yourself. Great. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, my name is Derek Garcia. I'm a um, civil rights attorney from uh, New Mexico. I've been in practice approximately 13 years, uh, both in state and federal courts. Um, admitted to practice in uh, both the federal district of New Mexico as well as the United States Courts of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit and the United States Supreme Court. And I've done a variety of uh, plaintiffs' uh, civil rights cases surrounding constitutional law. Uh, search and seizure cases uh, brought under the Fourth Amendment, in addition to a variety of uh, criminal defense, environmental law, and uh, intellectual property law as well uh, as related to this subject. And it's great to be here, and I look forward to uh, speaking about our upcoming uh, legal efforts. Right. So the big announcement here, as you see from the headline on this YouTube uh, breaking news is that uh, for some time, since the late 1990s, I've spoken with constitutional attorneys. Uh, since before uh, Mr. Garcia was actually a, an attorney, about the civilian application of the RICO statute. So RAC, RICO stands for Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization. And uh, it was put in place some decades ago uh, as a way to pursue, or obviously, 
racketeering, uh, corrupt organization, referring to uh, criminal organizations, crime families, and things of this sort. But in a sense, all criminal conspiracies uh, of that fall under certain categories. Uh, and uh, it was mentioned to me back in the 1990s that, in fact, in the late 1990s, that the criminal conduct of the organizations who are running covert programs related to UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence and their associated technologies would fall under this statute. And that at some point, a civilian group could organize and then initiate uh, without the federal government doing so initially, a civilian RICO action meaning that we, the Disclosure Project, and all of us would begin a process to prosecute, in a sense, or, or sue in a civilian uh, application that's allowed by law of the RICO statute, the major corporations and the government agencies that have illegally run projects since the late 1950s, and uh, that then this would open the door for us to be able to uh, involve uh, under oath testimony, depositions, subpoenas, and uh, to enter into sites uh, that have been run illegally. The key point here is that we would have to prove, which we can do now through testimony and information we have, that both corporate and agencies within the U.S. government have run these projects without the oversight of the president and approval or the Congress, which is required by law. And therefore, they are criminal activities and organizations and that they run the gamut from murder, kidnapping, drug running, embezzlement of federal funds, um, and a host of other major felonies. So uh, we have known this for a very long time. And in conversations recently with with uh, Mr. Garcia, we've concluded that we need to begin that process. And so we are announcing uh, and making a call for attorneys as well as other supporters to assist um, us in this effort. So, uh, Derek, if you want to just go a little more into, since you're a lawyer, you certainly know the statutes better than I do. I wanted to get people sort of the big picture of, of what we're doing and the foundation for it, the foundation of it again is that we can prove in a federal court that these programs have been run illegally and unconstitutionally and have engaged in criminal behavior. I should add, in the last two months, I have had multiple top-secret whistleblowers who have had witness tampering, intimidation, threats that have been uh, pushed their way. So this is another crime. To add to the other list, there's a very long list of criminal activity, which we would uh, claim and actually could prove in a court of law. Neurologists are stunned. They've confirmed that ear ringing is shrinking your brain cells. Tinnitus is now known as precursor dementia, according to the Mayo Clinic, where doctors have made a shocking discovery that changes everything we know about ear buzzing and how it relates to mental decline. So if you or a loved one are plagued with the invisible agony of ear. That's precisely right. Uh, from everything that I've seen from your work over the years, uh, is that we have more than enough, um, evidence at this point. And it's proven in a court of law that this 
a legal enterprise, this corrupt organization exists and has existed for a number of decades. And not only that has been involved in what the law defines as racketeering activity, a long list of enumerated crimes, um, which uh, we are empowered through the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organization Act of 1970 to essentially enforce civilly uh, through the federal court system, through uh, force of civil law. Uh, the uh, initial intention, you know, the law was created in 1970 to prevent um, union busting and sort of organized crime activity from taking over, um, you know, democratic practices and electing, you know, union representatives and that sort of thing. Uh, but in this context, in the biggest story of human history, which the Disclosure Project represents, I think it can be used effectively to essentially um, civilly prosecute uh, a number of uh, enumerated crimes, um, which can um, we can prove in a court of law that uh, this racketeering influenced corrupt organization has participated in for a number of years. Um, the only standing requirement that I can see from the law and uh, my familiarity in practice in this area is that a citizen must bring a civil action under the RICO Act if the organization or the individual um, has been uh, harmed in some way by the corrupt and criminal organization's illegal activities. And from everything uh, that I know from your work over the past 30 years in this area, uh, we certainly meet that definition. And so this is a call for a national uh, call to action and invitation to begin the process of dis- of assembling a multi-jurisdictional legal team in which we will uh, bring uh, attorneys together of all sorts of different experience areas, uh, practice areas, in order to pursue uh, these claims in in federal court across uh, various jurisdictions, as well as to gain access to some of the unacknowledged special access projects uh, that we are familiar with. And to, uh, and to, uh, act on the actionable intelligence, um, that you have already provided the members of Congress, um, for decades now. Uh, so right. it's a very exciting time and we're doing this call out for, um, anyone with experience in constitutional law, national security, foreign relations, space law and policy, intelligence, uh, security clearances, related legal matters. Uh, any sort of uh, whistleblower protection act uh, um, statutes and enforcement of that area of law, uh, RICO actions, including, you know, the civilian uh, enforcement of the criminal code, um, legislative law and policies surrounding the National Defense Authorization Act uh, of 2023 um, includes the uh, current Pentagon efforts uh, to study the UAP phenomena, although, uh, as we know, for anyone that's been following the Disclosure Project, as I have since at least May 2001, uh, this uh, testimony has already been substantially developed, um, you know, going back. Right. And I want to add that what has been added to our, uh, let's call it, a group of whistleblowers, which initially numbered when I was doing things, providing information to the Clinton administration and the director of the CIA was numbered only maybe a handful or a dozen. And by 1995, it was a couple dozen at the at Selimar Retreat Center that we organized in 95 with a number of, of whistleblowers from different walks of life 
Um, that was a private gathering. And by the time we did the National Press Club event in 2001, we had several hundred. Now I have a list of pushing a thousand names of people that I have uh, information on or who I have debriefed. Um, many of them want to come forward. Uh, some would be what I call uncooperating or hostile witnesses. But if they get a subpoena, they have to comply with the subpoena. And, uh, you know, it's not like they would have a choice. And some of the people on that list would be the who's who in the corporate and higher reaches of this hybrid military industrial entity that Eisenhower talked about that I know for a fact have been involved. Let me, let me give you an example. The, the, the offending party is dead, but not the person who was the victim. Uh, back in the day when we were getting all this material, and this is a bombshell that you will see at the National Press Club event at the conference on June 10th and 12th in Washington. A man uh, who is a, a renowned Hollywood figure, who I will not name right now, uh, was with the uh, then assumed ex-president, uh, Bill Clinton, and another major celebrity at uh, in, a, in a limousine. And uh, he asked about this issue. And the president, President Clinton, said, and we have his written statement now, it came in on yesterday, that the president said, well, I was told just a little bit of information. And but um, the former director of the CIA and former president George H.W. Bush approached him and said, this is none of your business. You're just the president. And you are not to look into this any further. Uh, This is what your dishwasher looks like after one year. It's a colony of billions of mold and bacteria living deep inside your dishwasher that not only make your dishes cloudy. uh, You know, and now (laughs) that is headline news, what I just said. Now, we have two witnesses to this that can be subpoenaed. One, the Hollywood figure. Another the celebrity star that he was working with. Now, why is that important? Because I knew at the time, and I was told explicitly, that the president wanted to pursue this, but that he was, in fact, waved off. And I eventually heard that he was not only waved off, but then induced through, let's call it briberies and what have you, to not further look into and pursue this matter. Now, this kind of corruption at the highest levels of the presidency, which has happened multiple times, I might point out, and other political figures, is also a crime. Uh, and you cannot turn to the president of the United States or a, a, a person fully vested on an oversight committee of the Congress and tell them you have no business to look into something that the taxpayers of the United States are paying for and which is something of great import to the national security. I also want to point out that when you start looking at who all these top-secret whistleblower witnesses are uh, that are uh, in our list, these are being turned over to the key investigators for Congress, the White House, and the Pentagon. And so at the National Press Club, we're going to make it quite clear that the U.S. government now has everything they need to pursue this and get to the bottom of it and correct this 
um, crisis. Uh, one of the other uh, items that we would be clearly claiming, Derek, which I think is very important in terms of who has standing, everybody in the United States of America who has been paying for oil, gas, and coal or living with polluted air or has had their economic fortune set back by the cost of those items would also potentially be plaintiffs, which means 330 million people to be plaintiffs to this in the sense that uh, everyone who is currently locked in what we call the lost century, <laughs> where these technologies, that movie is coming out June 6th, by the way, this documentary film, are really have been in a very real way victims, our fortunes, our health, our prosperity, and our freedoms have been curtailed by an unelected, illegally run group of people who have viciously suppressed through all means necessary, including confiscation and murder, technological breakthroughs that should have corrected these uh, climate and pollution and poverty problems uh, decades ago. So, you know, this has the greatest significance to the national security in the future, not just the United States, but of course we're in America, so that's where we can prosecute this case, but in the world, every citizen of the planet. And I think that's where we have to begin to look at this in a very broad way. Now, what damages we might be claiming, because you mentioned that uh, whatever damages are, the, the judgment can be treble or three times what they are. It would be almost incalculable. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yes, uh, certainly with, it is the biggest legal story in human history. And uh, the oh, yes. damages are almost uh, incalculable. You cannot uh, calculate uh, you know, the cost to human advancements, I think, that has come with suppression of these advanced energy technologies, propulsion technologies, which will solve definitively the global climate change crisis in our time uh, and could have done so decades ago had they not been suppressed. Um, part of the power, I think, of RICO is that the action can be filed both against the individuals involved in the criminal enterprise Right. Or in the name and in the name of the criminal enterprise itself. So it allows essentially for individual defendants to plead and hopefully secure their individual release should they, you know, believe that they were acting in such a way that was without knowing criminal intent. Um, by which I mean individually defendants can plead that they were acting with what they thought was legitimate authority coming from the president or coming from the Congress and not sort of uh, derived from this extra constitutional group that we know for a fact exists at this point and we can prove in a court of law exists and has existed for decades on this issue. Um, one, of, one of the key people we would be uh, opposing and, and providing subpoenas to, by the way, um, just but we've talked about this, Derek, or what I call the inverse witnesses. They're the people who've been involved with the projects, but there were the people who legally, constitutionally had a need to know who were denied access, like the president, or were threatened and or were threatened and or were bought off and bribed. And I have an extensive list of these people. These are people who, under any interpretation of the Constitution, 
would absolutely have been read in or briefed on these projects. And this would include the president, the key members of the oversight committees of the Congress. And I might add, uh, in the case of, of the CIA director I briefed, who was also denied access, uh, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, General uh, Patrick Hughes, who was denied access and, and pushed aside. And in the case of the head of intelligence, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Admiral Tom Wilson, who, when he made inquiries, was not only denied information, but was overtly threatened. So TikTok made me do it. If you use TikTok, you might have seen videos like these recently claiming that the combination of L-tyrosine and B vitamins is. So those are all people who can be subpoenaed to make the case that the projects in question are, in fact, a priori illegally run and unconstitutionally run. And this, just so everyone knows, this is the foundation of the uh, disclosure project, which we formed in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And legally, let me just summarize this to you. If you go to our website or look at the book, Unacknowledged, there is a document. It's what we call the UNOD document. It's unless otherwise directed. And my military advisor said, Dr. Greer, what you need to do before you go public and bring these people forward who will be talking outside their coerced and illegally obtained non-disclosure agreements and security oaths is to write a memo to all the main agencies of the United States government, send it return receipt requested, which we have and can prove is in our archive. That stated, in summary, uh, you can read it, but I will summarize it, basically said, through meetings that we have taken with key constitutional figures in the United States government, we have discovered that the operations connected to UFOs, UAPs, extraterrestrial intelligence, and related energy technologies are being run unconstitutionally and illegally. Therefore, the non-disclosure agreements which people sign, the security oaths that they've been threatened with, are all null and void. They're vitiated. They're negated by the fact that those people didn't know that they were working under an, an illegal RICO, uh, an illegal organized crime syndicate. They thought that it was something where the top down had been overseen properly by the president and Congress, and we know that this is not true. So. Basically, that's how I convinced the first tranche or group of disclosure project witnesses to come forward. But even to this day, because of witness intimidation and the threats of people losing their pensions and the threats of what have you, this is a problem. And it extends well into the corporate sector. I want to make something very clear here. There's a, there's, for example, there's a man who's been reaching out to me through an interlocutor for a while who is the chairman of a major Fortune 100 company. If I said the company's name, everyone on this call would know it instantaneously. And this man, who's elderly now, wants to come forward. But since his folks started talking to me, he has had he and his entire family threatened. Now, (laughs) this is where, you know, and, and by the way, This man has the documents and proof of this major corporation possessing these technologies we are talking about. And he feels terrible and has deep regret that the world and and humanity is in the situation it is. And he wants to come forward. But through this gangland, thuggish 
mafia style intimidation and criminal behavior, he is still very much on the fence and inclined not to. So this is a serious problem for disclosure. And it goes from the presidency and Congress all the way through the captains of industry and corporations. So my view of this is that this is not speculation. We're, this is not a frivolous action. This would be based on uh, enormous amounts of direct evidence and direct witness testimony. Um, we have a thousand times what most murder trials need to convict someone of murder, literally. So this is why this action is so important if, there's a big if, if while we're standing up this process, the United States government, meaning the White House and the Congress, finally do what they have been recommended since 1993, when I wrote the first sets of recommendations for the president and then later for members of Congress that I had briefed, like members of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Government Reform Oversight Committee, all of these people I briefed. And let me point out also, these meetings with senior members of Congress on relevant committees, every single one of them were denied access to these projects, whether they're Senate Intel, Armed Services, House Government Reform and Oversight, even the chairman of the House Government Reform and Oversight that I met with in the 90s flat out told me he had never been told anything about this issue and had been denied, been denied actively information on it. So I think that all of this makes a, a solid airtight case, you know, if we can find a judge in the federal system that isn't also corruptible or corrupt. I mean, this is the, the $100 trillion if. Yes, uh, I think uh, I think part of the power of a you know um, civilian directed uh, civil lawsuit like this, the Disclosure Project legal team that would bring, um, is that the United States Attorney's Office can use any evidence that we gather as part of a civilian suit or a civil suit and developed, um, that including deposition testimony that's taken under oath. Um, documents, et cetera, if we gain access to certain facilities, um, all of that evidence that we would develop in this uh, versionally legal effort uh, could be used to seek criminal indictment of any individuals who are uh, seen as complicit with and knowing in their criminal intent along with this criminal enterprise. But also um, the corporations can be criminally prosecuted, I understand. Oh, yes, by, by all means. Um, and okay. they are, in many cases, the enterprise itself that's discussed by the RICO Act. Um, under the law, for the lawyers out there and who uh, may be considering joining our efforts, uh, we're doing a call out for, you know, a pro bono attorneys of every stripe. Um, and there's going to be a link uh, that uh, folks can access um, posted below uh, that uh, you can sign up for. And uh, we'll get your name and information uh, as a number of years in practice, as well as uh, credentials um, and a statement of interest from you in working with the Disclosure Project legal team. Uh, but w- our hope is is to have attorneys in boots on the ground in every single um, relevant jurisdiction uh, for this right. multi-pronged approach. Um, under the law, for the lawyers out there, under 18 U.S.C. 1961, um, uh, the meaning of a racketeering activity is any violation of state statutes against uh, murder, extortion, robbery, dealing um, in controlled substances, which are related to this issue, although a little bit more change, uh, 
tangentially than the uh, environmental aspects of it, um, counterfeiting, theft, embezzlement, fraud, as well as uh, criminal copyright infringement and intellectual property theft, which is central to this case going all the way back to the time of Nikola Tesla in 1943, in my estimation. Right, absolutely. Um, a lot of his, a lot of his uh, later work and final work uh, was seized directly from him in, in 1943. It is, uh, 20 missing trunks are still unaccounted for to this day right. of his work at the time. So um, there is a very fertile area in which we can develop through civil lawsuits and a multi-jurisdictional approach that's going to require the time and talent and dedicated expertise of a number of legal professionals in, in a number of different subject areas. And if you would like to join us, you can also send an email to disclosure.legal uh, at gmail.com. And we will, one of our um, uh, assembled uh, project members will um, contact you and uh, get more information about your particular areas of expertise um, and any other relevant information that you can share with us that would uh, assist us in um, bringing, uh, you know, legal force to bear and enforcing mm-hmm. Uh, the RICO statutes, uh, specifically directed toward, uh, this longstanding, uh, secrecy, which has, uh, kept this, uh, kept this story, the, the, the central story, the most important story in human history from coming to wider acknowledgement and, and, uh, I think is going to be extremely, extremely beneficial in the years and months ahead. Yeah. It's the future of the planet is hanging in the balance and it's not a, uh, exaggeration to say so. One thing I want to point out also, I believe the statute also includes things like money laundering. Yes. Um, and let me comment on this because uh, in so many cases you follow the money. It's a cliche, but it's some real truth to it. And we have a, a coming forward at the National Press Club and at the two-day event, uh, the, the two days before the National Press Club event on June 12th, on June 10th and 11th. Uh, a Marine who was with five of his platoon buddies who came across a man-made alien reproduction vehicle about 300 feet in diameter. That's as big around as a football field. Offloading illegal drugs and weapons in Indonesia in 2009. We have the names of his platoon buddies. He's coming forward. He has provided testimony officially to the Pentagon, and he will be there. Now, why is that important? Because we have other witnesses who come forward, including a man who worked at a black site CIA in Tennessee, who was also involved with that end of it, using these clandestine man-made UFOs and involved heavily in moving vast quantities of contraband and drugs. Why? Because it creates an all-cash flow which is untraceable, off budget, and is not even embezzled out of the black budget of the United States and Pentagon, but is another revenue source. The men I've been talking to who were at Area 51 and Wright-Patterson, some of them have called the the regular programs that do the reverse engineering and retrievals of extraterrestrial vehicles and what have you, the legacy programs from the 40s, but these rogue, what they call these rogue operations, are also going forward on a parallel basis and are much more out of control than even the legacy ones that are unconstitutional. And so what you have here is a multi-layered uh, problem where there are 
extreme factions, let's call it, that because of compartmentalization of operations and intelligence, uh, many of the people who are innocently working in an underground base or in a secure compartmented information facility, they have no knowledge of the these more extreme and murderous and criminal elements that are doing all these the drug running and how the money uh, is is being created. We- we have a man who has contacted me who is working for a uh, contractor at the Dugway Proving Grounds. And he was explicitly told that all transactions for the sector he was in called Avery Sector, A-V-E-R-Y. By the way, all the names of all these bases, sectors, locations are coming out on June 12th. The whole world's going to see it. We're not holding anything back. Code names, code numbers, base locations, corporate names, all of it. So (laughs) stay tuned. My point here is that he was told by an Air Force woman there that all transactions for those activities were 100% in cash. Moreover, the corporate contractors on a U.S. overt base owned 52% of the operations, which created a, a means for them to maintain control over the technology and also not be subject to any FOIA uh, requests or even in many cases, oversight. So this, I said for 30 years, there's a hybridized entity, which uh, Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. I want to be a little more specific. It's a hybrid criminal organization with the, that's part governmental, that's illegal breakaway, and part corporate-private. But the dominant partner is private where the money is. And so this is another key part of what we would be putting forward in the RICO action, uh, because here we're talking about not only uh, blatantly criminal activity that is covered under RICO, and now we have test people to be subpoenaed who will testify. But we also can state that even people, for example, one of the key people that I'm working with in Washington literally oversees and manages the black budget of the United States, meaning the legal part of the black budget that's known by the president and the Congress. Those are our highly classified um, items that are not enumerated that the public would ever know. However, this person and his bosses have never gotten access to the UFO UAP projects, but now they know they exist. So we know that this is being run illegally and unconstitutionally, but because of that, in the very first meeting I had with these folks in in a secure facility, they said, where is the money coming from? I said, well, let's take your B-2 stealth bomber that they built the government for $2 billion for. It probably costs more like $100 once it was designed, as you know. But the other money, it goes out the back door like a mafia operation where they have a pizza parlor and all kinds of ill-gotten gains go through the front door and out the back is classic money laundering, but also embezzlement, in this case, of U.S. federal funds. Uh, and we have a witness who worked for SAIC who actually saw this happening also, the Science Applications International Corporation. So we're talking about a 
enormous, the world's largest RICO criminal organization is what we're talking about here. So we need serious legal help. And we're also, by the way, anyone listening, we're going to need serious funding help. Because even if every lawyer worked pro bono, there are going to be some significant travel, deposition, transcripts, all kinds of other expenses that the attorneys would not be able to pick up unless they're extremely well healed. Um, and so we need also people who will underwrite this uh, action. As part of the part of the beauty of the the, the RICO Act Act and the law in this area is that um, if we're successful in bringing this information in a convincing way, and that's ultimately decided by an everyday jury of mm-hmm. everyday people, right. a civil jury, in right. terms of proclaiming very specific individual actors as well as the criminal enterprise to be racketeering influenced and corrupt. Um, if that factual determination is made by a jury in the end, uh, it allows for um, treble damages to anyone that's been harmed. And uh, certainly you and your organization have been you know, greatly harmed going decades back. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, right. we've all been harmed by suppression of these technologies. Right. But uh, it allows for attorney's fees and costs as well in right. uh, in being able to be recovered from uh, from the, from these uh, defendants. Um, and so part of our legal strategy as we're developing it, I think, needs to be that we name individuals as defendants, but then we give them proper incentive uh, to plead and to come clean that they did not know they were were acting or failing to act without proper congressional authority or without proper executive branch oversight in the chain of command. And that allows their testimony then to be developed against uh, the true principles of the, you know, the co-conspirators at the top of the chain of command and securing their release. uh, We can secure their testimony and be able to prevail in the end uh, by proving that these uh, this legal shadow government uh, exists and has existed uh, for a long time. And uh, it is just now when an everyday group of people, everyday citizens comes together and really uh, pursues this in a court of law. You know, we went to we went to war in 2003 on far, far less evidence for weapons of mass destruction than exists developed by you, you know, for UFOs at this point uh, as being extraterrestrial vehicles, as as the shadow government uh, exists, uh, you know, and we can prove it in court now. We have the testimony, we have the documents, we have the evidence, we have had for a long time, and I think um, I think we will prevail. But it's going to require everybody's efforts and a broad range of legal talent. So please, please uh, click on the uh, uh, form link below, uh, send us your information, and we will be in touch and contact uh, soon. Ghirardelli Intense Dark makes life a bite better. Meet Litter Robot, the revolutionary self-cleaning litter box that eliminates the chore of scooping. As soon as possible. And I I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Greer, uh, your thoughts on, you know, amnesty to those who, you know, participated in these projects uh, during, you know, the relevant periods, but may not have been knowing actors, you know, in the sense that they knew uh, they didn't know that, you know, perhaps they were violating the law or perhaps they thought they were maintaining a secrecy oath that had actual um, executive branch authority behind it. Uh, if you may comment on that uh, aspect. Well, well, actually, those people are already, they're innocent victims, actually, that were just 
let's call it a cog in the machine. Right. And they didn't know who was cranking and running the machine. Right. They're already protected under the law that was passed uh, for people to come forward that was signed two days before Christmas 2022. And that's the basis of the witnesses that we're bringing now and bringing forward. However, I separate from that, we are recommending, and I recommended this back in uh, when Clinton was president, that there be amnesty for the culpable parties who did know. Why? Because if you're going to actually get these very high-value senior folks to, um, let's say, defect from this criminal group, those whistleblowers who do have culpability need to have amnesty. So I am actively working and discussing three key things that need to be enshrined in an amendment or a bill in Congress. One is amnesty that you're talking about for a period, not a long period, might be a year or less. The other would be explicit protection of people's financial assets and or pensions, which have been threatened and are actually specified in some of these NDAs that people have signed illegally. They didn't know they were signing on behalf of an illegal operation, however. Mm-hmm. And the, the other is uh, federal witness protection for ones who feel they need it. And this is a significant number of them. Now, as a private organization, unless we had a very large endowment, we would not be able to backstop and guarantee people's pensions, <laughs> nor would we be able to afford to have a tactical security team for all these hundreds of folks. Now, the federal government can. So that's why we are recommending, and you will see when I do my presentation at the National Press Club, there will be a set of recommendations for the executive branch and president, Department of Justice, and there will be a set of recommendations for the Congress, um, which I am refining as we speak today. And those will be uh, very much encouraged. And one of my private conversations with members of Congress and other people in Washington, I'm saying this very much needs to be done. But this is where uh, we need the cooperation of the federal government for some of that. Uh, but luckily, the people with whom I'm speaking are extremely sympathetic to that and realize we need it. For example, let's go back to this uh, very highly placed executive with a major corporation who has the documents and the proof of these technologies, which brought forward would end oil and gas and coal and pollution forever. This man obviously benefited greatly from the secrecy because he was head of this big corporation. He doesn't want himself or his family at risk. So he needs protection, but he also doesn't want his assets seized, which can be under RICO. So there needs to be a way to incentivize because one of the things I tell attorneys and radically eyed all kinds of activists is that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And let's not forget the group we're talking about have more money than the U.S. government, better technology, more advanced technology by thousands of years from reverse engineering extraterrestrial vehicles. And they are vicious. They're thugs. So what you don't want to do is make an enemy where there's someone who wants to help you. 
(laughs) who is highly placed, very highly placed. So this is why a period of amnesty would be very important. And I think there will be increasing political pressure to do that when they see that there's a credible civilian group like ours moving forward to take on both the corporate and governmental end of this. I want to also say one thing that you and I haven't spoken about, Derek. There are people highly placed in other countries watching this. I've been on the phone with people in London. As you know, I've I've met with and briefed uh, the ministers of defense of Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, all of whom could be supporting witnesses not to the U.S. situation, but in their own countries where they similarly were denied access to these projects, notwithstanding the fact that they should have known. And this group we're talking about is transnational. It's global. And it's a global corrupt organization, not just U.S. Um, So this is going to get watched, I'm quite sure, by another other countries that are facing the same problem but are sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens in the United States since the United States obviously is the center of power on most of these operations. Yes, uh, I think um, a lot of people have uh, difficulty wrapping their heads around this idea of an illegal um, shadow government has been used Mm -hmm. in the words of uh, Senator Daniel Anyway, uh, during Oh yes, the, tell uh, that the wonderful story from when you were an intern up there. Oh yeah, thank you for, yeah, that's, um, quite, quite an, quite an interesting story. Um, as we know, uh, Daniel Anyway, uh, one of the main, uh, individuals responsible during the Iran Contra hearings for, um, reining in Oliver North and his gang. Um, but I think that was just the tip of the iceberg. And he's famous as for saying, you know, there exists a legal shadow government with its own army, its own air force, its own fundraising mechanisms, to paraphrase, um, free from the law itself and any sort of congressional oversight. And a lot of thing, a lot of people suspect that he may have been uh, speaking in hyperbole or exaggeration. Um, but I know for a fact that he was not. And originally, uh, when the original May 2001 disclosure project uh press conference was released i was an intern in capitol hill for um, both senators mingaman and Dominici, uh the new mexico delegation and i uh watched attentively um during that initial press conference and i had the um uh privilege of catching up with uh senator enaway uh in the summer of 2001 in the senate heart office building uh as a young intern and he uh I, I approached him. I said, have you heard of the Disclosure Project? Have you heard of Dr. Greer and his efforts to bring about um, formal acknowledgments of UFOs and uh, advanced technology? And he said uh, he, uh, he kind of uh, did this to me and uh, caused me to follow him back to his office where I had a private meeting with uh, the senator. And the senator uh, confirmed to me directly that everything um, – uh, included in the uh, May 2001 initial disclosure project press conference was real, was actually happening, uh, that uh, that UFOs were extraterrestrial vehicles, that they uh, that this uh, this issue has been obfuscated and um, and uh, uh, concealed from the public for a number of decades and that it was all in fact 
actual reality. Um, he was not speaking in hyperbole during the Iran-Contra hearings. The uh, the illegal shadow government has its own military. They have their own advanced technology. He was highly, highly interested in getting to the bottom of this. But even senators like Senator Inouye, who never lost an election, have to be concerned with the six-year election cycle in the Senate and the two-year election cycle in the House. Uh, it's very, very hard, I think, for elected representatives because of the giggle factor, because of everything and in the, in the, in the need to get reelected and the need to continue fundraising to really uh, get out in front of this issue. So yep. the, the, the movement that we have seen lately um, has been um, tremendous, I think. Uh, for oh, yes. Finally, uh, finally, after all these years and 22 years later, after mm-hmm. Daniel Inouye confirmed to me personally that uh, this was all um, a reality and not mm-hmm. an exaggeration, um, I think. Uh, is you know, I, I had forgotten that story until you mentioned it to me a few days ago. Um, because, you know, I deal with so many people and situations like this where it's confirmatory to everything that we've been saying. And I think you're right. I think for most people, their minds just can't quite get their minds around the extent of the criminal and just the hubris and the outrageous operations that exist to have kept this secret. The counterintelligence, the threats, the inducements. You know, I met with a member of this clandestine group back in 1993 before I briefed the CIA director, and he said, look, <clears throat> we've given at least 10,000 people $10 million each or more to secure their cooperation with this secrecy. You know, and in my case, General Albert Stubblebine, who then head of Army Intelligence and Special Forces, offered me in May of 1992 $2 billion to become part of his team and be on sort of a policy board. And it was all illegally, ill-gotten gains from the collapse of the Soviet Union held in Eastern Europe, is what he told me. So the amount of corrupt money and activities globally on this is very, very substantial. But I think for the average person, and you make a very good point, one of the reasons we're doing, and this is why everyone listening, please send the link to the conference, the two-day conference, the 10th and 11th, but the National Press Club event, that's going to be streamed by the National Press Club globally over our channels for free. Everyone can look at it. You should have all your members of Congress and your senators uh, and everyone you know looking at it because this is where we're going to unveil the uh, disclosure intelligence archive that has all this information, the master list of witnesses. The, the, they'll be redacted in terms of people's private names that don't want to be known. But everyone who does want to be known will be on it. And as well as the entire collection of facilities, corporations, bases, project code names, et cetera, that we have. And every two or three days now, we are having to update that list. We have so much intelligence pouring in. So, uh, you know, I hope all of you, you know, get involved with that. And the more information we have, the better. So we're asking for more whistleblowers to come forward and witnesses or people with information that's specific information about locations of facilities, corporate projects, code names, code numbers, et cetera. Uh, anyone with that information should contact us immediately since now we're a little less than uh, three weeks out from that event. The other thing I want to mention is, is that it's a very important strategy, this, uh, this event in Washington that is 
been asked of me by some senior folks in Washington who cited exactly what you just said, Derek, that the politicians who have to get elected every two years or six years or four if you're the president, they are very skittish about the giggle and the little green men and the silliness factor of this subject. So the more we can put this kind of information out in front of the people, because they're politicians, and create enough social and political cover and demand that they act. So, see, this is how things change. People don't understand 30 years on of my activity doing this, it takes a long time. But also, if you look at the civil rights movement, that didn't happen overnight. That was percolating for decades. And and even the Kennedy brothers did not want to do all the civil rights bills at the time. They thought it would be politically difficult. But when the civil rights activists, including but not limited to Martin Luther King and others, created a groundswell of public and media activity that put this on the front burner, then the Congress and the president acted. So what I tell people Having been involved, I'm old enough to have been involved in the early civil rights and rights for women and rights for gay people and rights for everybody. That and the, the being against the, the corrupt wars that we didn't need, that activity and the changes that flowed from it didn't come from the top down. It comes from the grassroots up, which is why it really is the power to the people and we the people. I live here down the road from Thomas Jefferson's home, Monticello. And that is what people need to understand. These things happen because you and I and other people who are concerned citizens uh, exercise their Bill of Rights, their rights and civil rights to express themselves and take action because that gives cover and support to the members of Congress who do want to act. But they need to hear from us. They need to know we are concerned about this. So I think this is the part of this that's very activist oriented. Um, and it's not that I'm you know, wanting to be a political agitator. It's that this is just simply how a democratic republic works. You know, people do have to get elected. They do campaign. Um, if we were able, we would should have a PAC or super PAC that would actually be the disclosure that would be nonpartisan. And by the way, I want to emphasize everything we're doing is nonpartisan. Because some of the biggest supporters of disclosing this issue are uh, equally divided on either side of the red, blue, left, right aisle. This issue, which I have made this point for 30 years, absolutely transcends the fracture lines of normal partisan politics. And thankfully, if you look at the letter sent to the Pentagon recently by 16 senators, that's one sixth of the Senate. Uh, it's very bipartisan. It's from people from both sides of the aisle, which something this cosmic and global and of great importance should be. There should be, there should be complete nonpartisan approach to this. As I know you're fond of saying, when the, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And I know, uh, we, we will keep the faith. And I, I certainly, um, I certainly am one to, uh, believe that, uh, the force of law, the rule of law, regardless of political affiliation and regardless of whatever has happened in the past and people's compromised values in the past, um, will, uh, will cede to the ultimate truth on this issue. And even, uh, 
for senators like Inouye, um, who secured some of the initial funding, um, uh, the secret Pentagon program, um, at least through the legal government, $22 million in 2007, working with um, Senator Senators Reed and Senator Stevens. That also was a bipartisan approach um, mm-hmm. that unfortunately sort of fell apart, you know, at the time of Senator Inouye's death in uh, 2012. Um, but I do know that he, his particular, uh, views on this issue was that it is beyond any sort of red state, blue state considerations that we're all, oh, absolutely. we're all in this together absolutely. in the end. Um, well, and remember, most people may have missed this when I, I did a YouTube about this a couple of years ago. I spoke to Senator Reed, who at the time was the majority leader of the Senate, his right hand guy on that issue, the UFO issue. There's a General Herbert with whom I've spoken, and he and the senators didn't know that when they got influenced to put those $22 million into Bigelow Aerospace, that they were putting it into a cutout operation of this criminal activity. And what General Herbert said to me personally over and over again is that for the $22 million, they got nothing valuable back. They, they, at the most, he, he had been an army pilot. He said, basically, I got a snapshot from 40,000 feet, which anyone who would have read any UFO book from the above top secret with Timothy Good or anything else from the eighties would have had more information. And he said, and I told him, I said, yes, because the person who was the consigliari and the architect of that project for Mr. Bigelow is a very well placed member of this criminal operation. And he didn't know that. And so what people need to understand, we have to be very careful about this. Just because the Congress authorizes or the president authorizes an investigation, like there is now at Arrow, this office at Pentagon, doesn't mean it's clean, doesn't mean it's actually scientific, doesn't mean it has to be overseen. And given the corrupting influence in money and power and threats of this criminal organization, we have to assume that they will be compromised. That's what happened to Senator Inouye's and Reed's and Stevens's initiative. That money, the, what I said to General Herbert was, visualize this. You open the toilet lid, dump $22 million into it, and hit the flush button. That's what happened. And so if it had been $22 billion, it would have been the same dynamic. So having, you know, this is the sort of information that also goes into a RICO mm-hmm. because this general and everyone involved in that, that's $22 million in taxpayer money exactly. that was essentially taken under false pretense and thrown away, totally yeah. thrown away. Again, uh, money laundering uh, directly, one of the enumerated crimes absolutely. under RICO yep. uh, that we can directly prove in a court of law now uh, through deposition mm-hmm. testimony through uh, live testimony, through in-court proceedings. Um, I'm hopeful that the rule of law will once again, um, you know, prove uh, to be a force for change and good. And yep. and, and it's going to take civilians. It's going to take yes. civil lawyers of all stripes and, uh, and uh, capacities. Uh, so please get in touch with our uh, assembling legal team. Uh, we yes. One of our... Um, one of our volunteers, uh, pro bono attorneys, paralegals, law students, 
uh, and all other individuals with any sort of connection with the legal uh, uh, profession uh, should get in touch with us at the links provided as part of this video. And right. one of our team will be in touch with you. And we are very ex excited to work with you and to bring your specialized areas of expertise on board because this is certainly a story and a legal um a legal initiative that is going to is far beyond the capacities of any single attorney or any single, you know, group of uh, legal professionals uh, beyond, um, you know, just a single jurisdiction or a single uh, mindset or or a set of expertise. So I think mm -hmm. we 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 need to um, assemble everybody uh, from intellectual property law, patents, related litigation, civil rights law constitutional rights. We also need criminal defense uh, for uh, alleged violations of non-disclosure agreements, um, you know, secrecy oaths, that sort of thing, uh, related clearances. Um, any, everybody with expertise in this area should contact us immediately. Um, if you have experience serving in the House and Senate Foreign Intelligence, uh, Foreign Relations Committees, Energy and Natural Resources Committees, uh, Oversight Committees of all sorts, um, please get in touch with us. And of course, anything having to do with advanced energy, uh, electrogravitics and related technologies, laws and policies. Again, our uh, e email address um, that's been established by our team, disclosure.legal at gmail.com. Please include your uh, full legal name and all relevant contact information, uh, your interest in working in the subject area, uh, your states in which you're licensed to practice law, um, your current resume, if you can upload that through our form link, uh, and one of our uh, team members will be in touch with you in short order. Uh, thank you very well, much. I'd like to, and thank, I want to thank you, Derek, for heading this up. Um, you know, I'm sort of pulled in a thousand directions every day, but I've always wanted to do this and, and thank you for taking your time, uh, to, to head this up and help organize it. And all those of you who respond, I want to thank you in advance because uh, you know, if we don't have the rule of law, then we're in the jungle. And so, uh, you know, if we want to go forward as a civilization, we only really need to have this matter uh, truthfully disclosed and the technologies brought forward. But we also need to live under the rule of law. Otherwise, what are we? We're living, you know, we, we're living under some sort of undisclosed uh, totalitarian or authoritarian uh, criminal group, really. I mean, you know, so this this gets into really some basics of as a civilization, as a people in America, uh, how we want to go forward and to correct a big mistake that happened under Eisenhower's watch uh, because he took his eye off the ball a bit uh, in the late 1950s. And so we have now whatever it is, 65 years of uh, this entire matter being run very much illegally and criminally, and that needs to be corrected. We need to correct this problem, and that is part of how we uh, – the, the, the documentary coming out is called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It, but this is part of how we reclaim it. We, it's not just the technology and the energy. It's through the reestablishment of, the, of the, the trust of the people and the rule of law and our government of and for and by the people being properly run. I also want to emphasize that all you military and office holders have taken an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so 
I think we have to remind ourselves those with that who took those oaths, whether they're a politician or someone who's a cabinet level person or someone who's been in the military or the government. That is something that everyone should begin to take very seriously on this matter. And now that we can prove and establish that these projects were run criminally, even though 99.9% of everyone involved didn't know that. I mean, I've spoken to Navy SEALs and Delta Force people and people at Area 51, and they were just doing their job in a compartmented operation. They had no idea the Congress and the president were not read in and didn't know, or that even senior flag officers at the Pentagon were being denied access and threatened. They didn't. How would they? This has been, quite frankly, my task and job is to get to that level and, and the bottom of it. And this is something that I learned in December of 1993 when I laughed out loud when the person setting up my meeting for the CI director for Bill Clinton said, They've made inquiries and can't get any information on this. I said, this cannot be true. I'm a young doctor. I was like, you're right. I don't know how old you are now, but I was like 37 or something. And I go, this is not possible. <laughs> and then I found out, in fact, it was possible. And that's how the system had been run for a very long time, for, you know, 40 some years before I, I, I went into that briefing. And so I think that. We have to understand that this is not just an academic exercise. This has real consequences to the future of our planet and to the United States of America and to humanity, that this gets resolved in a peaceful manner. And that's why we want this to be uh, very clear. We are not looking to have anything that is some uh, you know, violent uprising. We're looking to do this and unwind this through a peaceful, legal means, both by our actions as a civilian operation and, and project, but also through the Congress and the White House. It can be done, but it's going to take a lot of uh, coordinated effort, our RICO effort, the Congress's effort, uh, and I think ultimately uh, the cooperation of the media. And so my last appeal would be people who have contacts in the major media who they can send this YouTube link to should do so because they think they're going to find there's some very newsworthy information here. So, again, thank you, guys. I know we got to run, but uh, until next time, and thank you, Derek, and everyone you're working with, and Paige and others. Thank you, Dr. Greer, and I look forward thank to you. seeing you June 12th at the National Press Club. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. This would be galactic intervention. At the media level, everybody. All right. So this is um, the astrology of June to December 2023. What does it take to build a radical new world? This video covers all of the major astrological transits and what they will mean for us. From June to December 2023. We won't finish this before we take a look at us, our, the stars with Richard and Tanya and Kate Pacha. We'll get about to a um, little over half through. <laughs> yeah. No, no, three quarters full. Uh, anyway, uh, and two thirds maybe. Okay, it includes all of the new moons and full moons 
from June 1st to December 31st. Their themes and lessons, healing messages that they will bring to us. Three Mercury retrogrades, all in Earth signs, and what they will mean for you. The shifting of the nodes from Taurus, Scorpio, to Aries, Libra. The major themes we'll be working with for the next one and a half years. Venus retrograde and Jupiter retrograde, both happening this year. The deeper meaning of Pluto in Aquarius, 2023 to 2043. We're talking about 20-year span, everybody. Pluto Mm -hmm. in Aquarius. And Pluto square the nodes very strong throughout most of 2023. Oh, my. In other words, transformation, no matter what. Stubbornness. Mm-hmm. Make it into a strength, everybody. How the transformation Pluto themes will be working with us this year and how that leads us into the next 20 years. The eclipses in October 2023, how to work with this time of deep healing, and so much more. Mm-hmm. I hope you'll enjoy this video and use it as a resource and guide all throughout the rest of 2023. All right. So let's go. Rama, how long is this again? Two hours and ten minutes? Uh, Just a second. Two hours and 27 seconds. Two hours and... 27 seconds. No minutes in there? No. Oh, two hours and 27 seconds. All right, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this YouTube Live where I'm going to share with you the astrology of June through December 2023. This will be a very comprehensive report, and I recommend listening to it once, welcome the whole way through, live, and then... Come back and refer to it throughout the year as you need because it's going to have the specific details about all of the new moons and full moons, the Mercury retrogrades. We will also have a Venus retrograde and a Jupiter retrograde that you'll want to be very connected with when they are happening and eclipses in October. So there's a lot of really powerful, really exciting transits coming up. Some of them, of course, will be more difficult. Some of them, of course, will be more beautiful and flowing and bring joy and blessings and abundance into your life. And it's so helpful to be tuned into these cosmic energies because when we know what's coming ahead of time, and astrology is this wonderful predictive tool that we have, a predictive science, really, that's been used by our ancestors For thousands of years, we know that astrology was very well developed in ancient Egypt, ancient Sumeria, and other ancient civilizations by 1500 BC, which means that they were developing it and using it for (coughs) millennia before that to have it developed to such a high extent by 1500 BC that we have evidence of. And so this is an incredible predictive tool that is coming back into popularity in our world in in really powerful ways because we're seeing just how accurate and how powerful it truly is. 
And so it's really helpful to be tuned into the astrology because then you will know what's coming ahead of time. You will know which days you should make space for healing and which days you can be out frolicking and enjoying life. Um, and, and be connected in with the cosmic energetics that will be supporting you in the different activities that you need to do. So you can plan ahead if you have a big work presentation to do or a book launch, right? You want to be sure that you are connecting in with the energy that will support you on those days. You don't want to be doing a big work presentation on a day that everybody's going to be super emotional, including you, and be doing deep healing work, right? You want to do a big presentation on a day that you're going to have the Jupiter influence of expansion and growth and abundance. So we can tune into these cosmic energies. We can look at what's coming ahead of time and really lean into these transits, lean into the planetary energies and receive the highest gifts from them as all of this moves through rather than being knocked over by them. And really, truly, all of the transits, all of the planetary movements are happening for our highest growth and evolution. Some of them feel worse than others. Some of them feel amazing. Some of them feel very challenging. But all of it is working with the different aspects and powers within ourselves to help us come into alignment with who we truly are and what we're meant to bring to the world. So it's very powerful to work with astrology in this way. And I wanted to bring you this report that will tell you about the full year ahead, June through December 2023. I am Jocelyn Starfeather. I am the founder of Sacred Planet. And I am a coach and guide for visionary entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs to find visibility and their global community so that they can truly share their voice, their message, their mission with their wide global audience and support the uplifting of humanity and the raising of consciousness at this time. I am also an astrologer, a spiritual alchemist, and I am a guide and facilitator uh, to tours to sacred sites, particularly in Egypt. And I lead an Egypt tour every year. So you can find out more about me on my website, which is wearesacredplanet.com, and that will be linked in the description field below. So let's begin. We'll dive right into this presentation that I have prepared for you today. And this is a very comprehensive look. So if it is too long for you to watch in one sitting today, come back to it a couple days in a row, a few days in a row so that you can really receive all that is here. And as I mentioned, be sure to come back to this throughout the year and tune into certain particular transits that I share about so that you will know exactly how to work with them. And I do have a really exciting free gift for you, the Alchemical Astrology Chart Reading Guide. This is a full-color guide that is an invaluable tool in your astrological explorations. And it clarifies and explains step-by-step how to decode the cosmic language of your birth chart or any astrological chart. So it includes the main planetary glyphs or the symbols for the planets and what they mean. It includes five important asteroids that you'll want to know about and work with. It includes the deeper meaning for each planet, what the astrological houses indicate, how to interpret the zodiac signs. It also gives instructions on how to pull your free 
astrological chart if you need to do that, if you don't yet have your chart drawn up. So you will just want to go to this link to claim your guide. It's completely free. And you will receive this beautiful full-color guide. I can't wait to share it with you. And this link will also be posted in the description field below. And I have one more exciting announcement. I lead a group that is called the Radical New World Building Group as we are tuning into this astrology for 2023, 2024, and 2025. There are momentous opportunities for those who wish to begin a visionary business or community or venture or project that is related to spirituality, rites of passage, nature connection, plant medicine, all of these different themes that we'll look at when we get to Saturn and Pisces, which is an important part of this, this uh, look ahead today. Um, as Saturn is moving through Pisces over the next three years, the businesses that you've been wanting to start that are going to help people grow in their spirituality, in their connection to energy healing, if you're a healer, if you're a teacher of any sort, um, you are going to experience massive growth in your business over the next three years in particular. So it's an amazing time to start or grow your spiritual business, your purpose-based business. So I recommend that you click here to learn more about the Radical New World Building Group if this is speaking to you. We have opened up three more spaces. So these are just a limited number of spaces. I do expect them to fill quickly. So if you'd like to join, send an email to hello at wearesacredplanet.com with the subject line. Send me the details to join the Radical New World Building Group and we'll get back to you. And these spaces, these three spaces will be filled on a first come, first serve basis. Now, there's a lot more information about the group and all that you receive at this link right here. This will be posted in the description field below. So check that out if you're interested. Okay. Now, let's really dive in. So I'm going to first go over the energies that we will be in the midst of as we enter June 2023. So in late May, early June, what will we be moving through? And then we're going to go month by month after that. So we'll look at June, all the transits in June. We'll look at the transits in July, August, and so on through December. So let's look at each of these themes a little bit more closely here. First of all, as we're entering June, we've just had Jupiter move into Taurus. So Jupiter will be in the sign of Taurus from May 16, 2023 to May 25th, 2024, a little over a full year. And so if you're looking at where this is in your chart, this is the whole zodiac sign of Taurus over this whole year. So you'll want to look and see what house is that for you in your chart. And that will tell you the themes specifically for you that Jupiter and Taurus will be bringing in and working with you on. But overall, for all of us collectively, this is a very beneficial and optimistic transit for those with planets and points in the fixed signs, which is Taurus, Leo, Scorpio and Aquarius. You've had a really challenging last two years. And this is because of the Saturn Uranus squares as well as the Uranus Mars North Node conjunction in 2022. 
just summarize it to say you've had a rough couple of years. This Jupiter in Taurus is coming in to bring a healing energy and resolution and a shift into optimism and abundance to heal all that you've been through over the last two years. So this is really big for so many of us. I have a lot of planets and points in Leo and Scorpio, so I'm right there with you. Now, this Jupiter in Taurus for all of us collectively is a great time to start a business, make financial investments, travel, explore different cultures, travel to sacred sites. You know, Jupiter is the planet of expansion, growth, and abundance. And Taurus is the Earth. Taurus is our bodies and our 3D world. And so traveling to sacred sites, connecting with the land in different parts of the world, what an amazing way to celebrate Jupiter in Taurus. You can travel to gain wisdom. Jupiter is also about wisdom. Learn a new language, take cooking classes, begin studying something that your heart has been longing for. Now with Jupiter and Taurus, Jupiter is going to be connecting us with nature and the natural world. And this is something I've spoken about in other videos. This is really the antidote to all of the over, um, <laughs> how shall I put this? The over influence of technology, right? Like how we're seeing all this crazy stuff coming out with AI and space travel. And really, we just as humans for our health, we need to connect with the earth. We need to come back to the health of our bodies, to the health of our environment around us and really ground into that reality. Because these other things are not real. These other things are fabricated, you know, AI and et cetera, et cetera. We want to use technology for good, okay? We want to use technology for the powerful ways that it can help us and support us. But we don't want to go overboard. And Jupiter and Taurus is going to be welcoming us back into our bodies, back into the Earth. So this whole year is just an amazing time to spend time in nature, reconnect with the natural world around you. As I said here, hike the Appalachian Trail or another trail that's been calling to you, Um really connect in with what's real, the natural world. And as I put here, Jupiter says, this is your big chance. Give it everything you've got because Jupiter in Taurus is really beckoning us toward financial abundance, health in our bodies, bringing back health to our world. And so if you're doing any kind of work personally or professionally that is connected to these themes, really dive in all the way. You're going to be very supported during this time. Another huge energy that we have that started on March 23rd, 2023, and is going to go all the way until March 8th, 2043, okay, so 20 full years, is that Pluto will be in Aquarius. So on a personal level, this this transit, this 20-year transit, is going to help us to truly access our deep, deep power within This transit will bring a new understanding of life itself and the sacredness of all things. Um, Pluto always brings up what is being hidden. Okay, Pluto is the lord of the underworld. So he's going to bring through revelations of, of what has been hidden, particularly in the fields of science and technology, bringing truths to light that we were not aware of before. Um, Pluto 
really revolutionizes us and asks us to question everything so that we can be reborn into a new understanding of ourselves and a new understanding of reality. So there may be times during this 20-year period that it will feel like a death to rebirth journey in your own life. That depends how Pluto and Aquarius is impacting your own chart. Um, but if you have planets or points at zero degrees, uh, I will say zero to three degrees of the fixed signs, this will be a very strong transit for you, um, as well as zero to three degrees of the air signs. So that's Aquarius, Gemini and Libra. That will be a very positive influence for you. Zero to three degrees of the air signs. Um, but this will include initiations, catalyzing new understandings of who you truly are. It's really about birthing ourselves into our true and deep power. Now, in the collective, this is huge. OK, this is a massive shift in consciousness and changes in the social order. Um, so we're truly at the initiation point of a new age in which the mysteries, life, death, and rebirth, and revealing what is hidden will all become increasingly important aspects that will be more honored, revered, and brought into the collective awareness over the next 20 years. And this transit, because Aquarius represents technology and Pluto represents power, this will bring unexpected and uncharted next levels of technology. And really, truly, this is only getting started now. This will be amped up to much higher levels, this this uncharted next levels of technology theme, once Uranus moves into Gemini beginning in July 2025. Now, that will be a topic for a future video, but I just wanted to mention it here. Here's a little bit more about Pluto and Aquarius. So Pluto in Aquarius brings sweeping changes in social order and public rights. Pluto was in Aquarius in 1778 to 1798, okay? And that was the time when we had the ratification of the American Constitution, the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and the publication of the Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was a whole sweeping change, um, bringing up this notion that that women should have equal rights to men, Um and so this is really, really big revolutionary energy. Now, what's going to happen at, at this time with what we have going on in our world right now is that Pluto is going to force a change in our leadership structures. We are carrying right now in our world an old, outdated model of top-down leadership where the people at the top have all the money and power, very few people at the top. And that model is not going to survive this 20-year transit. What we're going to see over this 20 years is really a, a breakdown of that model and new Aquarian leaders will rise that will be carrying values such as egalitarian leadership, where the many are included in the decision making, grassroots energy, again, very community oriented, based in what the community needs. We will see the rise of younger leaders and a more equal distribution of wealth and power than we're seeing right now. So this this sounds very exciting, right? This is wonderful. This is the change that our world needs. And also, this is going to have to occur through a breakdown of the current structure so that this new structure can rise. And this is so much of what's happening in our world on many levels. We are needing to break down the old structures that are not working in order to build the new models. And this is why I'm calling this presentation 
and I'll just go back to my title slide here for a moment. What does it take to build a radical new world? That is really a huge theme of this June through December 2023 astrology. So um, the new leadership model is going to thrive on promoting visionary or radical ideas for our future. And so there are many breakdowns that must occur in order for us to reach the breakthroughs. So this will appear as a death and rebirth of our societal structures. Again, this is a 20-year transit. This is not all happening in 2023, but we're going to see the beginnings of it now, and it will continue to unfold over the next 20 years. So that's Pluto and Aquarius. Now, assisting us with this even more is Saturn and Pisces, which brings a different angle to the shifts that are happening. So Saturn moved into Pisces on March 7th, 2023, and will stay in Pisces until February 13th, 2026. And because this is a three-year transit, I broke this down into what um, degrees of Pisces Saturn will be transiting each year, so you can see where that falls and what houses that impacts in your birth chart. But what's really important to know about this transit is that the esoteric, mystical, and magical will come much more widely into mainstream awareness. This is because Pisces represents all the dimensions, all the oneness, that which we cannot see, but is here and present all around us. And Saturn is the practical, logical world and how reality is structured. And so these two are going to come together. And there's going to be this massive increase in the just global mainstream awareness of energy healing, magical topics, mystery school topics, the esoteric themes, spirituality, um, and so much more. So the next three years are an incredible time to start or expand any project, business, or venture based on these themes I have here. Spirituality, healing, energetics, frequency, ancient wisdom, mystery school teachings, ritual and ceremony, vision quests, rites of passage, plant medicines, astrology, tarot, alchemy, dream work, body work, somatic healing, dance and movement, nature connection, and so on. And that is why I have started this group called the Radical New World Building Group. You can see the details for that at the link in the description field below. So Saturn wants us to build the strongest possible foundation for our work. Saturn represents work. <laughs> All right. And so he often needs to put us through tests and trials in order to strengthen and empower us and ensure that we have what it takes to really carry through with our goals. So this may be a time of spiritual tests to help you get clear on what you truly believe and what you stand for. Um, Saturn can absolutely bring us slowdowns, frustrations, prevent our forward movement when there's a lesson we need to learn. Okay, so if this is happening in your life, there's something that Saturn's trying to show you. There's something that Saturn's trying to teach you if you have planets or points, particularly in the water signs, uh, Pisces, Cancer or Scorpio. All right. Now. Saturn wants to help you learn the lessons so you can move forward. So the best thing that you can do is connect in with Saturn. Ask him to guide you. Ask him to, to show you what he's trying to teach you so that you can learn it more quickly. Because as you pick up on the lessons more quickly, you get to move out of the frustration and the slowdowns. And then you get to receive the gifts of Saturn, which are immense. And these gifts are about 
creating a solid foundation and structure for your highest work and mission. And ultimately, Saturn, he is Kronos. He is father time. He wants us to build our legacy work that will go on even beyond this lifetime. So as we tune into these lessons, we open to our mission, we open to our purpose and to this highest contribution we can be giving while we're here. And this is something that can bring true fulfillment and joy in your life. So this is what Saturn wants to help us with. So this is an amazing time the next three years to start a business based on spirituality, healing, energetics, etc. Create new structures to support your spiritual practice. Build your dreams into concrete reality. That's such a wonderful tagline for Saturn and Pisces. Build your dreams into concrete reality. And find opportunities where dreams, imagination, and vision can challenge outdated modern world structures or concepts. So if this is speaking to you, Saturn and Pisces is going to be very, very helpful for you on your path. Here's another energy that we are in right now that has really just been ramping up throughout May and is getting pretty strong. So this is Pluto, the planet Pluto, which is in the uh, hovering right around zero degrees of Aquarius for the next several months. We'll be moving just slightly back into Capricorn, but generally around zero degrees of Aquarius is square to the nodes, which are hovering around zero degrees of Taurus and Scorpio during this time. And so this will be strongest from May through October of this year. And this is one of the biggest astrological energies we'll be working with throughout the year. So this is high pressure, tension, evolution, and transformation. Remember that Pluto is the god of the underworld. He wants to transform us. He wants us to go through an initiatory process that feels like a death, but is truly a shedding of that which is no longer working and bringing that which is hidden out into the light so that we can be reborn into our true and deep power. And so this brings an intensification of the energies, especially in late July and throughout August when the square is most strong. Um, Things are being forced to change so that we can build what is new, as I shared about when I spoke about Pluto in Aquarius. So a big part of this is going to be about questioning and challenges to the existing authority systems and structures, breakdowns of authority. Pluto will force a change to our leadership models over the next 20 years. And Pluto squaring the nodes now in 2023 is giving us a first taste of how this will occur. So we may see this in the collective as revealing of corruption information, secrets, dishonesty coming out into the light, being revealed um, things the authorities have tried to keep hidden, all of this coming out and being revealed. There may be, um, yeah, big information coming out that we weren't expecting. And as we navigate this, we need to keep in mind that this is bringing through an entirely new values system and leadership system based in the Aquarian ideals. It is revealing to us a dramatic beginning to all of the changes that Pluto wants to implement over the next 20 years. So we we need to hang on to our hats for this. We need to hang on for the ride and really trust that this is all happening for a reason. This is all happening for our highest evolution and really to bring through new leadership models that will be much more aligned with our true values. 
This is a wonderful quote from astrologer Pam Gregory. She says, and this is particularly when she was speaking about the Pluto square, the nodes transit. She said, don't focus on what's ending. Focus on all that's beginning anew. This time is a doorway to a multidimensionality that we have never experienced in our lifetimes. So this is what we want to focus on. This is what we want to remember when Pluto squaring the nodes. Again, particularly strong in late July and throughout August. And Uranus and Pluto are working significantly with us during this time, during this year. Um, Uranus asks us, what is the act of chaos that would shift and change all of your current structures? And do you dare to take action on it? Um, Uranus is here for our liberation and freedom. And Pluto says, you are becoming the phoenix. You will rise from your own ashes. I will initiate you into your own true and deep power. The more you can surrender, the easier it will be. It's really helpful to connect in with the energy and like the personality of these planets so we can better understand what they're trying to get through to us. You know, some of these some of these transits we've been through in the last few years have really felt just like hard knocks to the head, you know. And so it is big energy we're working with. This is huge energy. This is like nothing we've experienced in our lifetimes, the way the transits are working with us right now. Um, the most recent energy that is similar to to this was in the late 60s and early 70s. That was when Pluto and Uranus had a grand conjunction in Virgo. And so it's interesting because so much was awakened, revolutionary energy, complete transformation of of the social orders on some levels at that time. But then it fizzled out and we are now being called to bring that energy back in, but at a much higher level, a much higher consciousness level as Pluto and Uranus are working with us so strongly again. Now I include this slide. This is a little bit eye boggling. So don't worry about this. We're not going to go over every detail, but I just wanted to have this in the slideshow. I will post the slideshow in the description field below so you can come back to it. This just tells where each planet is going to be moving to from June 1st to December 31st, 2023, in case you want to come back and see where these fall in your chart. So let's move into the month forecasts. Yay. Um, so June 2023 have some background noise here. Background noise, sorry about that. So June 2023 is going to be a time of opportunity and insights. There's some really beautiful energy coming our way in June 2023. So we have Jupiter in Taurus, as I mentioned earlier, and Jupiter is going to conjunct the North Node at three degrees of Taurus, from May 30th to June 3rd. This is a very wonderful transit. This is a time of opportunity. This is a time to dream big. Okay, Jupiter is expansion, growth, and abundance, and the North Node is our future. So plan for the future during this time. Really make space for the insights about what you need to do going forward. What are the big plans for this year and next year? Let those come through during this time. But don't jump right into action, okay? Taurus is a slower-moving energy, and Jupiter in Taurus with the North Node is, how can we approach our future in a little bit more calm of a way that's going to be really solid, but 
not leaping in too fast at this time. There will be time to leap in fast, and I'll tell you when that's coming, especially in early 2024. But right now, we want to take time to rest, ground, and center before putting those plans into action. So just let yourself receive the insights, receive the the uh, new forms of abundance that are wanting to make themselves evident to you. Um, and Jupiter is really quite close to the North Node all throughout June. So while this transit is exact in the first few days of June, that energy continues throughout the month, and it's really wonderful. And we're going to have a full moon in Sagittarius, which will be on June 3rd or 4th, depending on your time zone. The sun will be at 13 degrees of Gemini. The moon will be at 13 degrees of Sagittarius. So take a look and see where are the sun and moon in your chart? What houses are they in? These are the themes that this full moon will bring for you. And so in this full moon, we'll have Pluto opposite Venus asking us, what are your most deeply held values? Are you being true to them? And how can you strengthen the use of your own power? Now, these are important questions working with Venus that we can consider before we move into the Venus retrograde that will be happening in the middle of the the summer months in the northern hemisphere. Um, So beginning to work with Venus now will be really powerful. Venus represents our values, our integrity. Um, She represents love and beauty and embodiment. And, And so really Pluto working with Venus from both of them, they're bringing us into our power and a new perception of who we are as the most powerful version of ourselves. So allow those insights to begin opening up around this time. Um, Mercury will be conjunct Uranus for this full moon. So this is about rapid new ideas coming in. And this is amazing with Jupiter conjunct the North Node and Mercury conjunct Taurus at the same time. Huge insights can come in, new revelations, new understandings of where your future is meant to go. Um, this is a rapid pace of mental activity, making radical new plans. This will include a grand fixed cross involving Venus at 28 degrees of Cancer. Now, we had a grand fixed cross on the uh, new moon in Taurus on May 19th, where Mars was involved in the fixed cross. This time, and that was a more difficult energy, this time it will be Venus involved, and Venus will be opposing Pluto. Um, and so this is a more flowing energy, and again, it's asking us to start working with Venus in advance of the Venus retrograde. So the moon will be trine Mars and black moon Lilith. So this is a time to strengthen your resolve and your inner courage and power. Stand up for what you believe in. So this is a really good, you know, like it's with all the Venus activity, it is heart opening. And with the Mercury and Uranus, it's also mind opening. So this is really a time to let those insights flow in. And June, I really see this as a time to recover and ground after the very intense energies of May and even back into April 2023. So connect with all the, these Taurus energies, Jupiter in Taurus, uh, Mercury and Uranus will be in Taurus, the North Node in Taurus. So connect with the Earth, take long walks in nature, hug your loved ones, swim in the ocean, read a book in the sun. Do calming and soothing things that will connect you back with reality, back with your body back with the earth 
allow your mind and body to recalibrate. And if you do and when you do, you will receive an inspiring influx of new ideas and plans for the future. Then we're going to have a new moon in Gemini on June 18th, where the sun and moon will both be at 26 degrees of Gemini. So take a look at your own chart, see where that falls in your chart, and if you have any planets or points near this new moon. Now, the new moon is always the time of new beginnings. When the sun and moon come together, it begins a new cycle in our cosmos and also within ourselves. So the new moons are when you want to set your intentions. So this will be an amazing time, this new moon in Gemini, to take the insights that you got from the full moon time and when Jupiter was conjunct the North Node, and then really write out your intentions, really draw up your plans for the future, and plant them in some powerful way. Having ritual or ceremony at this new moon in Gemini would be wonderful. We have the sun and moon working with Neptune, inviting us to use our imagination about how we are creating our new and vibrant and radiant future. And we have Jupiter in the North Node sextile Saturn, which is really supportive. And so during this time, again, you're going to continue receiving insights. And this will be, with Saturn involved, very practical insights. How to structure your life to support the future you've been longing to build. So I invite you to do a lot of writing <laughs> at this new moon in Gemini. Um, Gemini is about writing and communication. So write down your plan now. There are some big and a bit more challenging energies coming in the coming months. So write down your plan now. Write down this highest consciousness information that's flowing through during the month of June. So your plan will be clear once you come through the, the you know, the ups and downs of the rest of the year and you're ready to take action. We will also have Venus and Mars both in Leo with Black Moon Lilith. So they'll be asking us, what are you fighting for? And what are you fighting against? And is this the best use of your energy? Now, then we'll have the solstice on June 21st. Okay, so what a wonderful combination to have the new moon in Gemini, just three degrees away from the solstice. This is an incredibly powerful time for writing down your plans and setting your intentions and goals for the next half year ahead. And I do want to note that Venus and Mars almost have a conjunction. They're three degrees away from a, from Venus and Mars having a conjunction because Venus will be at 20 degrees of Leo and Mars will be at 23 degrees of Leo on June 30th. But they don't quite meet because Venus starts to slow down. She's about to turn retrograde and Mars speeds ahead. So this is interesting. It's an almost conjunction. Um, so we may have themes coming up around the end of June about the masculine and feminine, about our relationships. And again, this is all a prelude to the Venus retrograde that is coming up soon. Now, I want to make a note that we have a huge astrological event happening in July, something that only happens every one and a half years. And this is the nodes and eclipses are moving from Taurus and Scorpio, where they have been happening for the last year and a half since January 2022, into Aries and Libra. And this is a huge shift in our collective energetics. Um, this happens exact on July 17th. The North Node shifts from Taurus to Aries and the South Node shifts from Scorpio to Libra. Where the eclipses are happening and where the nodes of the moon are located 
is the focal point for transformation in our lives. So this focal point for transformation is moving from Taurus and Scorpio to Aries and Libra. So you definitely want to look at your charts and see what houses are Aries and Libra for you so that you can see the themes for that you'll be working with over the next year and a half and where the points of transformation will be coming in. So here's a little more information to help you understand what all of this means. The North Node represents our future. And the North Node and the South Node are calculations. These are not like a planet, but they are calculations based on the location of the moon in the sky. And they have 19-year cycles. Okay, it's 18 and a half to 19-year cycles. So every 19 years, they come back to the same place. So you can look at what was happening for you 18 to 19 years ago. And those same themes are going to come around again now at this time. So the North Node um, is the direction our soul is pulling us toward in this lifetime so that we can live our highest calling and our fullest life. And the North Node feels new. It feels outside of our comfort zone. Um, it's a lifelong journey to reach our North Node calling. And with that, I'm talking specifically about the North Node in your chart. But this is also, this is the collective North Node that we're talking about here as far as moving into Aries and Libra. So the North Node indicates what we are moving toward, what we want to bring into our lives. And it is in your birth chart, it is an indicator of purpose. Now the South Node is our past. So this is about past lives, where we have come from. And this is what feels familiar and comfortable to us. Even if it carries some pain, it feels familiar. So this does include pain, karma, and trauma that we've been carrying and we need to clear, as well as the gifts, wisdom, talents, and modalities that we've learned in previous lifetimes and that we bring as gifts into this lifetime. So it has a positive and a negative component, but it all is, it's, it's all of our past. Now this is our comfort zone. It's where we've been before. So it feels familiar to us. Um, but it includes a lot of what we need to let go of in order to live more fully, in order to live with peace and joy. So it includes old patterns, addictions, pain, trauma. Um, so where the South Node travels, and the South Node is moving into Libra here in, in July, it indicates where we're individually and collectively healing because we're releasing and clearing old harmful patterns from the past along the themes of that zodiac sign. So with the North Node moving into Aries, we want to look at what does Aries mean? Aries is courage, leadership, personal power, independence. It's about taking pride in our own power and really claiming that, like really passionately claiming it, not concerned with what others might think or say. And so this is our ability to move forward, to leap ahead, to take action, to clear a new path forward. It's very much a pioneer or a warrior energy like forging the new path, fighting for what we need. Um, it brings up it, themes of courage, strength, and boldness, and passion, and what lights us up. On the negative side, Aries can be confrontational or too aggressive. It's like too much of that warrior energy, too much not caring what other people think, right? So we want to find a good balance. So with the North Node moving into Aries, we're going to be called to bring these qualities, especially courage, strength, and boldness, into how we're co-creating our collective future. So courage and strength will be our allies. 
we will really be called with the Aries North Node to step into our power in a very big way. So we're getting that message from Pluto. We're also getting that message from the North Node in Aries. We'll be asked to stay true to our convictions, to stand strong and take a stand for what we truly need. And that's on a personal level as well as collectively, okay? Not giving in to what others say we need or what others are asking and draining our energy, but like, what do I need right now? And getting really clear on that. And we'll be learning new levels of mastery around how to claim our power and leadership and how our passion points us toward the future we've always wanted. Then let's talk about the South Node moving into Libra. Libra is the scales. Libra represents natural order and cosmic law. In the Egyptian mythology, this is the the, uh, goddess Ma'at and the principles of Ma'at, natural order and cosmic law, balance and harmony, the scales of justice. And so Libra also reveals where the imbalances are so we can heal or correct them. People who have a strong Libra energy can often be the mediator, the peacemaker, the diplomat, because they can see both sides of every argument and they can really help guide people to the, the middle point that had, that carries the balance and harmony. Libra is about relationships, collaboration and teamwork, beautiful things, beautiful experiences and social grace. On the negative side, Libra can be indecisive and avoid conflict. It can be overgiving, compromising of one's own needs. See, that's the opposite of Aries, where we put our own needs first. Libra puts other people's needs first, right? So are we balanced? This is going to be a big question with the North and South node in Aries and Libra. Are we giving too much to others? Are we taking too much for ourselves? How can we find the proper balance at the center of of that polarity? Um, with the South Node in Libra, we're going to be called to heal the imbalances, heal where things are out of harmony so we can return to a state of right relationship, reciprocity, and alignment with the natural order. Now, this is really massive for us on a collective level because humanity, uh, we are living so severely out of alignment. We are not in right relationship to the earth. We are not in right relationship to one another on a, you know, massive collective scale with all the violence, with all the war. This is not ma'at. This is not in balance. We are not in right relationship with life itself. So this South Node in Libra, I believe, is going to bring a huge examination of what needs to change personally and collectively to bring that balance back. Um, on a personal, just a more personal note, we will need to release old patterns of overgiving, weakness, indecisiveness, and catering to others, really moving toward that Aries North Node of claiming our power, regardless of what anyone thinks, I know this is right and I'm going for it, okay? So these are some big themes, and you can see how this is, this is really powerful work we're going to be doing with the nodes in Aries and Libra. Okay. So let's talk more about July. <laughs> so July is really portals to new realities. Um, this is a this is going to be a really powerful time. So we will have Mercury conjunct the Sun in Cancer on July first. This is a time for big new mental insights to come through, big new realizations and understandings. I'm going to have a whole separate slide about Venus retrograde. That's going to start on July 22nd and go all the way until September 3rd. Um, but we need to know sh- that Venus is already slowing down significantly in early July as she's about to change direction. 
retrogrades, just in case you are not um, familiar with the just the logistics of that. This is based on our view from the Earth. And and in our view of the sky from the Earth, there are certain times when planets appear to be changing direction, moving backward rather than forward. Normally, planets are following the arc of the ecliptic, the path of the sun across the sky in a forward movement. The sun is always going into forward movement. But sometimes the planets, because of how their orbits are seen from the Earth, a planet will go forward and then for a little while it will go backward and then it will go forward again. So that time when it's going backward is the retrograde. Again, planets don't change direction in their actual orbit around the sun, but from the Earth it appears that they're moving backward for a period of time. Now, also important in July 2023, um, and really July, August, and September, is that Jupiter and Uranus are getting very close to each other in Taurus. They'll be within 10 degrees or less of one another throughout all three of these months, July, August, and September. So this is an energy that is really carrying us through these months, bringing an expanded sense of surprises, new information, revelations, revolution and rebellion, and a sense of excitement and optimism about the unexpected. Um, Uranus brings surprises. Uranus is here to liberate us, as I mentioned, uh, really standing for our liberation and freedom. And Jupiter is about our growth, our wisdom, our abundance, our sense of wealth, and our sense of optimism. So these are a beautiful combination of energies and can bring us some new exciting things that we never saw coming, but that will be very abundant and helpful and and blessings for us. So we have a full moon in Capricorn on July 3rd, where the sun will be at 11 degrees of Cancer. The moon is at 11 degrees of Capricorn. So as always, with new moons and full moons, look to see where does that fall in your birth chart. The sun is with Mercury, so this is the Mercury Kazemi, still very strong. Um, and Uranus will be square. Now, this is really big, um, and, and this is a prelude to the Venus retrograde. Uranus will be squaring all three of these, Mars, Venus, and Black Moon Lilith, all at one time. Okay, so with Venus kind of at the center of this, this and and with Black Moon Lilith being the rebellious and revolutionary feminine, um, we want to really pay attention to what happens on this day because it's going to give you clues about what you'll be learning more in depth from the Venus retrograde, July 22nd to September 3rd. And with Black Moon Lilith in there, this has a real energy of like, I am not going to put up with the status quo anymore. Here is how I'm going to be claiming my freedom. And Venus wants that for us, too. Okay, so Venus and the Black Moon are going to be working together here to help us increase our feminine power. So what kind, what parts of you on the the feminine side are you looking to increase your power? Are you looking to claim your power? And this can be related to movement and true embodiment of your gifts, um, speaking more clearly um, from a grounded, receptive, inner feminine sense of who you are, rather than the Mars, like warrior, fighting, confronting. This is a more... Uh, coming from our deep inner wisdom, right? A more feminine approach, allowing ourselves to receive the insights and just sitting in our power, okay? But even just, this is um, like the Egyptian goddess Mut. She is the version of Sekhmet, the lioness that is sitting in her power. She is so powerful that just by sitting and holding that power, 
she can direct what is happening in the world, right? So how can we claim that in our lives? And so this is just the beginning, just opening up to those energies here at this full moon in Capricorn. Now, the moon at this full moon will be trying Jupiter and sextile Saturn, very harmonious for our emotions, a calming energy, a future-oriented energy. And so this is this is amplifying this theme of what do we need from the feminine part of ourselves, right? How can we be seating in our power, feeling calm and peaceful, and also knowing how deep our power truly is? Um and the Jupiter-Saturn sextile is continuing after this, too. So keep writing down your plans and insights for the future. Jupiter and Saturn are really favorably working with us at this time. As we continue to move through July, the nodes will move from Taurus and Scorpio to Aries and Libra on July 17th, as I just explained. And Pluto is exactly square the nodes So Pluto will be at 28 and 29 degrees of Capricorn. The nodes will be at 28 and 29 degrees of Aries and Libra from July 18th to August 4th. So that is that energy of the the, um, Pluto bringing that massive sweeping changes to our social order, to our political order, these kinds of things. I think something really big is going to happen during this time that will begin the shift that Pluto is wanting for us over the next 20 years. We'll see. We'll see how that happens. It can feel tense. It can feel difficult on a personal level as well. Then also on July 17th, the same day that the nodes change signs, we will have a new moon in Cancer. So this is a powerful new beginning energy. A lot is happening at that time. The sun and moon will be together at 24 degrees of Cancer. See where that falls in your in your chart. Do you have any planets or points around 24, maybe let's say from 21 to 27 degrees of cancer. This will be a really important new moon for you, if so. Now, this new moon is opposite Pluto. And this is continuing this grand cross that we have, where we have Pluto opposite the sun and moon, and then the nodes are square to those. Okay, so this begins to bring in a heaviness and an intensity that we're going to continue to feel for the next few months. Um, and this is something that we're going to need to work with. This is, I, I feel so strongly at this time that we are in this mystery school training program. Okay. We can't, <laughs> there are not real mystery schools like they were in, there were in ancient Egypt and other ancient civilizations at this time. And so it's like our lives, our daily reality is bringing us through a mystery school with deep initiations. And Pluto is the one bringing those initiations to a grand extent. So we want to really ground and center. We want to really focus on the beauty. And I have a little more about that later in the slideshow here. Um, and know that this heaviness and intensity is not going to last forever, but it, it might last for a few months. So really focus in on what's beautiful in your life. Focus in on what brings you joy. And we're going to get through this together. Now, the sun and moon sextile Uranus is a very beautiful energy. Okay, this is bringing bright insights. We can set our intentions knowing that pleasant surprises are possible on this new moon. And this is so interesting. This is this, um, the, the polarities coexisting, okay, at this time. We're going to be entering into a time, particularly July and August of this year, where we're going to see 
some really challenging heaviness, okay, alongside brightness and light and miracles breaking through. And we're going to need to hold both of those extremes. We're going to need to be able to sit with both of those polarities. This is part of the mystery school training to hold all of it, to, to know that we are living the fullest life at this time. And some of that is really hard and some of it is really magical and, and to just be with all of it. Okay. To accept all of it as part of our reality. And what's really important is to not resist it. When we resist the difficult pieces, that's where we can go into anxiety and panic and negative emotions. We want to really keep our hearts light. We want to keep our, our minds focused on what we love and what is beautiful and know that we're holding. We are, we are powerful beings who are here because we can hold all of this, right? And so it's, it's a very powerful time to be opening into our true and deep power and our ability to receive all of it. So pleasant surprises can happen on this new moon, sun and moon sextile Uranus. Um, we also have Mars opposing Saturn and Jupiter square Mercury in Leo. So these are asking us to challenge the structure of our lives. And I do think there could be protests or revolts or something happening in the collective that is like challenging the structure. So big, big energies here for this new moon in Cancer. Um, we will have um, Venus retrograde conjunct Mercury in Leo on July 27th. This is a really interesting um, conjunction. So this is going to be inspiring us to speak from the heart. Venus represents the heart. Mercury represents speech and communications. So how can we speak from the heart? And how can we reevaluate our values and what we really need and make new agreements to form stronger relationships going forward? So this will be a day to really anchor into your values and what do you most need and how can you communicate that from the heart? Now, I welcome you to put in the chat, how is this all moving for you? What are your thoughts? What have you been experiencing so far in 2023? And what are you excited about for the rest of 2023? And what is really moving you at this time? Go ahead and put that in the chat. I would love to know. So let's continue on. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you need to take breaks and come back to this, I know it's a lot of information, but I wanted you to have it all in one place. I wanted to deliver it all together so that you can have this as a resource for the rest of the year so that you can keep coming back to this whenever you need to check in on what energies are happening, what energies are moving. Okay, so Venus retrograde in Leo. This is a really big transit. Venus goes retrograde about every 18 months, okay, about every one and a half years. So the dates of this retrograde are from July 22nd to September 3rd, and the degrees that it will be impacting in the zodiac is from 28 degrees of Leo to 12 degrees of Leo. Now that's going backwards because Venus is going backwards. So look and see what do you have between 12 to 28 degrees of Leo and in your own chart, and any planets or points there, she will be working with you very clearly and very specifically. So Leo represents our creative expression, confidence, our fierceness, our heart energy, boldness and courage, and our inner passions and fire. 
And Venus is the planet of love, beauty, relationships, our values and ideals, self-care and creativity. Also our integrity, right? Like what do we hold firmly as our strongest values? So with Venus retrograde in Leo, we're going to be asking ourselves a lot of questions such as, how can I express myself more fully? How can I share my creativity more widely? Or do I need to be acting more creatively? Do I need to be doing more creative pursuits? Also, where do I need to develop more courage or act more boldly? And what am I truly passionate about? And how can I bring more of that into my life? And you may want to write these questions down in your journal and or your notebook and just really ponder these over the upcoming months, July 22nd to September 3rd, and really note what insights come through, what life events are happening to bring your attention to these themes, um, because this is how we're being asked to up-level and evolve during this time of this Venus retrograde. It's really here for our benefit. It's here for our evolution. So embrace this, work with it, ask yourself these questions again and again during this time and see how the answers shift and change and see what life events are are teaching you about all of this. Venus will be generally in a square to Uranus in Taurus throughout much of this transit. So this will bring unexpected events that could challenge the the stability of relationships. Um, And this transit, it's ultimately meant to liberate us from old relationship patterns So we can be happier and more true to ourselves. So it doesn't have to be an ending of a relationship, but maybe it's a big shift in the way that those of you, the partners are relating to each other or a shift in the way that you're understanding what your future life is meant to be together so that you can both be happier and more true to yourselves. Now, Venus retrograde often brings calls and texts from previous partners, okay, or it may bring up a longing for a past relationship. So be really careful before taking action on these kinds of impulses. Venus retrograde is really not the best time to rekindle an old flame. It's um, it's not the best time to begin a new relationship. It's really a time to release the old around relationships and make room for the new. But it's the thing is that these old relationships are coming back into our awareness so that we can see what wasn't working so that we can really clear out all of that old energy and decide and choose powerfully what we want in relationship going forward. All right. Um, Look in your chart to see what house Leo is for you. Venus will be significantly working with you on the themes of that house from July 22nd to September 3rd. And I just want to remind you that I strongly recommend getting this free gift. Again, look in the description field below to see uh, and click on that link. But if you are hearing about these transits and these planetary movements and wanting to know what does this mean for me, this chart reading guide is really going to be the key to that. So go ahead and claim that guide. There's so much goodness there and it's completely free for you. So I hope you will enjoy that. Okay. Let's look at August 2023 and the overarching energies of this month are inviting us to move into the heart. So we have a full moon in Aquarius and we actually have two full moons this month, August 1st and August 31st and a new moon in between them, of course. Uh, Very exciting. So a full moon in Aquarius on August 1st 
The sun will be at nine degrees of Leo. The moon will be at nine degrees of Aquarius. Now, in this full moon, the moon is pretty close to Pluto, um, about 10, 11 degrees away from Pluto. So this can feel like an initiation. It can feel uncomfortable bringing hidden secrets or shadows out into the light. And Saturn is opposite Mercury. Now, this can bring challenges and disruptions to our communications. That could be on a large collective scale or it could be just personally. Um, We may find that our thought patterns are disrupted or it's hard. It may feel like brain fog, like we can't just really pull our thoughts together easily at this time. We might have dark or difficult thoughts. So if that's happening for you, if you're having depression, if you're having dark or challenging thoughts, it's really important to reach out to others and seek support if you need it. We will also have Venus retrograde conjunct the black moon Lilith. So this is the fierce feminine taking a stand for her most deeply held values. But how you might feel this personally is really realizing all the things that are not working for you in your life, particularly in your relationships. So it can feel very difficult. This full moon is going to be a pretty challenging one. And this is why, this is part of the reason why I'm inviting you to move into the heart. Because there are things happening here that are like the deep moving, shifting tectonic plates within us that our minds just cannot comprehend. Okay. And instead of trying to address this from a mind or a logical perspective, we need to move into the heart. We need to see what is it that these cosmic energies are trying to communicate to us? How are they trying to help us evolve? And what does our inner wisdom and our intuition say about that? Um, our hearts can handle these energies even when our minds cannot. So really move into the heart to move through this and know it is all happening for your highest evolution. Um, Venus will can, will square Uranus from August 7th to the 16th. This is a really big part of the Venus retrograde that is going to bring up important realizations. Okay. And new understanding, new understandings for us about liberation from old patterns of relationships. So if we pay attention to what is being brought up, really this whole first half of August, from the full moon on August 1st through the Venus and Uranus square, August 7th to the 16th, if we're really tuning in, really asking ourselves, what are the important messages coming through? What is being brought up for me to be to see? We can be set free from outdated modes of how we thought we were supposed to express ourselves or how we thought we were supposed to be in relationship and open to a completely new way of expression or new way of relating that is going to feel like freedom itself. Right. This is the incredible potential here. Really important. And sun, the sun is conjunct Venus retrograde on August 13th. So this will bring major revelations about how we're meant to express ourselves creatively. And you can ask yourself questions like, what has been longing to be expressed from my heart that I haven't let it come through? Or what is the fire burning within me that I haven't given enough space or air so it can truly shine? These are incredible questions to journal on during this time. And I strongly recommend that you do so. Journaling will be very, very powerful all throughout August and July, August and September of this year. 
Now, continuing through August, we want to remember that Jupiter and Uranus continue to be co-present July, August, and September, all three of those months, uh, Jupiter and Uranus will be within 10 degrees or less of one another. So this brings this expanded sense of surprises, new information, revelations, and a sense of excitement and optimism about the unexpected. This is an underlying energy that's supporting us through all of these transits with Venus and the squares and Pluto and everything. Um, It's going to be helping and supporting us and allowing us to lift our energy back up again. Now, for the new moon in Leo on August 16th, this is a powerful new moon, once again, to set intentions, to plant your new seeds. So the sun moon, sun and moon will be together at 23 degrees of Leo. The new moon will be conjunct black moon Lilith. So the sun and moon are both conjunct black moon Lilith. This is really about that feminine energy of rebellion and revolution within ourselves. And we have a huge square happening here. Venus, the sun and moon, and Lilith are all square to Jupiter and Uranus. Now, this is a big square. This is a lot of tension. This is a lot of pressure. And what's happening here is that we're trying to become, and this is like, again, the tectonic plates within us are shifting so that we can become liberated from our old patterns so we can more fully embody our highest integrity and values in all that we do but it can feel very uncomfortable. Really trust this process. This is an initiation. And again, come into the heart. The mind cannot handle all of this. It's too much for the mind. The mind's going to feel overloaded. The mind's going to feel anxious. Don't listen to that, okay? Don't fall into your thoughts. Drop into your heart. Trust what's happening. Trust the discomfort. It's showing you important things you need to know so that you can be liberated. And at the same time, Mars is approaching in opposition to Neptune. Um, and that's about the shattering of illusions, right? So this is a really important thing that you could be journaling on at this time. What have I thought was true, but may not actually be true? Do I have illusions about why this relationship needs to work? Do I have illusions about um, needing to stay in a career that's really just like drowning my soul? Right. Do I have am I carrying any illusions that are leading me down the wrong path? And when we clear and release ourselves from those illusions, then we can truly be free. It can be really hard to look at. It can be really hard to acknowledge that that's an illusion. But again, this is all for our liberation. So how can that free you and allow you to be truly your your highest expressed and and most freedom filled self? Now we're going to have a Mercury going retrograde also in August, and I will have those details on an upcoming slide. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, though, I want to bring in um, these notes about the full moon in Pisces on August 30th and 31st. This is going to bring a welcome moment of calming and relief. So we've been through some really intense stuff for most of August here, um, including the Pluto squaring the nodes at the beginning of the month and then these Pretty challenging full moon and new moon. But the full moon in Pisces is going to be a time where we feel calming and relief once again. We can take a break. We can rest, recharge, integrate what we've been learning and ground and center. So the sun and moon, the sun will be at seven degrees of Virgo. The moon will be at seven degrees of Pisces. 
the moon will be conjunct Saturn in Pisces, highlighting the emergence of the mystical, spiritual, and esoteric into our collective mainstream consciousness. And this chart, if you look at it, it's a kite formation, which means we have a lot of trines and sextiles. The kite is pointing at Neptune and Pisces. Okay, so trines and sextiles are very positive, very favorable. This is a really favorable uh, full moon energy. And huge potentials and opportunities are now becoming available to us if we can properly and respectfully use the resources of our dreams, intuition, and imagination, which is represented by Neptune and also by Pisces, and adopt a feminine approach of receptivity, which is a big thing that Venus has been communicating to us throughout her retrograde. We don't want to be using the Mars Aries energy of using force to push ahead during this time. We want to really surrender. We want to really drop into our dreams, intuition, and imagination, and let that be the calming and relief for your nervous system that you need. Um, the opposition between Mars and Neptune is ending. Okay, it's still it's still there. Okay, it's, there's still a little bit of tension from that, but we're on the other side of it, which means we can see it from a new perspective. So, questions to journal on at this time would be. How can we stay true? How can I stay true to my ideals and values? Right. Especially based on what you learn from the new moon in Leo on August 16th, when Mars and Neptune were really exact in their opposition. And at this time, both Venus and Mercury are retrograde. So things can feel like they're just not able to move forward. You don't want to take big leaps now. You want to wait. You want to be learning. Recalibrate, assess the situation carefully before you take any action. This is not a time for a big leap ahead. Um, when the planets are moving retrograde, it's harder for us to get things going in a forward motion. All right. So really let this be a calming time, a receiving time, a resting and recharging time and just enjoy it for what it is. You know, just really let yourself rest in that. Okay, so we have Mercury retrograde from August 23rd to September 14th. This will be from 21 degrees of Virgo to 8 degrees of Virgo. So look at your chart and see what you have between 8 and 21 degrees of Virgo. That's where Mercury will be particularly working with you. And we want to note that both Mercury and Venus will be retrograde from August 23rd to September 3rd. So retrogrades and particularly Mercury retrogrades are about the idea that we need to, we need to rethink every once in a while. We need to rework. We need to recalibrate. We need to redo all of those RE words, right? We're asked to evaluate, to reconsider how things have been going so that we can make any needed changes and move forward in a new way after the retrograde. So with both Mercury and Venus retrograde at the same time, we're being asked to rethink a lot of aspects of our lives. (laughs) Okay, so with this Mercury retrograde in Virgo, some of the themes that we will need to rethink, rework, and recalibrate are around health, daily habits, and overall well-being, grounding, how can we stay more ground and centered, how can we spend more time in nature to improve our health, How are we handling stress and finding new ways to calm the mind and nervous system? After moving through that first half of August, we're going to really need to be calming the the nervous system. So 
This is a big learning that I think will be happening for all of us at this time. Um, anywhere we've been, we've been overly critical or judgmental will could be brought up into our awareness or correction. Um, we'll be asked to make more space for ritual and ceremony in our lives if that's appropriate for us. Increasing our connection with the earth and the sacredness of life. That's Virgo, very strongly, the earth and the sacredness of life. Stepping into our role as the priest or priestess in our own lives. And also claiming a leadership role and sharing our voice in a way that benefits the earth and all beings. These are the themes that are likely to come up. These are good things to be journaling around, whichever of these themes especially resonate for you during this time. I do want to note that all the Mercury retrogrades in 2023 will be happening in Earth signs. We already had a Mercury retrograde in Taurus in April and May. This one will be in Virgo, August and September. We'll have another one that begins in Capricorn later in the year. Um, so we're really being called to connect with the Earth, to connect with our body and our 3D reality and nature throughout all of these Mercury retrogrades, as well as Jupiter and Taurus, same kind of themes. Um, and Jupiter will be retrograde in Taurus, so that's another Earth sign uh, retrograde. This is a huge theme for us. And I'll just say um, that there's this idea that I've been sharing in some of these videos about our organic sovereignty. Okay, so as we're talking about AI and other technology that's going to be coming in, again, like with Pluto and Aquarius and then Uranus moving into Gemini in 2025, This is unprecedented levels of technology. And I think we're being asked with these retrogrades all happening in Earth signs with all of the activity in Taurus over these years, um, Jupiter in Taurus, particularly in 2023, for example. We're being asked to claim our organic sovereignty. And this is recognizing our own bodies and the Earth and organic life forms as the highest technology, really honoring that, really holding that sacred and not letting these other, um, let's see, what's a good word, um, I, you know, human invented, more unnatural forms of technology to take over, right? Not letting those take over, really coming back to ourselves and life itself and the earth herself as the highest technology of all and holding those in a sovereign way. Okay. So this includes taking really good care of our bodies. And this is something that Mercury retrograde in Virgo is absolutely going to ask us to do because Virgo is very much how about how our daily habits create our level of health. You know, are we getting exercise? Are we taking, you know, supplements that we need? Are we eating healthy foods? And how does that contribute to our health? Also, are we spending time in nature? You know, all the things that we know we need to do. So coming back to this idea of strengthening the body, strengthening our connection to the natural world around us. I just think this theme is being driven home in so many different ways over 2023 and also throughout 2024 as well. Um, it's very powerful. It's something we really want to focus on just holding sacred our organic sovereignty. So I welcome you to reflect on that and feel into the importance of that for you. Okay, now September into the liminal realms we go. 
So we have some powerful Neptunian energy coming in that's really going to invite us into a space of imagination and visionary insight. Now, we're beginning the month with seven planets retrograde. Mercury, Venus, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and Chiron are all retrograde at this point. And Jupiter will turn retrograde on September 4th. Now, that's just after Venus turns direct on September 3rd. So we stay with seven planets direct overall. Um, but this is a lot of backwards motion. So we're not meant to be taking giant, you know, action steps or, or external, um, you know, new new steps forward at this time. We're really meant to be more reflective. We're meant to be going within and into the liminal realms in this case. Now, September 20 or sorry, September 8th, Jupiter will be trying the sun in Virgo. So Jupiter and Taurus trying the sun in Virgo. This is a beautiful energy that brings self-confidence, good news, amplification of abundance in your life. And then we're going to move into the new moon in Virgo, which will be on September 14th or 15th, depending on your time zone. For this new moon, the sun and moon will be together at 21 degrees of Virgo. Check and see where that falls in your chart. Again, remember, always the new moons are for planting seeds, setting new intentions. The sun and moon are trying to Uranus in Taurus. So this is, again, very strong Earth energy. And this is at a wide angle, but it it is a, a wide grand Earth trine with Pluto. So very powerful and very positive trines and especially a grand Earth trine. So really favorable, helpful energy. Now, we have another kite in the chart, and this is again pointing at Neptune. This time it's with the sun and moon opposing Neptune. So we may not be able to tell what's illusion and what is reality at this time. We will be invited to turn to the Earth, new moon in Virgo, Earth Earth sign Virgo, and body or movement practices to ground and center. And again, this is an amazing time to be um, doing ceremonial work, ritual work to really be allowing yourself to go into the liminal realms, gather the wisdom there. Okay. This is again, not a strong, just mental linear mind time. This is a liminal realm time. Venus is moving direct. Once again, that will bring some relief. We will have some resolutions or new understandings about all that we were learning during the Venus retrograde from July 22nd to September 3rd. And Mercury just is turning direct at this time. September 14th, Mercury turned direct. So Mercury on this new moon is pretty much at a standstill. And just again, throughout September as well, Jupiter and Uranus will be co-present. Surprises, new sense of excitement and optimism will be an underlying energy guiding us through these months. We will have the equinox on September 23rd. And that will be very closely aligned, only six days apart from the full moon in Aries on September 29th. So for this full moon in Aries, the sun will be at six degrees of Libra. The moon will be at six degrees of Aries. This is um, very close to being a, a north node, south node eclipse, okay, with the sun near the south node, moon near the north node, um, or at least in the same sign, I should say. Um, Venus is at... 
22 degrees of Leo, square Uranus at 22 degrees of Taurus. Now, this is the final time we're going to see an exact Venus and Uranus square this year. So this is going to bring resolution or new understandings to what's been coming up for you for the past few months because Venus and Uranus have kind of been dancing with these squares the whole time that Venus was retrograde. And this is the final closing out of that square. Okay, so what came up strongly for you in mid-August? What was coming up strongly throughout the Venus retrograde? This is going to be a time when you can receive the revelations, receive the new understandings. Uranus brings these lightning flashes of insight and bring closure to what you learned so that you can, you know, choose to move forward in that new way that that has become clear to you. And Mars is approaching the south node. Mars at this point, at this full moon, is at 21 degrees of Libra. The south node is at 25 degrees of Libra. Um, this is going to start to bring up new themes that you'll be working on healing over the next one and a half years because Mars wants us to take action on things. Mars wants to bring his sword and cut through the illusions. Um, so you'll beginning, you'll be beginning to feel that energy and the eclipses in October that I'll share with you soon are going to help you dive even more deeply into what is the healing work that we need to do. So Jupiter turning retrograde on September 4th. This is a really big, important energy we're going to be working with for several months from September 4th to December 30th. And this retrograde will be happening from 15 degrees of Taurus to 5 degrees of Taurus. So look for where that falls in your chart between 5 and 15 degrees of Taurus. Here are the themes we'll be working with during this Jupiter retrograde taking a slower, more practical approach to decisions or major actions in your life. If you've been going too fast, you will definitely be asked to slow down at this time. Course correcting where things have been going wrong, getting clarity on parts of your life that have not been moving forward. So Jupiter is wisdom. He is expansion of the mind, expansion of the heart. He can help us understand the deeper levels of what's happening. All right. So this is really going to be about kind of analyzing and looking at what's not working. How can I course correct? What is the new way forward? You'll be asked to decide what is truly of value to you. So refining and rethinking your beliefs, your value systems, recalibrating your life to come into closer alignment with your true core values. Something really big to think about during this time will be an increasing shift toward minimalism and greater awareness of financial expenditures. Now, we've already been asked to choose more minimalist at this time, to be, you know, being careful of our financial expenditures. And this will be continuing that theme. So a shift away from extravagance, caution and care around financial decisions, choosing to spend money more wisely than you have in the past. It will be interesting to see if this Jupiter retrograde in Taurus has an effect on the global markets and the economy. I would expect that it does, um, you know, because Taurus represents our financial reality. And with Jupiter, the planet of wealth and abundance going backwards or <laughs> retrograde there, there will probably be some big collective financial shifts at this time. So that could be why we are invited into more caution and care around financial decisions. 
So look in your chart to see what house Taurus is for you. Um, Taurus has already been extensively activated over the last several years, but this is a really helpful energy of course correcting and realignment that will be guiding you around the themes of that house in your chart. Okay, October. We are going to have two eclipses in October, and this is going to be a time of really profound healing. So we're starting the month, October 3rd, 4th, and 5th, with Mars conjunct the south node. So this is inviting us, even before the eclipses begin, to make space for healing. Open up the space for healing in your life. You don't want to be trying to conquer the world in October because we're going to be brought into a very emotional place, uh, a place of deep processing and healing. So we want to really make space for that. And Mars is inviting us to do so already at the beginning of the month. Um, we need to know that what we most need to work with, what we most need to heal is going to be brought into the light during October. So allow yourself to become the spiritual warrior courageously and boldly cutting away and releasing the old patterns that have harmed you in the past. On October 10th, we have this really strong transit where Venus is conjunct the black moon Lilith now after her retrograde and conjunct the moon and all of them are opposing Saturn. This is about your deepest needs becoming clear. So whatever you need to break free from, Whatever your heart and soul most deeply need to become whole will become quite evident at this time. This can be a very emotional day as you come to a new inner realization of profound truths and a knowing about what you really need to change in order to be fully expressed, in order to be in your power, in order to embody your truth like never before. So this is a day to feel all of it, to acknowledge and accept all of it and to discern what needs to change in your life. You want to be really gentle with yourself on this day and really all throughout the month of October, be very gentle with yourself. On October 14th, we have a new moon solar eclipse in Libra. So this is our second set of eclipses in 2023. We had eclipses on April 20th and May 5th. And now we're having eclipses on October 14th and October 28th. All right, so eclipses are points of transformation. This is a south node eclipse. The sun and moon will be conjunct at 21 degrees of Libra with the south node. So this is bringing up the themes of healing past wounds, the south node themes very strongly. This new moon, the sun and moon, will be conjunct Mercury. So Mercury is right in there with the sun and moon and south node. New insights and solutions are becoming available to us. Mars in Scorpio is trine Saturn in Pisces. So this is about burning down the old so we can open a path to build the new. (laughs) And Pluto continues to be square the nodes and is also square to Mars. So this is a lot of tension, a lot of challenge. This could bring a trapped or stuck feeling where we can't take action And so, again, be really gentle with yourself during this time. Make space for the healing to happen. This is healing, trying to break through. When you feel that tension, when you feel stuck or trapped, it's because the healing is happening, right? So really trust that. The North Node is near Chiron. So the more that we can lean into 
the healing of our deep ancient wounds. Chiron represents our deepest wound. The more we lean into that healing, the more we can see the light and connect to our purpose and mission, which is the bigger message of Chiron. Um, Chiron is about the wounded one who becomes the healer and teacher, but only by bringing high consciousness to the healing. Chiron and the Chiron parts of ourselves, the wounded parts of ourselves, do not become the healer and teacher by running away from the pain. You become the healer and teacher by going into it and bringing highest consciousness and bringing light to what you wanted to keep hidden before um, and really working with it, being that spiritual warrior, working with it powerfully. On October 20th, we have another Mercury Kazemi where Mercury is conjunct the sun. So as we're integrating after the solar eclipse on the 14th, This is a day, October 20th, where new understanding, new solutions, and new breakthroughs become possible. Now, on the negative side, Mercury Kazemi can feel like mental overload, too much fire in our mental processes. So it is best to stay calm and quiet on this day. Really allow the new understandings to reveal themselves. Mm. Then we're going to move into the second eclipse. This is a full moon lunar eclipse in Taurus. This is a north node eclipse. The moon will be at five degrees of Taurus, close to the north node, which is at the late degrees of Aries. And this is highlighting how we can open a path to our new and radiant future. The sun at five degrees of Scorpio, moon at five degrees of Taurus. And the moon is conjunct Jupiter, which is really beautiful energy. Um, But there are other more difficult parts here. So Jupiter is opposite Mars in this during this uh, lunar eclipse time. Okay, we got to take a break. This is very interesting. And Rama, you'll send this to Penny, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if I did, but I think I will send it again. <laughs> yeah, um, this would be good to go over. Deep stuff. Deep stuff. She's well. She's very well um, gifted to explain how the astrology affects us. Okay, so we'll take a break now and we'll be back in maybe 10 minutes and we'll have a look at Kepacha. And our brother Richard will be with us and Tanya Gabrielle. And do you remember how many minutes each mm. of them are, Rama? 21, 28 21 minutes for Tanya. And 27, maybe. Oh, Rama. Mm. Well, I think it's about 27 minutes for, uh, mm. For Kate Pacha. So we will see you when we get back. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello, hello. Hello, Richard. Greetings. Oh, my. What a day. What a day. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, information overload, anybody? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were listening to the astrologer, huh? Yeah, I was listening to Dr. Greer, too. 
Uh, uh, yeah, right. the thing the thing that uh, sticks in my mind from the, the astrology lady is uh, Venus retrograde in Leo. Ooh. Right. Yeah. All of us baby boomers have Pluto in Leo. Yeah. That's right. So that Venus retrograde is going to be transiting all of our generation's Plutos. That's right. Therefore, we'll get a little uh, personally tailored transformation. I have Sun, Saturn, Pluto, and Venus in Leo. So we're going to get conjunct. So we're going to get to walk with Pluto for a little while. Through um, might be a bit uncomfortable, but transformation is on the table. Yeah, I am familiar with Pluto. As Chiron said. Slow, uncomfortable change. Right. Ooh. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pluto's the only planet retrograde at the moment. So uh, uh, today's chart is uh, uh, still a mess, as I indicated last week when we took a quick look. But uh, as a reminder... We got Pluto square the North Node, which is at four Taurus, Pluto being in one Aquarius, and Pluto is simultaneously opposite uh, Venus and Mars, which are, they're about uh, 12 degrees apart, Venus Venus is at 22 Cancer, and Mars is at 5 Leo. So we're going to get, we're going to, all of us baby boomers here, we're going to get Leo conjunct Pluto this this, uh, next couple of weeks here. So we got, that'll that'll bring us some more uh, stuff to operate on. The moon is opposite Saturn tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, square the sun. It's first quarter moon. Okay. First quarter moon opposite Saturn. So that's uh, it's kind of a drag. Saturn when it, you know... Saturn is funny because it's a drag whether it's conjunct or opposite. Uh, so we got that going for us. Uh, let's see here. Jupiter, it's three Taurus, square Mars, up there in Leo. And uh, Mercury's at 12 Taurus. So that's trying the moon tonight. And uh, that's about it. Uh, the main thing is uh, uh, Sun square Saturn and, and Pluto opposite Venus and Mars. Pluto trying, Pluto's still trying the sun for, for a couple more degrees. 
that's about all that really, you know, looks like an activation, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Nep- yeah, well, Neptune is uh, Neptune is like 58 degrees away from Pluto, so that's a sextile. And uh, it's not quite a trine to Venus yet, but that that that'll be a trine this week. And uh, that's about it for now. Okay. That's enough. That's enough. We know everybody knows that you know Saturn's in Pisces with Neptune and Chiron's in Aries. Chiron's moved up to 19 degrees. Everybody knows that Jupiter is now in Taurus, and Mercury is still in Taurus. It's behind, way behind the sun. But if you got clear skies, you should be able to see Venus and Mars in your western sky. Oh, yeah, they're they're just twelve degrees apart. So uh, this this week, for a while, and uh, let's see here, that means that. Uh, let's see, sun's at 7, so that's 23 and 21. Yeah, Venus is 45 degrees uh, behind the sun, so it'll be, it'll be visible in the, in the western sky just after sunset for, uh, for a while. (coughs) Until the sun gets closer to Venus and then it'll be too, too low and it depends on your terrain and, what kind of a view to the west you have and all that sort of stuff. But the moon is right overhead at 9 o'clock Eastern. All right, let's go listen to Kaipacha. All right, let's see what this means. We'll see if he, what he thinks is going on. Right, all right. There uh, go. with the weekly Paleo Report. I am here on the island of Kithanos, and it is truly where time has stood still and people have been the same, doing the same, living life the same for so long. There's so many beautiful caves it's just gorgeous. We've got Venus in Cancer, and she's square to Chiron today. So, yeah, I'm going to be talking about that. She does come into a sextile with Uranus tomorrow, but we've got a little bit of the water element. But, on the other hand, we've got water and rock, because the sun is moving through Gemini, coming into a square with Saturn. That sun square Saturn is exact on Sunday, but you could be feeling it now, and it's Gemini to Pisces. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. La Luna, okay, she is moving through Leo today, tomorrow, Friday. She moves into Virgo through that time. 
she'll be coming around and opposing. I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through a little bit of what we went through here because she's going to oppose Pluto, conjunct Mars, and square Jupiter, right? I mean, just like what we've been through. We've been through this whole time of that T-square, Jupiter square, the Mars opposition, Pluto. Thank God we're still alive. <laughs> yeah. And as she moves out of there, then, you know, she's going to go into Virgo on Friday and uh, head on through. Trying Jupiter. We've got the, uh, I will read the Sabian symbol. Well, no, not that one, but I'm going to read a couple Sabian symbols for the Sun Square Saturn and the Venus Chiron because that's uh, pretty amazing. The Sun Square uh, Moon is happening on Saturday. And then she's going to trine Uranus and then oppose Neptune before she moves into Libra on Monday. Tuesday, she'll trine the Sun from Libra and oppose Chiron just before the next Pele report. So let me see what I can do here. I want to uh, find a nice... There's a lot of rock. There's a lot of water. And there is some sand. Maybe I'll head on over to that little beach over there and uh, talk to Jack. All right, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Let me tune a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know. It's like these days with this Mars opposite Pluto and squaring Jupiter. There's like no such thing as living without pressure pressure. Today's pressure is that there may be some sailboats. Uh, you know, they're coming in this morning. This looks like it might be a little bit of a popular bay area for the sailboats to anchor and find a nice beach, but I got here first. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just giving you a little shot of the turnaround. Yeah, so, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on is, you know, this is, it's been busy, busy, busy. This, you know, Jupiter is just like too much and squaring Mars and Pluto is, you know, I mean, it can be great, you know, uh, beautiful times, wonderful action, but it's just like, Whoa, 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 whoa. It's like all coming at us. And that sun in Gemini is like, yeah, let's check this out and check that out and check the other thing out. You know, but there's also the time where that can get so swirly, whirly, whirly, whirly that you lose your center, that you kind of get, you know, and I've been feeling, you know, these these last couple of days, just like, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next. So you're kind of like... You know, you know, kind of waiting, waiting, because everything is just like unpredictable and you kind of lose control of the situation. Like life is big. Life is big. 
and you never know what's going to happen or what's going to come at you or what's coming up from out of the blue or over there. Or blah. Ah. <laughs> For me, it was in the city of Athens, you know, and it, you know, it was kind of like just so many people and, you know, so much EMFs from all the Wi-Fi's and all the and the psychic energy and the cars and the, you know what I mean? So now, that's over, right? Yeah, the Mars has moved on. It's still in the fiery sign of Leo where it's going to be for quite a while. But let's focus here a little bit more now on Venus. Venus and the water sign of Cancer. Okay, looking for some snuggling, some cuddling, some, you know, softness, some water. Some water. So we hear... The waves lapping up upon the beach. And today's mantra is about us, each one of us being, okay, a source of water. And I'm going to go in, into that a little bit more with our, you know, with the, the sun squaring Saturn. Yes. And the, the beautiful thing is that it is at the seventh degree of Gemini. And that is a well with a bucket and rope under the shade of majestic trees. This is energy for like this whole week. The sun is approaching Saturn on Sunday. It's exactly square Saturn. And it's like three months ago it was conjunct Saturn. So, you know, look back, okay, you know, to early March and... And, and, you know, some seeds were sown in early March. And now it's like descending, descending, and it's coming into this well. The, it is our primordial faith in the hidden, sustaining power of life. In contrast with the ambitious drive of modern humanity for power and wealth, we now have the image of the eternal search for that which is at the root of all living processes. Water. This search also demands some effort. Raising the water-filled bucket. But it is a simple effort under the shade of trees which attest to the presence of the life-giving fluid. This presence depends on the cooperation of sky, rain, and earth. The geological formation able to hold the water. And we must develop the intuitive sense which enables us to feel this presence and to make it effectual in our daily life. We must sense the hidden reality which preserves for the use of all living organisms this gift of the sky, the bounteous rain. Now it's something to have both this Venus in square to Chiron, Sun in square to Saturn, because Saturn is up there in Pisces. Pisces 
the cosmic sign of the fish, the collective unconscious. Saturn's there for three years. I've spoken about it before. And it is a time where we can feel this kind of sense of separation from spirit, separation from the divine. So it's really time for us in all of our growth, in all of our maturity. Yes, Saturn is commitment. Saturn is discipline. Saturn is endurance. And it's really up to us to feel ourselves as emissaries of the divine, to like make this commitment to spirit, to being an expression of spirit, to being a source of spirit here in the dry desert or the rocky cliffs of Greece or the concrete streets of any city that you may be visiting or living in. We have to bring the water of life. We have to be the fountains, right, you know, of this spiritual light in our circles of friends, in our communities. So this is the square of Pisces to Gemini. You know, it's it's the challenge to bring the dream, okay, and, and to not get depressed, to not feel that, you know, just like lost, separate, longing, empty, because we're in our mind or we're here in this Gemini in the, you know, what's right in front of the tip of our nose. Okay, we're, you know, we're looking and with our ego, mind and consciousness and, you know, this is all there is. Is this all there is? No, this is not all there is. (laughs) We have to like make that energetic you know, pull, you know, to like, it's like we are the ones who bring spirit in. We can't be looking for it out there. It's like we we have to experience it within ourselves and break through this Gemini polarity. You know, these twins, this like schizophrenic, I talked about counterpoint awareness. That's so much what this whole third dimensional body, material, mind, ego expression of our soul is all about. We evolve through counterpoint awareness and that distance from ourselves, from our shadow, from another That brings us conscious awareness. That brings us understanding. That helps us evolve. But if we get too far lost in that separation, and we don't come from the observer that is observing, aha, right? Self and other, you know? Macrocosm, microcosm, as above, so below. We have to stay in that witness. We have to stay in that Pluto is still in Aquarius, symbolizes the observer, the witness, so that we stay in that place and then, yeah, then we can observe that polarity. If we sink down low, 
we get into jealousy, envy, anger, blame, judgment, uh, you know, just all the, all this bad, 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 bad. <laughs> and we get possessive and we get fearful. We get insecure. This is the lower expression, you know, of cancer, that Venus in cancer. And we want to look at how that Venus in cancer squares this wounded Chiron in Aries. I've talked about this wounded Chiron in Aries as being that wound of we don't deserve to exist. We don't deserve to get what we want. We are powerless. We are just, you know, not autonomous, not sovereign, not self, but rather pawns in a much larger game. And when we feel that wound, then we want to strike out or we want to, uh, you know, uh, challenge. We want to get, we get all pissed off. How do we heal that wound? How do we turn that wound into medicine? I want to read to you the Sabian symbol for that degree, right? It is what? It's the, uh, the 19th degree of cancer as Venus comes into this square to Chiron. And it talks about the overcoming of polarity. I love it. You know, it's just this whole kind of, and I'm so getting into this, you know, self-interest. Okay. You know, as opposed to, you know, giving to the whole and moving into this age of Aquarius and stepping out of the separate self. And so here we have the Sabian symbol of a marriage. Yeah. It's a priest performing a marriage ceremony. The ritualization of productive interpersonal relationships. Check this out. I know marriage can be kind of a scary word these days. <laughs> but the scene symbolizes. You have to look at it as a symbol. The profound need for referring the interplay and the relatively permanent and productive union of all polarities to some third factor, which either includes or transcends and gives a spiritual meaning to the relationship. A conjugal union is essentially and traditionally, the union of a man and a woman for the sake of producing progeny, able to perpetuate the racial type, the family tradition, and the way of life of a particular culture or subculture, including a set of religious beliefs the married couple is the basic productive unit in our society, as it has been for a millennia in all patriarchal societies. The purpose of any established religion, including tribal cults, is to glorify 
sanction and bless with a super personal meaning, all personal and interpersonal activities. This occurs through the sacraments and indeed through most religious rites. This, the, you know, the key word here is sanction, where things are ritualized and indeed sanctified. And so this is what I'm talking about today. I'm, I'm talking about how it's where, you know, where there is, where two or more are gathered, there is spirit. And that spirit sanctifies, that spirit gives life to that spirit really brings in another you know another i don't i want to say juice i want to say food nourishment cancerian nurturing and nourishing is brought through where two or more are gathered where it's not about self-interest, where even when two or more are gathered, it's to really give something back to the community, give something back to society, give something back to the culture. So when we are really focused on like being channels and being mediums for something bigger and wider and broader than just gathering together for ourselves, Then spirit acts in our life, spirit comes through us, and through our generosity, through our generosity we are blessed with something greater, something beyond, yeah, just ego fulfillment or personal comfort or worldly success. There's, there's, there's an inner an inner sense of connection, of unity, of oneness with what there is. So the moon is breaking away from the sun. We're starting a new lunar cycle. We're coming into that first square from Gemini to Virgo. And it's, and, and it's, it is a time of stepping out of giving out, of breaking out of the past. And I just want to encourage you during this time, rather than get caught up in the busyness or get overwhelmed with the madness, that, you know, you find your inner sanctuary and you find, you know, that relative peace within. And you find that source of spirit within and you become a fountain, a fountain of youth, a fountain of light, a fountain of love, a fountain of nourishing all those around you. And this is the Venus in Cancer. This is the higher expression, the mature expression, right, of Cancer is not being, you know, the baby that needs and longs and wants and cries and, you know, puts on tantrums, okay, but the mother, the Madonna, Right, you know, that holds the baby, that nourishes the innocent, that protects, right, those that are still vulnerable. So we want to do that higher vibration, that higher expression, 
of that Venus energy. Because we want to be an oasis in the desert. <laughs> a source of water and life. In the middle of hot, dry, and arid surroundings, I bring cool, refreshing, liquid lights. Can you feel that? Sometimes, yeah, it can feel hot and dry and arid and deserty where, you know, things are just like curling up and, you know, like, have you ever seen like a, a mud, you know, where it, it was a swamp and it dried up and the, and the mud just turned into like curled up into little cakes and... You can tell like a drought when it's everyone is so thirsty. I feel like humanity is thirsty and Gaia is thirsty and society is thirsty. So we want to be water bearers. Let's be this Pluto in Aquarius. Let's be the, the water bearer for planet Earth in all of our relationships. And then we turn that wounded Chiron, right, from feeling separate, from feeling powerless, from feeling like a victim or feeling helpless. We become, yeah, the beautiful, strong support. I like that water is liquid light. The fire of Aries. That Chiron energy, that warrior energy, that light energy can be liquid light. So one more time for our mantra this week. This is that I am an oasis in the desert. A source of water and life. In the middle of hot, dry, arid surroundings, I bring cool, refreshing, liquid light. May you be Gunga Din, who brought water to the soldiers fallen on the battlefield. And he just kind of came through like, Chiron and Aries, okay, it's like there may be battles and there may be fighting and anger and everybody, fireworks going on and explosions and problems and wars and challenge. And here is Gunga Din bringing liquid light, water, feeling, emotional refreshing, rejuvenating, joyous water. Venus in Cancer. Oh, yeah. So don't burn up. Mars and Leo, squaring that Jupiter. But cool down, come in, tap in to the watery feeling, emotion, and bring it up and bring it out and share your life with the world. Ow!
hey, man, you can do this, man. We can't be intimidated. We, we, we got to just keep on just like Gaia, constantly giving and constantly nourishing and constantly here for everything unconditional. And the sun shines down on everyone unconditionally. And Gaia gives her waters to everyone unconditionally. Let's throw off some of this conditional love and return to the source of unconditional light, love, and liquid light. Water. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. about the debt ceiling I'm gonna I'm just they're gonna do the debt ceiling I don't think they're gonna you know screw around with that too much it's you know they like to get all the attention you know with their uh, um, 14th amendment Richard negotiations yeah I don't think they're gonna pull that card and I've heard several lawyers talk about it various places Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, uh, they'll come to think. But what I'm what I'm thinking is that the the Federal Reserve is going to have to continue to raise interest rates because they're not seeing a decrease in the employment. See, the the people are strong and 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 the, and they they want to work this this summer, right? Mm-hmm. And Georgia's employment rate dropped to 2.7%. Latest figures statewide. There's a solar there's a, a solar panel operation that uh, started up here this spring over near Rome, uh, Dalton, Georgia. Uh-huh. They're advertising for a thousand a workforce of a thousand people. Oh they don't God. they don't have the housing. So someone's out, someone over there in the Dalton area is, is ought to be building apartments. That's true. I mean, maybe even the employer needs to be building uh, dormitories like they do in China. Yeah, they they build dormitories for their workers. You know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to continue because uh, you know. Uh, 
people have been bored, you know, after the after the uh, COVID pandemic and everything. People are stuck inside. They're calling for, you know, huge amounts of travel this weekend and all that stuff, right? Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have a continued, uh, I think they're going to have to raise those interest rates some more. So um, I think that's what's going on here. Uh, of course, you know Uranus is it is it is it is said that Uranus represents the reflection of divine will on Earth. So, if Uranus is in control, then you know Uranus is known for surprise right. surprises. There's a volcano down in Mexico. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about talk about adding uh, elements to the atmosphere. You know. Well, that's something to watch. It's only 45 miles from Mexico City, where there's a whole bunch yeah. of people. Yeah, that's right. I I heard this morning they want they want a seven mile. Radius around that sucker. It's just kind of smoldering right now and uh, putting out ash and everything. But it's, yeah, you know. But it's been doing it for a week already, Richard. Yeah. So that means it's not ready. I mean, it could blow, but that would, that, never mind. Well, again. Whether it whether it blows or whether it sits there and simmers, it's it's still putting pollutants into atmosphere. Lots of it. Lots of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Mexico uh, city area is twenty million. At women. least more than that, I think, Richard. Yeah, something in anyway. So, um, and there's, if we were to look, there's probably a couple of other volcanoes going on other places in the world, too. Yeah, anyway, the Pacific Rim of Fire is doing its thing, is what I think. Yeah, that's right. Plus, plus there have been a, a couple of typhoons. A big old typhoon ran over Guam. Yeah, that's right. What happened? Did, it, did everybody, was everybody... They, yeah, because they had enough warning. They moved all the military, moved all the aircraft, and they moved all their ships out of the way. And did they have to evacuate people? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I didn't hear. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that either. But uh, yeah, that's yeah just it's all. Problem. It's all. I mean, the geopolitical thing. Oh, don't forget. You know. Uh, Putin, uh, Putin and Belarus, his, 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 his buddy there in Belarus going to relocate some, uh, technical nukes. Yes, I want you to know, Richard, that that's a fake Putin and the real Putin is in an underground base on the far, uh, eastern side of, of Russia, Siberia and hanging out with the Andromedans. And this is our deep state. That created that fake Putin. So I want you to get that one real clear. This is all the deep state. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's 
it's uh, the 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 show that these these people are putting on is very strange. Well, they're killing for profit. That's what they're doing. Yeah, well. Yeah. Mm. A lot of dead people. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of dead people. I think we're in a... It looks like. It just appears. You know, we've got no evidence. It just appears like we're, we're, we're in a general trend of population reduction, not by any specific cause, but due to a lot of little causes, right? So, uh, I'm going to just say that um, there's a movie that Rama's got to download, right? Uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., and he's telling the whole truth, and I mean, they have killed billions with the COVID stuff. It's it's a lot more than they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, they're and, yeah, and, it's a, it's a mess. And 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 then the one one article I I ran across was the disproportionate number of brown people compared to white people that died. Oh, intentionally, on purpose, of course. Yeah. They use dissonant sound frequencies combined with the uh, with the uh, COVID. Well, mm-hmm. All kinds of weird science going on here, and not the good kind. We 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 have to use the knowledge we have and pay attention and do right. work. That's right. There's there's a lot of karma being cleared up as well as new karma being generated and that's <laughs> yeah that's strange alright alright I'm done for the night <laughs> okay alright Richard well we're gonna jump in here with uh, Tanya Gabrielle House we uh, have a little listen to her okay. okay thank you so much Richard Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to Star Codes, the forecast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astronumerology, to help us navigate the energy for our highest good. And in this case, we are covering the amazing Sagittarius full moon. Now, Sagittarius is ruled by Jupiter, so anything that is touched by this sign and this planet tends to enhance and expand, bring joy, bring blessings, and also enhance whatever you're focusing on. So if it is negative, it will expand as well. So just keep that in mind. Now, full moons are always about contrast because the sun, in this case, is in Gemini while the moon is in Sagittarius. And that creates an opposition in astrology. And contrast is very important because it allows us to integrate and to grow as we learn and evolve through seeing 
light and dark, to seeing the contrast through mistakes we make, which are part of growth, right? Without them, how would we learn? There's no such thing as being perfect. There's only always evolving, just like the universe. So everyone engages in this contrast. And once a month, we have the sun and moon bringing things to a head emotionally, especially about the duality in our life and the polarity in our life. So this will allow us then to bring the polarity into balance, which is what the opposition is, the balance between night and dark and to have both the divine feminine and sacred masculine within you. So when something doesn't feel congruent, good to you, we have the contrast of that versus what does feel good. And so the same is when we are consciously aware of what we're doing, we then need to also become aware of how the unconscious is impacting our conscious awareness. And that then brings our life into balance as well as we start paying attention and noticing the relationship between the unconscious and the conscious. So your awareness, of imbalances in your life is the key to growth. And those imbalances can be thoughts in your mind, how you behave, how our heart feels. Are we congruent or does is something off? You know, the gut feeling here is really key. So what helps us stay in balance and come back into balance is not using labels so much, not category categorizing situations and people so much. This becomes really important because the act of categorization or labeling others immediately creates the duality. Me versus you. I'm right, you're wrong. So I'm categorizing. So it doesn't mean we don't have discernment. The discernment is the level of awareness that precedes the label, the discernment comes where we just discern within us what feels right and what doesn't, but it doesn't then jump through the ego mind into the label. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is because Sagittarius governs wisdom and our quest for truth and our belief system. And these are all based on the ability to see polarity, to see contrast, and to understand that contrast is a good thing because it propels us to grow. Now, the 21st century in numerology, 21, is the truth shall set you free. And 21, two plus one reduces to three, which is creation. So we create our reality, and that is the truth. And with Sagittarius embodying the quest for truth, Aquarius would like us to, as a fire sign, Go on an adventure and take that risk and get out of your comfort zone because you're expanding. And in order to expand, we have to leave the perch. We have to fly. So through that expansion, we gain optimism and faith. And these are key ingredients to the Sagittarius experience. We have greater peace of mind because our positive expectations result in positive outcomes. Now, it doesn't mean we don't experience contrast 
It just means that we are actively engaged in proactive solutions and finding those solutions. And that catapults us forward towards success. So in this full moon in Sagittarius, the sun and moon are at 13 degrees. Sun in Gemini, moon in Sagittarius. And the date for this full moon is June 4th. 2023 and that is the date for universal time so the actual full moon happens at 4:42 a.m universal time greenwich england and it happens at 11:42 p.m on june 3rd in eastern time and 11:42 p.m pacific time on june 3rd so we have both the june 3rd and june 4th date but universal time is june 4th and that date that whole date, 6-14-2023, adds up to 17, which is the immortality number. That's what I call it, where you leave a legacy behind and you gain a lot of strength. So the combination of the sun and moon at 13 degrees on June 4th, universal time, 13 reduces to 4, 1 plus 3 is 4, which is all about setting boundaries and working and getting grounded, literally putting your feet on the ground, doing gardening, participating in Mother Nature through the four seasons, the four directions, north, south, east, west. All of that is our earth experience. So the number 13 also governs the divine feminine. We have 13 lunar cycles in a year. We have 13 Venus cycles in all the Venus phases. And we have 13 weeks in a season, each season, spring, summer, winter, and autumn, is 13 weeks long. So this is a very amazing code of the divine feminine. And then the number four and 17 are more masculine numbers. So again, the balance is within the numerology and the astrology. So the beliefs that we hold, mostly unconsciously, that we've taken on, play a major role in this creation of our reality experience. So where do these beliefs come from? With Venus opposite Pluto during this Sagittarius full moon and Mars square Pluto, we are going to really see how much power, which is Pluto, our beliefs have. How much power we have to create our reality and how much our beliefs play a role in that creation process. So Pluto governs power. Venus and Mars are the divine feminine, sacred masculine in our human experience. And so they symbolize the power to create, right? So beliefs can reveal how we manage our energy. Beliefs are literally the programs on which we run our life. And they reveal how we frame our choices. So they uncover the conditions that we apply in using our vital energy to manifest our ideas, our thoughts. And if we look at the results in our life and just like look back at what we've created, we see the unique creative outcomes that come directly from the belief programming that we had within us about who we are, whether we're worthy, etc. So those beliefs are collected over time from many sources and keep recreating our reality. We have childhood experiences, we have family programming, we have teachers, mentors, we have religious, spiritual leaders, 
genetic inheritance, cultural influence, uh, impressions that we've gathered from other lifetimes. And we usually hold those beliefs about ourselves and the world around us without question. And this is why the unconscious plays such a big role, because we don't question what seems like it is totally natural when it is actually acquired and can be addressed. So beliefs naturally make their way into our imagination because they're stored in that subconscious memory, which which draws, we draw on that memory, we draw on that subconscious for our imagination. So we perceive the internal and external world from that place. And we qualify everything we think from our beliefs about what we're thinking about. So everything is qualified based on our beliefs. And this full moon in Sagittarius reminds us that our beliefs set us up for either a positive experience or negative experience, for either a sense of accomplishment or a sense of failure. And if your worldview is mostly optimistic, glass half full, you will be self-motivated with a positive attitude no matter what. You'll have this passionate energy that accompanies positivity in general. And so you'll engage in life with joy and enthusiasm, which are huge keywords for Sagittarius. That is the Sagittarian and Jupiter way. But let's say your worldview is more leaning towards pessimism, which can be a temporary place to find ourselves in, whether it is for a couple minutes, an hour, a day, even longer. But in general, if you feel pessimistic or fearful, right, that you interpret reality as as something to fear, then you will feel hopeless. You will feel confused. And that confusion arises from feeling powerless. So your encounters with the external world are reflections of your inner reality. You are drawing to you experiences that will help awaken you so that you can take your power back, so that you can feel the ultimate results of being responsible for everything that occurs in your life, every thought, every experience, because you become what you think about. And if you change your thinking, you change your beliefs and you change your life. Your beliefs literally instruct your subconscious on how to behave. And the people in your immediate environment, they are unconsciously aware of your beliefs. They're aware of your expectations and unconsciously they feel it. So the more aware you are of the programs that are inside of your mind and the amazing impact they have on you and you start noticing that, the easier it will be for you to create what your heart desires because your cells broadcast your energy. Your energy field sends signals to everyone, to the world. It's done through frequency. It's done through telepathy, right? We need, we are in the place now where we are aware like consciously, supremely aware of energy, of frequency, of telepathy. So your cells hear all your thoughts, not just your words. They hear your thoughts. Your words are very powerful, though, because they bring your thoughts into manifestation. 
That's why speaking out loud what it is you're thinking carries such a big impact. But the thoughts themselves are heard by your cellular structure because your subconscious and unconscious are, of course, aware of what you're thinking. So your opportunities, which are ruled by Sagittarius opportunities, they connect you to what you're focusing on, which is deeply tied to your beliefs about your self-worth. And the moon is trying to Mars and the sun sextile Mars, and that means your self-worth, your inner confidence, is going to be on positive overdrive. Mars is a fire planet. It's the ruler of the first sign, Aries, and Sagittarius is a fire sign. So Mars's beautiful harmonization to the sun and moon during this full moon will bring you a lot of enthusiasm. It will also activate your natural instincts because that's what Mars also governs. And it it just allows you to tap into passion and fire and independence. And as you feel this energy within you, your creativity then rises and you literally are being a creator with no excuses. You literally have tremendous momentum. You move forward quickly with Mars. You trust your intuition and create. Now, there's also a beautiful sextile to Chiron from the sun and a trine from the moon, and that brings a lot of healing. It looks at wounds, especially childhood wounds that may be driving some unconscious beliefs. Remember, the Sagittarius uh, full moon is driving the narrative here. So understanding those emotions that are coming up that are hindering you in some way uh, is really going to be healed with Chiron's trine to the moon. And you'll have tremendous compassion, which creates balance because you're not judging, you're not categorizing, you're not labeling, you're just experiencing. So other transits during the Sagittarius full moon is Venus is trying to Neptune. Neptune is in Pisces. This is such a wonderful, creative, romantic, artistic energy. And it allows you to go beyond the limited mind into your imagination and creativity. And you feel this surge of tenderness and love and you accept others for who they are. It is truly about unconditional love through sweetness and warmth and care and beauty. And then Mercury is conjunct Uranus during this full moon. And that helps with the lower mind and higher mind integrating into one. So that will bring exciting new ideas in general that are inspiring. Jupiter, the ruler of Sagittarius, creates some dynamic contacts. Jupiter is sextile to Saturn, which is amazing for, in general, embarking on a tremendous growth period especially in the areas of freedom, entrepreneurship, joyful career choices. It's a great time to take a risk and at the same time, changing responsibilities if needed, getting out of stifling conditions in general, because you need to feel the sense of joy pulsing through your life. Even without any restrictions in your life, you'll still venture out to explore more freedom with this beautiful contact. Now, Mars is square to Jupiter, Jupiter being the ruler of the Sagittarius full moon. And 
Jupiter is also square to Pluto. And this T-square is still ongoing. It was active during the Taurus new moon. And it does bring you a lot of stimulating energy. Just be aware that you may, you need to watch burning the candle at both ends. And you need to watch being impulsive throughout this whole period. From when you watch this video until after June 3rd and 4th. Because you have a lot of energy now to begin something. But you want to use the energy wisely. And fortunately, Jupiter is playing a beautiful role in stimulating that wisdom within you. So with Pluto, again, let's end with Pluto. The influence and power that you wield regarding just in general trusting your heart and being aware of the beliefs that are coming up and really consciously following how they're impacting your life, you will have tremendous opportunities to increase wealth, abundance, financial flow with this square to Jupiter and Pluto. You need to just explore and research internally what it is that is driving you. And also be in touch with mysterious topics and philosophy and in general higher education which Jupiter rules. So go and take a course or uncover secrets that you need to see. They need to come to the surface. You need to be able to lead from a place of understanding and wisdom. So be very clear on the fact that your growth is happening throughout your life, but especially now you're growing in leaps and bounds and you need to trust in the benevolence of the universe as you experience the dynamics of polarity. So the more you trust in the goodness of life and that all is meant to be, all is synchronistic, all is part of the greater good in terms of being in the flow and expanding with the universe in a tremendous way, that there is divine intelligence behind all life, that there is this benevolent energy from God, creator, source, that there are blessings in disguise for everything you experience. Appreciate it all and be in direct communication with source and allow God and mother, father, creator to infuse your life at all times. They are, this energy, I should say, is available to you at all times. So to support you with that awakening, which is happening rapidly right now, I do have a free masterclass how to master your stars. And it is such a beautiful course that helps you take your power back and you can access it for free at spiritualmasteryclass.com. And what we cover is the secret to spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, the important difference between individuality and uniqueness, your natal sun and natal moon's profound impact on living an abundant, spiritual, happy life and how to connect with spirit at any time. So to watch How to Master Your Stars, a free masterclass, go to spiritualmasteryclass.com and enjoy that and have a wonderful, wonderful Sagittarius full moon. I will see you in next week's Star Codes Podcast.
Okay. All right, Rama. It's time to go to the conference call. Um, the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, everybody. We'll see you on the conference call. And magic is afoot. Goddess is alive. I hope you can feel the progression now that I think I agree with Richard. They're not gonna, they're not gonna let the, yeah, global economy crash because if you mess with the currency of the U.S., then you crash the whole place. But stubborn they are. I would not consider it a strength at the moment. You got to keep that at the right number right now. Okay. So we'll see you on the conference, everyone. We'll be right back here at the top of the next next hour with BBS Radio, best radio in the universe. Namaste. See you there. It's not my card. Yeah. There was another one that. Yeah, the other one. Um, the she did the fairy song. I'll play that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, everybody. We're all here, and we're all looking forward to full disclosure. We really are. Indeed. And we just want to thank everybody uh, for coming to these gatherings uh, and persist and determine to... We are making a difference. We are making a difference. It's really important that we all know that. Peace to all, love to all. <laughs> Ram Ram Hari Ram. <laughs> Rama. <laughs> Jai Ram. All right. Jai Ram. What's after that? Uh, uh, Hari Krishna. Hari <laughs> Rama. <laughs> should we go back to this? Yes, we should go back to our. This is uh, Jocelyn Starfeather uh, talking about the astrology and we're in October here okay so we got about what 20 25 minutes left yeah there we go so again I like her name Jocelyn star feather yeah That's... she brings through Sekhmet in various channelings too well you haven't played anything for oh. us oh um, I gotta find it. <laughs> oh well, well, let's do the one we're on. Let's yeah. do this one. Okay, everybody, here we go. Jupiter's retrograde opposite Mars. Now Mars is the warrior, right? Um, so painful endings can take place here. Remember that this is all part of the transformational arc of healing with the eclipses in service to your highest future. If you have something that ends, maybe a relationship that ends, a job that ends, some painful ending at this time. Really trust the process. This is not happening to torment you. This is happening for your highest healing and evolution. And so that you can bring in new energies that you've been longing for into your life going forward. Mars and Mercury will, will be conjunct. So this is going to bring a flow of insights about what we need to release so that we can open the path to the future. 
This can, with Mars involved particularly, it can bring up strong emotions like anger and resentment. So don't lash out. Don't act on those anger and resentment or whatever you might be feeling that's a negative emotion at this time. Wait, process this, sit with it, see what the deeper messages are. Wait until mid-November to take your actions. It's going to get feel a lot easier in November and December, guys. In the days after the eclipse, Venus in Virgo will be moving into an opposition with Neptune in Pisces. And this is time to really use our insights and learnings from these eclipses to identify the illusions you're still hanging on to. What are you wishing was true, but you know in your heart that it's really not? And how is that blocking or preventing you from living your highest integrity and values? This opposition becomes exact on November 3rd, but we're going to feel it starting as soon as the eclipse is done. So it's important to really be aware of that and be working with that, journaling on it, meditating on it um, as you go forward from the eclipse day, October 28th. So this is the, this is a big month. This is an intense month. Again, be so gentle with yourself. Um, if you need support, reach out to friends, reach, reach out to a therapist. If that's someone you work to get Reiki or massage or acupuncture or some kind of healing treatment to really help you move this energy, process it, express it, share it, be able to speak it. Don't just hold it in. Even just journaling can be magical during a month like this to help us move the energy, the feelings, the thoughts through and receive the gifts that they're trying to bring to us, receive the healing that they're trying to impart. November is going to feel like a big relief, okay? And we're going to receive really massive revelations about our own true and deep power, each of us on an individual, personal level. So Pluto is finally, at this point, moving out of that square with the north and south node. This is huge. This is a big relief. And because Pluto, they're now like four degrees out of the exact square. Pluto is at 28 degrees of Capricorn. The nose are 24 degrees Aries and Libra. It's a big relief. Um, on November 3rd, Jupiter, still retrograde, will be opposite the sun. All right. So it's going to be asking us, what have you learned so far since Jupiter turned retrograde on September 4th? Really be sure to include the teachings from the Jupiter retrograde as part of your post-eclipse integrations. And helping us to integrate after those eclipses will be this new moon in Scorpio, November 13th. Now, this is the first new or full moon in Scorpio since the nodes moved out of Taurus and Scorpio. (laughs) So this is going to be an easier Scorpio moon than what we've had for the last year and a half. And this is a really good thing. This is a time of integration and reflection about the themes revealed during the eclipse window. The sun and moon will be at 20 degrees of Scorpio. Mercury has just moved into Sagittarius. This is also a relief. This is so when Mercury is in Scorpio, our mind is just in this like down in the depths of the underworld inner processing much of the time, especially when eclipses are happening right with Mercury. So as Mercury moves into Sagittarius, this allows us to turn to more optimistic, adventurous, exciting new ideas. 
rather than all that inner processing, it's a huge relief. We'll be really glad for this <laughs> Mercury moving into Sagittarius. And the new moon is the, so the sun and moon at, at the new moon time are opposing Uranus with Jupiter fairly close to Uranus. So there are themes here of liberation, freedom. What do you need in order to truly feel free? And what we learned during the eclipses is probably going to give us the answer to that question. So this is really important to journal on at this time. What do I need in order to feel free? And you can ask yourself, what is the bold act of rebellion that I'm committing to now? That's a Uranus question. This could be, this new moon in Scorpio, an amazing time to rewrite your future with courage and conviction based on all that you've been through this year, all that you've learned, especially from this last round of eclipses. How do you want to rewrite your story? How do you want to rewrite your future? Very powerful and um, healing time here, but healing in a more uplifting way now that we get into November. Now, on November 25th and 26th, in the days just before the full moon, as it is in the waxing phase, the moon will conjunct Jupiter and then Uranus. This is a beautiful sequence of energies really heightening our desire for freedom and expansion. So Jupiter and Uranus will be asking us, what is your bold and liberated choice for your life and your future? Choose your new beliefs, claim your power, and rewrite your story now. This is a huge theme for November based on everything we've learned. How do we rewrite our story? And then the full moon in Gemini, the wonderful time for rewriting as well. Um, this will be on November 27th. The sun will be at four degrees of Sagittarius. The moon will be at four degrees of Gemini. Now at this time, the sun will be conjunct Mars in Sagittarius. This is three fiery energies coming together. The sun, obviously a ball of fire. <laughs> Mars, the warrior god, is very fiery. Sagittarius is a fire sign. This is a huge sacral chakra activation, an activation of your own power. So claim your power now. Claim your role as a spiritual warrior who independently and optimistically forges a new path ahead into an adventurous and uncharted future. And really, don't be held back by what anyone else thinks or says. That's the really pure Mars energy. Trust your own inner wisdom and your most fierce convictions. Now, Venus at this time will be conjunct the South Node. And this is really a, a powerful energy asking us, what did you learn during my retrograde? That's what Venus says to you. What did you learn during the Venus retrograde, July 22nd to September 3rd? And is there anything you still need to release as a result of those learnings? If so, release it now or over the next two weeks following the full moon as the moon is waning. This is the time to release. And we will have Mercury square Neptune. So we're being asked to surrender to our dreams and visions. Be led by that which you cannot yet see. And if we try too hard to stay with linear ways of thinking, it's not going to work. Remember the heart. Remember, our heart can handle these changes even when our mind cannot. All right. That is the invitation from Mercury Square Neptune. And this month of November, I mean, I really recommend saying this alchemical prayer 
three times a day, every single day. But as you move through this month of November, it's an incredibly powerful time to say this prayer, which is, dear universe, please send me all of the things that I need the most that I do not even yet know are possible. This opens us up to possibilities and gifts and blessings beyond our wildest imagination. Okay, so we're entering our final month here in the forecast, December 2023. This is a time where we will receive the light very brightly, right? The universe, all the stars, sun will be shining the light so brightly on us so we can examine our most deeply held questions and hold them up in the light. On December 7th, Jupiter, nearing the end of its retrograde will be trining Mercury, both of them in Earth signs. So this brings a big aha moment, a big moment of a new understanding, new revelation, brilliant yet practical insights and new solutions to things that seemed impossible before. So the beautiful transit. The new moon in Sagittarius is happening on December 12th. The sun and moon will both be at 20 degrees Sagittarius. Now, this is very close to the galactic center. The galactic center is the point in our galaxy, and this is an astronomical uh, thing, not not even astrological. It's the point in our galaxy where the universe exploded from, where the universe was birthed. I'm sorry, not the universe. Our galaxy was birthed from, okay, the Milky Way galaxy. This is the point where it emerged from, the galactic center. So this is literally the birthing point of our galaxy where we live. And that is located at 25, 26, and 27 degrees of Sagittarius. So this is a new moon with the galactic center. This new moon is square Neptune, so it could highlight any illusions you're still holding on to. Remember, we're really clearing out the illusions this year. Um, any ways you've been trying to escape from reality, it's going to ask you to bring those truths into the light and reevaluate your life in a more grounded and optimistic way going forward. Now, this is a really potent day, this Newman in Sagittarius, to begin dreaming into and writing down your 2024 intentions. I always recommend setting your New Year's intentions as close to the solstice day as possible. The solstice will be December 21st. And so this gives us a beautiful window, about nine days from December 12th to December 21st, to work with your intentions, write them down, rewrite them, get really, really clear, have a year review so you can get clear on your goals. And then by the time we get to the solstice, you will be ready to plant those seeds of those beautiful intentions very strongly. Mars is near to the sun and moon here at 13 degrees of Sagittarius, continuing to lend his fiery energy. And Mercury is almost at a standstill in Capricorn and is going to turn retrograde the following day. Uh, I'll have more Mercury uh, retrograde details on an upcoming slide. This is the final Mercury retrograde of the year. And Venus and Scorpio will be opposite Jupiter. In Taurus. So this is a deep dive into our beliefs and values on this day. So all of this is really powerful, really lending the energy favorably toward dreaming into our 2024 intentions. The solstice will be on December 21st. 
And then we will have the full moon in Cancer, December 26th or 27th, depending on your time zone. The sun will be at four degrees of Capricorn, the moon at four degrees of Cancer. And we have a lot of trines and sextiles. We have the sun trine Jupiter, moon sextile Jupiter, sun sextile Saturn, moon trine Saturn, and Jupiter sextile Saturn. I know that was like a mouthful, but basically what that means is (laughs) that this new moon is working very favorably with Jupiter and Saturn, and Jupiter and Saturn are working favorably with one another. This is a wonderful, harmonious energy to complete the year. This full moon in Cancer is going to help us to calm and soothe any wounds or traumas that have been brought up by the eclipses so that we can see them in a new light, so that we can really feel and receive the healing that's been wanting to come through. And this will be a time when we feel guided to use the lessons and use the understandings that we've gained this year to find personal and spiritual growth expansion, inspiration, hope, and we'll be able to step more fully into an understanding of how to build our radical new world, both personally and collectively. We also have Jupiter turning direct on December 30th. Yay. So Jupiter continues to be sextile Saturn on this day. And this is really powerful as Jupiter is going direct once again for creating financial abundance and success because of the things we've learned. Um, from this Jupiter retrograde. So a really beautiful ending to a very dynamic year. <laughs> um, so once again, I would love to have you write in the comments your thoughts, um, your ideas. And I have a few more slides to share with you here about a few other transits coming up early in 2024. But tell me now in the comments, how does all this move you? What are you looking forward to? Where do you think you'll have the biggest transformations happening? Um, I would love to hear in the chat. This is such a powerful time that we're in, and I'm going to share a little bit about that here, too, before we close for the day. Now, I do need to tell you about this Mercury retrograde. This is Mercury retrograde conjunct the galactic center. How amazing. So this Mercury retrograde will begin in Capricorn, and then we'll go to Sagittarius. It will be happening from eight degrees of Capricorn, moving backwards all the way to 22 degrees of Sagittarius. So look and see where do you have 22 degrees Sagittarius to eight degrees of Capricorn in your chart. Um, Mercury will be working with you around the themes of that place in your chart from December 13th, 2023 to January 1st, 2024. Here are the themes that will be coming up during this Mercury retrograde. Connections with our ancestors, re-enlivening our our relationships with those who came before us, redefining work and success. So where am I working too hard? Or alternatively, where do you need to apply yourself more seriously in order to achieve your goals? Career change or realizing you need a career change is quite possible during this time. Working with the earth, ley lines, sacred sites, energetic portals to amplify our spiritual connection. Also, shamanic practices, vision quests, rites of passage, ritual, and ceremony will all be extremely powerful during this time and very profound learning experiences for us and recalibrating experiences for us during this time. Um, Bringing in the Sagittarian influence will be opening up optimism and bringing inspiring new core beliefs into our daily life. Traveling to sacred sites or energy centers of the earth will be very supported. And with this happening so close to the galactic center and even, you know, directly with the galactic center part of the time, 
remembering our star origins will be really important. The galactic center is the place in the cosmos where our galaxy was birthed from. So you may feel moved to connect with your star families or take shamanic journeys to the galactic center to see what wisdom is held there for you. And this is one more reminder to claim the alchemical astrology chart reading guide so you can really move through this year and look at all of those planetary movements I just shared with you and really see clearly where they are in your chart and what they mean for you. So be sure to claim this guide. The link will be right below this video in the description field. Now, there are two crucially important transits in 2024. You will want to know about these in advance, so I wanted to be sure to include them here. One is, and all of the students and and, and all of my classes know about this because it's so huge, we are going to have a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Taurus. And so this will be exact from April 18th to the 24th, but very strong really through most of the month of April 2024. And this is a huge time of opportunity. This is a time to do something bold, something daring, to really surprise yourself, to break the rules. Don't let anything hold you back. So I invite you even now, even in this, you know, early, early time of 2023, I invite you to really begin planning. What do you want to do in April 2024 that's going to change your life, that's going to set you free, that's going to liberate you? And it will be, of course, based on everything you learned throughout all we just talked about in 2023, right? But you can start planning for this now. This is extremely beneficial and optimistic and really brings us unexpected leaps towards success. If there is something that you are wanting to do related to entrepreneurship, bringing your voice, your gifts, your healing, your talents to the world, I invite you to connect with me and connect with the Sacred Planet community um, because we have so much to offer you, including the Radical New World Building Group and Soulful Summit Creation Programs. Um, this is just an amazing opportunity, and I want everybody to be aware, everybody to, to know in advance what is the big leap that you're going to be taking in April 2024, and I am here to support you in that in any way if it might be uh, feel aligned for you. Jupiter and Uranus say, take a risk that you know in your heart is aligned. You are supported now, okay? And this is about exploration, innovation, revolutionary change in service to higher consciousness and enlightened value systems, faith and courage, ingenuity, creativity. And this is the really big piece, the ability to leap off a cliff toward a new and as yet unseen future and then make that future happen really powerfully. And there's a beautiful Rumi quote from this for this. This is my favorite Rumi quote in the whole world. Forget safety, live where you fear to live, destroy your reputation be notorious. And of course, when we step into our fullest expression, our fullest life, our fullest passion and the highest values, it would never destroy our reputation. It will only build that reputation into all that it is meant to be and all that you are truly meant to be. The other transit I want you to be aware of in 2024 is very early in the, in the new year and it will be uh, when the North Node and Chiron are within one degree of each other all the way from January 31st to March 5th, 2024. And this is happening between 15 to 17 degrees of Aries. 
So the North Node is the future, the direction your soul is pulling you toward, and Chiron is the wounded healer. So this is where your deepest wound, which you're meant to heal in this lifetime, um, is located in your chart and in the collective. Now, once you heal this wound, the healing journey gives you the wisdom and experience to be the teacher, healer, and guide for others. So this is a key point in our charts about how we're meant to embrace our purpose and mission, really giving us that how. Like, what are we meant to be the teacher and healer and guide of? Oh, it's whatever we healed from our Chiron wound that gave us the experience to then go and help and heal others. So this time, January 31st to March 5th, 2024, is an extremely potent moment to help you leap toward your highest evolution through doing your own deepest healing. So you want to really make space during this time to be in retreat mode, to be in ritual or ceremonial space as much as possible during this five-week window. And when you make time for healing, you'll be able to more fully and effectively receive the shifts, receive the evolutionary knowledge that you are meant to during this time. So this is something to be aware of in advance, a beautiful opportunity bringing new understandings and revelations as well. So to close out our time here, I have just a few multidimensional reminders to help you navigate this year. So we need to remember that we are literally birthing the new world from within each and every one of us. This does not always feel easy. It's beautiful. It's miraculous, but it doesn't feel easy, right? Now, we are here at this time. Those of us who are alive here at this time, it's because we're meant to be here. We have what it takes to do this deep, deep work. And we know in our hearts that the old world, old patterns, our own inner traumas, doubts, fears, limitations, all need to be demolished before the new world can rise up anew. And this is where it gets hard, right? So it can feel very uncomfortable, yet we need to really rest in a deep trust that all of this is occurring in far more magical ways and with a much bigger arc of a plan that we're all a, a, a very, very important part of, right? in more magical ways than we can um, possibly comprehend. And we want to really focus on the beauty. So knowing that the world could throw some strange things our way in 2023 based on the intensity of some of these transits, right? In our personal lives, we will continue to release the old to make room for the new. And so the best thing we can do is really adjust our perspective to focus on the beauty Focus on the light, the miracles, the simple joys, and the pleasures as much as we possibly can. I think one really practical way to do this, to just bring more light into your life in a very physical way, is to be with the sunrises and sunsets as much as you can. Do breath work during that time. Breathe in the light of the sun as well as taking it in through your eyes and through your skin. Really let that light in. Let that light illuminate you. It will help you to bring light to all the gifts you hold inside and bring light to the healing process and so forth. And so focusing on the beauty, focusing on the light will help us to stay grounded and help us to stay connected to source. And I use the word source. You can use the word God or creator or universe, whatever you want. Okay. But staying connected to source is truly the best way to keep your heart lifted 
even as your mind is negotiating difficult decisions or you're moving through difficult healing, whatever it might be. And really remember, our hearts can handle this even when our minds cannot. Allow your heart and your intuition to lead the way. Your heart can understand the profoundly transformational nature of these times. Your mind may be at a complete loss or stuck in anxiety or overwhelm. So really stay in your heart. Don't let your thoughts carry you away. Round back into the heart. Allow your inner wisdom to guide you through. It's also really important to know that huge amounts of light are streaming in to support us at this time. Mm -hmm. We've seen the auroras or pictures of the auroras everywhere recently. The solar flares, all of this is occurring at unprecedented levels. There are also geological changes within the earth that have not happened for many thousands of years. So this is huge assistance from the earth and cosmos coming to support and guide and protect us. And what I believe, and from my studies of ancient Egypt and other ancient cultures, is that through this light coming in, we are going to be returning. We already are starting to return to a level of consciousness that we have not seen for 8,000 or even 10,000 years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just let that sink in a little bit, you know. <laughs> and what's happening here is we're regaining access to a perception of reality that we had access to as humanity 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 years ago or more, but not any time recent, not in any of our recent generations have we felt anything like this, okay? So this feels unfamiliar. If you feel like you're going crazy at this time, center back into the heart. You're not going crazy. It's just that our experience of reality is truly shifting. We are living in this time that was told of in the prophecies from literally every continent where humans lived since the far ancient times. We're living at the time that is the in the 26,000 year and uh, 13,000 year cycles of the precession of the equinoxes coming back to the beginning point. All right. It's massive what's happening right now. And it is truly an honor to be here, to be living here on the earth right now. We're living through some of the intense, most intense times and simultaneously a time when the possibilities for miracles, magic, synchronicities and new understandings of reality are all expanded for us at this time. And this is a time of extremes and polarity. The brightest light and the darkest dark are here for us side by side, both very much within our experience. Huge divisions are happening among people. We see this everywhere. Life and death are right here with us, side by side. This is part of the ancient consciousness that's coming back in. It's more intense than what we've been accustomed to. We've been accustomed to this construct of, of thinking we can control everything and keep everything, you know, exactly as we want it. And we need to really open to the much vaster possibilities that are there when we let go of control, when we surrender to these very powerful cosmic forces coming in. Um, and we need to remember that we are strong and courageous enough to handle it. And however difficult things may feel, the opposite extreme is equally available. So when you're in the darkness, remember the light is still here. Reach toward the light. We are living in a time of a modern day mystery school in which we are being trained by life events rather than going through the mystery school training. 
to navigate and learn mastery in handling these extreme situations, extremes, and polarity. We are learning ultimate levels of resilience and courage so we can hold a calm and steady center through all of it. All right. And as we become more proficient at holding that calm and steady center, then we can go on to support others on their path of awakening. And this is so that all together we can bring the light forward in these years to come. So I will leave you with that. I hope this has been very, very helpful to you. And again, come back to this report again and again all throughout the rest of 2023. Check back in, see what the themes are coming up next month for you, et cetera, as you go. And do be sure to claim that astrological chart reading guide that is based on my principles of alchemical astrology that I've been developing in Sacred Planet. I hope you will go ahead and claim that. Really enjoy it. The link to that is in the description field below. Again, I am Jocelyn Starfeather, founder of Sacred Planet. It's been a joy to share this with you today. I hope it will be extremely helpful on your journey of life throughout 2023. So much love to you, many blessings, and I'll see you again soon. Well, okay. <laughs> um, wow, that was a, a lot. lot. That was a lot. And um, did you look, did you send it to Penny Room? I think I did. I got to go and look. Okay. Rama's going to look and make sure, and then we'll keep it in the archives, and then we'll have to check back on some of the things she shared with us as we go. Um, Greg Braden. Central Digital Bank Currency. Yes, Central Digital Bank Currency roll-out phase. Has begun. Beyond <laughs> um, mainstream narrative, episode three, central district bank, digital bank currency rollout phase has begun. The the white paper for international digital bank currency officially out. What all these? What all these? Things mean well. This means to us, and are we? Um, and are the bank banks trying to mimic Bitcoin? Hmm. Mm-hmm. A disruptive technology with tremendous potential. Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a that's that one's an hour, Rama. Yeah, I didn't look at that. Um, I think you should. Yeah. Um, well, let's play what you got. You got you got it. Yes. Okay. If this is what twenty eight minutes, and mm-hmm. and then you can go in the other room and see if you can find that other one. I think we should play that. Mm. 
Yeah, he's not. He's not going to put something out that's not. I have a lot of things from Gaia we need to play. Yes, I do. I do know that. That doesn't not does not mean that this is impression, Mm Rama. to this edition of In Focus. I want to talk to you about a topic that is on a lot of people's minds. It's uh, it's a delicate topic, and it is delicate because people are basing their opinions upon the information, the disinformation, the misinformation that's being fed to them through the mainstream, and it is something that affects every one of our lives every day, and that is the central bank digital currency, CBDCs, that are being proposed. What are they? What do they mean? Are they a good thing? Are they a bad thing? You know, I was speaking uh, to a friend of mine recently, and what he said to me echoes what so many people are hearing in the mainstream. Aren't central bank digital currencies simply the government's version of of a Bitcoin? Boy, nothing could be further from the truth, and I want to talk to you about why that is. And I want to talk to you about where we are in this rollout. It is happening, and uh, and it's happening in ways that are not openly shared in the mainstream. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. There was a conference that was held in Washington, D.C. in April of this year, 2023. It was April 10th. The conference was the World Bank Group International Monetary Fund, and it was during this conference that a white paper was announced from the Digital Currency Monetary Authority. Now, most of us have never even heard of these organizations, or if we have, we don't spend a lot of time keeping current on what they're saying. The Digital Currency Monetary Authority announced uh, the release of a white paper, and it is available, and I'm, I'm sharing with you the um, uh, where you can find this white paper. There's the reference on, on the screen here. The white paper is announcing the existence of a digital currency that has already been developed uh, by the the Digital Currency Monetary Authority. Um, and the reason that this is important, here's the uh, showing where the paper is actually coming from. The reason this paper is important is because it's announcing the launch of a international bank digital currency, IBDC, This is very different from what we've been led to believe. We've been told that the idea of a digital currency is in its infancy, that it's in the research stage. Uh, I want to get the exact date here. Uh, President Joe Biden signed an executive order, 14067, in March of 2022, so about a year ago, that allowed the development of a central bank digital currency What this white paper is saying is we're past that development stage. It is already implemented. The infrastructure is now already in place on the world monetary system level to be adopted at uh, at local levels or at national levels by by different countries. 
So this is a very, very different way uh, of, of thinking from what we've been led to believe. We've been told that this is, you know, two or three years down the road. And what the white paper is saying is this is here. And we actually know this is here because the Bank of Canada has given its citizens until middle of June. I believe it's June 19th. I, I could be wrong on that date. But it's sometime in mid-June for public comment on whether or not the uh, the Bank of Canada is going to implement the central bank digital currencies. If the citizens, if the Canadian citizens want that central bank digital currency, and they're being given a lot of reasons of why this is, is a good thing. So I, I want to talk to you about this because same thing is happening here in the United States. Uh, it's being cloaked under different names. There's some really, really sexy marketing out there that makes the, the central bank digital currency look really appealing. So I want to talk to you about what it is. Neurologists are stunned. They've confirmed that ear ringing is shrinking your brain cells. Tinnitus is now known as precursor dementia, according to the Mayo Clinic, where doctors have made a shocking discovery that changes everything. What it means, why it's not Bitcoin, how it differs, differs from Bitcoin, and why Bitcoin is even in this conversation at all. So I'll just begin by acknowledging it's a very complex issue, and I will do my best to do justice to the conversation in this in this brief uh, brief video. I'm going to try to keep it brief, and to do that, I'm going to refer to other topics that I've already developed the videos on. We'll put the links down below, so I don't have to be redundant and and share it all here. Central bank digital currency. What is it? It is essentially a digital version of the money. Uh, or the currency, which is not actually money that we have existing right now. Why do I say it's not money? For something to be money, it has to be backed by something that is concrete, tangible, and of value. And uh, the, the currency that we have right now is no longer backed by gold or anything else that is, uh, is of value. The value of the dollar is based upon the trust in the United States government and the faith in the United States system of, of banking. Well, I think you all know that our system is in trouble, and a lot of that is because the powers that be have abused the trust that has been placed in them when it comes to the banking system, when it comes to, to the financial system. We talk about this in, in some of the other videos. The dollar has been weaponized. It's used as sanctions. Uh, against other nations. It is being manipulated. This is the reason we have inflation. Uh, it is the reason that interest rates are rising right now to try to curb that inflation. Uh, it's all about the abuse of power when it comes to the dollar. And this has a lot to do with why this digital currency is being put into place. So, so the currency itself, it is based upon the idea of, of a blockchain, and the blockchain technology I talk about uh, in one of the videos posted below, it is the, the technology that allows uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to be what they are. But here's, here's the difference. The crypto blockchains, Bitcoin is a distributed, non-centralized uh, form of digital currency. The central bank digital currency is just that. It is being issued, it's being regulated by the central bank. So it's a digital version of a dollar that's already broken. There's nothing backing our dollar, and that's why your purchasing power is declining so quickly because so many 
dollars are being flooded into the system in what's called quantitative easing, every one of those dollars, digital dollars, or the the imaginary dollars that are being put in there now, you know, it's it's uh, it's about adding zeros on a computer in a, a centralized location. Every one of those that is added dilutes the value of what you have in your savings account and your checking account. And we're seeing so much dilution now. That's what the inflation is really all about, in spite of what we're being told. We're being given all kinds of reasons for the inflation. The bottom line is that there is nothing backing the dollar, so there's nothing stopping the central banks from printing uh, additional dollars, which is what the debt ceiling debate is all about that's happening right now while we're having this conversation. So central bank digital currency, it is a digital version of the dollar that's already there. It is centralized. It is not distributed like Bitcoin is. And what that means, the centralization means it can be controlled. Every dollar can be programmed. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, technology is just technology. It's not good, bad, right or wrong. It's the thinking underlying the technology that determines how it's applied in, in our lives. So the idea of, uh, of a digital currency, what we're being told is it's convenient, it's safe, it's secure. Uh, at what cost do we want that convenience, safety and security? Uh-huh. Because a digital currency, every dollar can be programmed. Now, what does that mean? That means that you can be forced to use that money in very specific ways. For example, if we're talking about universal basic income, which is on a lot of people's minds, if all of a sudden uh, a certain amount of money, say $1,000 a month, shows up in your account from the universal basic income and it is in programmable currency, what that means is that your $1,000 can have an expiration date. You can be told you must spend this $1,000 by the end of this 30 days or it disappears to force you to put that money into the system prevents you from saving that money. How can you create savings if uh, if your money that is digital, it's nothing you can hold in your hand if it is being programmed or if you are spending your money on things that are not socially acceptable. Well, you go to use your credit card to buy gasoline for your vehicle. If the gasoline that you're buying, that is going to show up as a, a, a fuel purchase in a programmable currency. And if you have driven more in a 30-day period than is believed to be socially acceptable, or if you're using too much fuel of a certain kind, you're going beyond a certain radius, uh, it can be, you, you could be either denied that purchase or you could be fined because you're driving more than what the, you know, the limits say these should be. Now, this sounds a little crazy to some people, but the climate change conversation, this is why this is such a complex, a complex topic, because our finances are linked into so many different different facets of our lives and the climate change narrative, the disinformation, the misinformation about climate change, which I address in many videos and uh, on this channel uh, and the levels of CO2 and, and all of that. If that narrative is the foundation for the social policies that are being driven in our society, and that's exactly what's happening, then uh, it's not so far fetched that we could be forced to, to limit 
how we commute, how we drive and things like that through this digital currency, you could be prevented from making certain purchases or giving money to people that you want to give money to. Now, does it mean these things will happen? It doesn't mean they will happen. It means that this makes it possible in a way that is not possible with the currencies that, that we're using right now. So it allows for surveillance. And the bottom line for all of this, it allows for an unprecedented level of control. Now, is control a good thing or a bad thing? Is it right or wrong? Again, it's the context within which that control is occurring. If you believe that you are living under a system of governance that cares about you, that wants to protect you, that is a benevolent system and that everything they would put in place would only be helpful to you and for the betterment of your life and the life of your family, then this is a perfect system. And if you believe that something other than that is happening, then this is a system that you may want to to rethink. Uh, it's being called the digital Bitcoin. Now, I have two videos on, on Bitcoin and blockchain technology, so I won't go into, you know, all, all of the details. But the bottom line to Bitcoin, it was developed by a mysterious developer. To this day, we do not know with absolute certainty. There have been lawsuits. That Your bug spray should take out bugs, not keep out people. Unlike other sprays that stick around, Zevo goes from kill to clean in just seconds. Plus, it's safe for use around people and pets. People friendly, bug deadly. Right now, get shorts from just $15 only at Olavianolavian.com. There are speculations, but the, the point is to this day, we do not know who developed Bitcoin specifically. It was under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto. We don't know if that was an individual, a consortium. Uh, we do not know that. It was developed after the financial crisis in 08, precisely because of the financial crisis in 08. In that crisis, banks abused the privilege of banking. Governments abused the privilege of being able to, to maintain uh, a financial system. And the printing of the money, what was called um, quantitative easing one, quantitative, quantitative easing two, quantitative easing three. Then we went to Q infinity and we're still quantitative easing. Quantitative easing. We're printing money. We did this uh, over COVID, uh, creating more money in the system in two years than has been in the system since the system began, diluting the value of the dollar. So to prevent this kind of manipulation, Satoshi Nakamoto developed Bitcoin. It is uh, a peer-to-peer system, which means that you and I can have transactions without going through a centralized authority, without going through a central bank. If you want to wire money, you know, if you want to wire money today, you have to go down during banking hours, so you're limited on when you can do it. You're going to pay a fee. The bank asks you all kinds of questions about why you're sending the money, where it comes from, who it's going to. And uh, and it can take uh, up to three days for that wire to actually go through. We're a peer-to-peer system. It takes up a matter of a fraction, fractions of seconds. Uh, you know, for people that are, I mean, there's so many applications where this, this becomes important. 
If you are an immigrant in this country and you're working to send money back to your family in another country, the traditional systems, you go through the banking, you go through Western Union or something like that, they're going to take their fees. They're, then the governments on the other end are going to take their fees. And by the time that money gets to your family, they have only a fraction of what it was that you intended to send to them. That's not the case with Bitcoin. It is a peer-to-peer non-centralized system. The central bank digital currency is a centralized system that is controlled. Bitcoin cannot be controlled. And that is one of the reasons uh, of the concern. That's why uh, the, the central banks are urging people not to accept digital currencies or, or they're lumping all cryptocurrencies into one basket. I'm going to make a distinction. Bitcoin is completely separate from all of the other cryptocurrencies that are out there. Bitcoin was the original blockchain. It has never been hacked. It is one of the most secure. It's it's based on what is called SHA-256 encryption algorithms developed. Uh, this is what NSA uses to encrypt their algorithms. Uh, just to give you an idea, and I, I talk about this in the videos, to hack this kind of an algorithm, I want to tell you how, how safe the actual blockchain is. If you take the number of atoms that physicists uh, estimate exist in the universe, that is the number of attempts, the number of times, the number of combinations that a computer would have to go through to find and, and the, the right uh, numbers and to, to break into the uh, Bitcoin blockchain. So some point down the road, quantum computers may be able to do this. Right now, uh, it is unbreakable. It's never been hacked. It is the most secure uh, blockchain. What has been hacked are the platforms that host the Bitcoin, the digital banks that are uh, have been run with greed and corruption, uh, like FTX is, is a beautiful example. That's probably the best-known example. But the Bitcoin was never hacked. It was the place where it was stored. So Bitcoin is decentralized. Central bank digital currencies are centralized. Bitcoin cannot be controlled. Central bank digital currencies are 100% controlled. Uh, Bitcoin is a transparent ledger. You have 100% visibility to every transaction that precedes the one where you have that, that Bitcoin uh, in your possession, in your digital possession. It's not the case with central bank digital currencies. You don't have access to that kind of transparency. Uh, and it is not as secure. The Bitcoin is secure. The central bank digital currencies uh, do not have that level of security. So although they are based upon crypto principles, they are not Bitcoin. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking about Bitcoin while I'm talking about the CBDCs. The other reason is people are asking, okay, if we're going to go to a CBDC, if we don't have any say about it, you know, what's interesting is governments want it, central banks want it, and when you ask the people, they do not want it. Do we have a say in what our financial system looks like? Well, we do, maybe not the way you think, because if you do not want to be a part of that system, you have to find an alternative system. What are the alternative systems that are not centralized and that are not regulated and that are not subject to the the level of, of manipulation. Historically, it has been things like precious metals. We all know this, like gold and silver, which can be manipulated in the markets. The prices have been suppressed and they, they have been manipulated, but not to the degree 
that the that the dollar has, uh, and they are concrete, uh, tangible assets. You you know you you can hold that in in your hand. The new alternative now uh, includes Bitcoin. There's a banking crisis that is happening in the world, and it's not over. And I talk about that banking crisis in another video. Uh, because people are concerned about what's happening with their money in the banks, they're pulling their money out of the banks, and they're looking for alternatives. Where can they put their money for long-term uh, uh, store of value? And they are looking at precious metals. They are looking at gold. They are looking at silver. And a whole lot of people, including the big, um, the big investment companies like Vanguard and BlackRock, uh, may not like them, but they're smart people. And they see what's happening. They know what's coming. They are putting a substantial portion of their money into Bitcoin. Bitcoin, uh, as I've mentioned in the, the, the video that is linked below, it uh, it is a people say where is the value in Bitcoin? It's based on nothing. The value is based number one on its scarcity. Only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created. 19 of those have already been mined through the the digital process called mining. Uh, there is a four year cycle that Bitcoin goes through uh, where it typically is tremendously volatile. And you're seeing that now it will reach a peak and it will usually retrace 50, at least 50 percent, maybe 80 percent of, of its value. But year over. I mean, if you watch it every day, it will give you whiplash watching the value of Bitcoin. But year over year, uh, it is uh, it is unparalleled in terms of preservation of wealth. If you look. From 2009, when it was introduced until today, year over year, it outperforms the S&P, it outperforms uh, the Dow, it outperforms commodities, everything. So if you're looking for an alternative, this is one of the places where the financially savvy people are putting at least a portion of their, um, uh, you know, of of the, the what they value. Now, I can't give financial advice. Now, this isn't financial advice. I'm simply sharing what's happening. And many of you have asked about alternatives. We have to say that Bitcoin now is an alternative. Securities and Exchange Commission has identified uh, Bitcoin as a commodity, not um, uh, it, it, it's, I, it is taxed like a commodity is taxed. So uh, so that decision came down, I think, 2018, 17, 18, somewhere around in there. So it is not a security. It's not taxed like if you own shares, uh, you know, of Apple or, you know, IBM or, or something, something like that, it's taxed uh, completely differently. So, uh, personally, what I would say is I think it's, uh, it's a good idea never to put all of your eggs in one basket. You would never want to put your life savings into any one place, into digital. Digital is only good as long as the internet is up. And if you lose power from some black swan event, like a solar flare or, you know, a nuclear detonation or whatever, you can't access your Bitcoin. So you don't want to have all, all of that, um, 
you know, your, your family's entire wealth and something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's always a good idea to, to have some concrete assets. People buy land, they buy food, they invest in food, agricultural land, farmland, precious metals, primarily gold and, and silver, which have been seen and valued as money for over 5,000 years and, and were uh, in the United States. We had uh, gold and silver backing our currencies until 1971, so when, when we depegged from, uh, from the, the gold standard. So the central bank digital currencies, they are electronic. Um, they, they mimic some of the principles of cryptocurrencies. And what we're being told is all of the convenience. Yeah, it, it can be convenient. You know, to a large extent, many of us have stopped using cash anyway, partly because it's not accepted. I have been to stores where I tried to pay in cash and they just look at me like, you know, I'm from another planet. They won't take my cash. I travel a lot for business, obviously, and I, I'm forced to use credit cards when I travel if I want to have food and water and, um, you know, things like that as I'm going through the, the cities and the airports. So a lot of us uh, have been forced to, to use primarily credit cards anyway. So that's not the problem. And I want to be really clear. The idea of the digital currency. I, I have no problem with that from a technological perspective. It's a, a technological answer to money. It's the context within which it's being offered. It is the politics of the nations that we live in today, the movement to take away freedoms for governments to have more and more and more control, largely driven by ideas, utopian ideas, uh, of an agenda and a world that a handful of people believe that we need. This is the, the world where everything is digital. It's called the singularity, where where everything that we have is digital, everything that our bodies are, are becoming digital if we adopt the, the technology that is being offered into our blood and into our, our veins and into our, our organs and our bodies. This is, uh, there are a couple of, competing visions based upon competing agendas for what the world should look like. And it becomes much more possible to achieve those agendas and visions if the world is controlled through a digital currency. So different countries are, are posing this differently. The UK, uh, they've got their version. The, uh, the Bank of England is offering their version. A lot of South American banks are offering their version. Like I say, Canada is putting it to their people as to whether or not they want it or not. America, it's coming. And these central bank digital currencies were piloted in three U.S. cities on the East Coast in the New England area, uh, I believe it was December of 2022. If they're piloting, it means they already exist. They're testing them in the markets. The white paper that I just shared with you says the technology is already there. So right there, what we have been told is is simply not supported by the evidence. We're not in the early stage. We're not in the development stage. Uh, this isn't an idea of something years down the road. And we need to be aware of of where this is and what it is that we are supporting because it's going to influence how we go forward in every facet of our lives because every facet of your life is linked to an economy and your ability to participate in that economy to the degree that you do. So if you, if you want to participate in society, this is an important conversation. 
so my personal opinion is that this could be a very dangerous step at this point in our social evolution because of the context of where we are, because of the, the overreach by governments into every facet of our lives. This is a pathway that allows even deeper overreach. So this is a question. It's a very deep and personal question you have to ask yourself. Do you believe that the government of the country, I realize people from outside the U.S. are watching this. Do you believe the government of your country cares about you, mm. has your best interests in mind, and that everything they would do or develop is to help you have a better life, to help you be happier, healthier, more fulfilled, uh, to, to be able to support yourself and your families in the best way possible? And if your answer to that is yes, then a digital currency may be the way that you want to go. And if your answer to that is no, then I've given you a couple of alternatives, something to think about. All right. So I hope this helps to understand these these ideas of, uh, of digital currencies and where they are. I didn't want to get really technical, but I want you to know that we're out of the development stage. The implementation, all of the infrastructure exists and the implementation uh, is the phase that we're in right now. So drop me a line. Let me know how you feel about this. If you want me to go deeper, if you think you need more detail, check out the other videos I've already done where I go deep into blockchain. I go deep into Bitcoin, what it is and what it is not. I go deep into the banking crisis, uh, all on this YouTube channel. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with me today. I look forward to our next. Okay. Yes, Dr. Greg Reichen, Doctor of Banking Institutional mm-hmm. Currencies and Non-Ones. Um, there's more he's putting out. He's going to walk this one all the way through. Yet, Rama says there's other things too, so this is what we're going to watch next. It's called Preparing for Contact. Um, on the conference call our dear friend Chip was talking about the perseverance on staying with these calls had a direct experience with his whole family and he he lives in Florida not too far from Tampa but uh, they saw the starships right outside the door there were about 30 people gathered in the street there. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are more and more of the ships are landing and the deboarding. I was re- recollecting Dr. Daniel Fry. Rama, maybe you could find him and see if he's there. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time, but saw a, a fully... A, a huge, fully decloaked starship. It was the, at midnight, but the stars are out there, and I think there was a full moon or something, and this mm. huge mothership, it lowered itself, um, not fully to the ground, but hovered over the trees, like our brother Chin was saying, the the, the ships that they saw were hovering over the trees. Uh, and, and, and they were right at the far end of this lake and there was 
myself and four other ladies that were sitting at the end of the pier and like a screen porch on there on the pier. And uh, we all saw this together. And they, uh, I use the word shapeshifted into looking like pilgrims. And I think that the communication, if I remember, it was not to scare not to scare anybody, that we're not here to scare anybody. And so they chose the pilgrim, donned the pilgrim attire, and, um, oh, my. That was way back in the 80s. But uh, this one here, Ricardo Share, Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho is his name. Ricardo shares his research on the beginning of the encounters that, according to him, began almost half a century ago in Latin America. It was Fabio Zerpa, parapsychologist and researcher of extraterrestrials, who suggested to J. Allen Hynek in a ufology conference on in Acapulco that the topology of these encounters be expanded and it was Zerpa who created the term close encounters of the fifth kind which is used today explore the protocols for originating contact with non-human intelligences of your own initiative. The types of contacts there are and the differences between them. Um, hmm, that doesn't sound like a sentence. Mm-hmm. The types of contacts there are something, I think there's a word after that, are it's not visible on the, on the paper and the differences between them. According to Ricardo, this purpose, the purpose of these contacts is to bring together and support people who have had these experiences and generate a critical mass that helps inspire the awakening of the mind and thus produce a change that favors the future of humanity. So this is 40 minutes. So we'll get started, Rama. Mm. 10.32. Telepathic messages. The projection of consciousness. Typology of close encounters. Are there protocols for contact? I'm Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho. Welcome aboard the Ark of Time. Throughout this program, we've analyzed the contact experiences with non-human intelligences. Cases such as 
Parravicini in Argentina or George Zamsky in the United States are still open files in ufology. But is it possible to enter into communication with these beings through your own initiative? Are their preparation protocols preparing for an encounter with them? Let's talk first about the classic typology of close encounters. Many will remember the famous film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. A 20-year-old, Steven Spielberg, was making known the contact experiences that he had investigated, perhaps the U.S. Air Force, and other scholars through a science fiction film. However, he was advised by many of these researchers, among them one who we already mentioned, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an American astrophysicist who was an advisor to the United States Air Force to investigate sightings of unidentified flying objects. It was precisely Hynek who created the famous typology of close encounters in three categories that describe the event and the witness. In the first place, we will talk about the sighting, the close encounter of typology one, when an unidentified object appears and is observed by one or more witnesses. Sometimes it can be photographed, sometimes it can be filmed, and it would be a first approach, the UFO sighting. But then there is a closer approach. That is within typology two of the close encounters from Dr. Hynek. In this case, some scholars consider that this is the landing, the marks, footprints in the field associated with the UFO sighting when it lands or takes off. These important signs are left in the place where it has manifested itself. Other scholars, in fact, also associate paranormal or strange phenomena that could be related to the approach of the object. For example, if a person is at home and has that irrepressible feeling to go to the park outside of the house and suddenly observes the object and animals, pets, start barking, leaves fall off the trees. That type of phenomena is so typical in close encounters. This would also include Category 2 from Dr. Hynek, but Category 3, the one that lends its name to Steven Spielberg's film, is a lot more disturbing because we are no longer just in the proximity of an object, but also crew, occupants, beings, entities associated with the sighting. The close encounter of the third kind, contact with these beings, whoever they are. And obviously, all this has led to a great discussion in ufology. If these beings correspond to extraterrestrial entities, operating vehicles with technology that escapes our imagination, that evasively appears in our skies. And, on very rare occasions, they have landed, and they have been observed by multiple witnesses, like the case of the famous policeman Lonnie Samora in Socorro, which was the case that convinced Dr. Hynek that something very extraordinary was happening. Or maybe we're facing another type of beings that are not necessarily extraterrestrial entities. This is another hypothesis for close encounters that they possibly could be creatures that come from the underground world, from intraterrestrial bases, entities that have developed in silence, 
While humans on the surface weren't aware of them, others talk about interdimensional creatures that could be crossing over from other dimensions, from other realities, and manifesting themselves in our time. And more than a few consider, as Dr. Heinrich also contemplated in his day, as well as Dr. Jacques Vallée, that they were only holograms, that there was nothing physical, that an unknown intelligent phenomenon managed to slip into the psyche of those contact witnesses, making them believe that they were seeing vehicles and that they were seeing occupants of the alleged UFOs. But here I wonder, how can we interpret cases of these objects that have been photographed, filmed, that have left marks on the ground with very high temperatures where samples have been studied and certified by leading laboratories. Fighter pilots, combat trained pilots from the United States and other nations of the earth who have seen these objects recorded on radar moving at supersonic speeds. Is that by chance a hologram? Does this fit the hallucination theory? I think that in the case of close encounters, there's a little bit of everything I call it the multi-source hypothesis. In 1977, Uruguayan ufologist who resided in Argentina, Fabio Serpa, one of the pioneers of UFO research in Latin America since the 1960s, had participated in a conference in that year, 1977, in Acapulco, Mexico. He was accompanied by other great scholars among whom I could mention Antonio Rivera, Dr. Heineck himself, and Jacques Vallée, and some contact witnesses, such as Enrique Castillo Rincón. It was then that Fabio Serpa suggested to Dr. Heineck that this typology of close encounters should be expanded, not stuck to the classic three moments, sighting, landing, and the face-to-face -face meeting with the alleged crew members of the UFO. They should add a typology for close encounters that allow the witness to be taken away inside the extraterrestrial ship. Famous cases such as, for example, the controversial Betty and Barney Hill. The Hills in 1961 were carried by some strange creatures inside a UFO and they lost their memories of that experience until they could recover them through hypnosis thanks to Dr. Benjamin Simon or the case of Travis Walton in the Arizona forests in the 1970s. They are close encounters of the fourth type because the witness was inside the ship. And it was Fabio Serva who said at that Congress in Acapulco in 1977 in Mexico to Dr. Heineck that there should also be a typology number five. Close encounters of the fifth kind are associated with telepathy, communication through consciousness. Since Serpa had investigated several cases, such as the one-sided Castillo Rincón, where there was a telepathic protocol of witness preparation, a protocol of intent, frequency, and vibration. Although this sounds very mystical, it allowed for the creation of the best communication conditions and contact with the extraterrestrials. And, in this case, We're talking about communication with extraterrestrials for purposes of friendly approach, as has been in our case and the others that we have been discussing throughout this program. Because there is a little of everything in the universe, and there are multiple cases, 
that have occurred on our planet. The typology of the fifth kind proposed by Serpa is comprised of psychic preparation, telepathic and extrasensory communication to get closer to the extraterrestrials. I emphasize and reiterate, he proposed this in 1977 at the Acapulco Conference in Mexico. That typology of the fourth and fifth kind is known as the Serpa classification. Something that is not well known in North American ufology, but which now is being spoken of, maybe due to empirical evidence through field experimentation, which correspond to close encounters. As you may recall, in previous episodes, we have referred to the case of Maria del Socorro Perez, Marla, who has had extraordinary experiences since the late 1960s, but her case began to become known in 1972. Her group also followed a telepathic preparation based on training of the mind through concentration techniques, meditation, all types of exercises to promote the development of the consciousness to enter into communication with entities of extraterrestrial origin. I will admit that when investigating these issues of consciousness, telepathy, meditation, even mantra techniques, or vocalization of power words, sound techniques, to harmonize groups of people who intended on initiating communication with extraterrestrials, I recognized that it made me a little wary. I thought that this was taking the investigation of UFO phenomenon and the extraterrestrial hypothesis too far toward a mystic experience, which could give rise to all types of confusion. What does telepathy, spirituality, this type of practice have to do with contact with civilizations from other worlds? I experienced this firsthand when in Peru, I investigated different close encounters in the desert of Chilca, a very special place of contact that became well known in 1974 thanks to Spanish journalist J.J. Benitez, who had participated in a scheduled sighting with the Rama group that I mentioned and is perhaps the most important contact movement in the history of Latin America. They, as well as Marla, and Castillo Rincón participated in some protocol of close encounters of the fifth kind, the telepathy, meditation, raising the frequency, attempting to make contact with beings from other worlds. It was then, in the field, in practice, that I realized that I was prejudiced, that I was wrong, and I actively participated in these kinds of experiences. I noticed that when the group on the field trips was more united, more sensitive, calmer, in perfect balance. All this was achieved through coexistence, through meditation practice, with the positive intention of attempting communication with the universe. This is when the experiences flowed better. Of course, this is not an abracadabra. It's not something magical that any person who practices these techniques will be guaranteed a close encounter with these beings because they too have their agendas. They also have their purposes and they know that their contact with ordinary witnesses like us is very complex. It is very difficult and they try not to intervene directly in our personal matters so as to not cause any problems, personal or social, with human beings. They are looking for people with resilience, 
able to adapt and not stick to just the phenomena or experiences, but who dare to share their testimony as we are doing right now. Not to convince you that these contacts and close encounters are real, but to invite other people who felt alone or ridiculed for having faced these contacts to feel supported and generate, as I've already said, a critical mass of consciousness which prepares the best contact conditions. My tribute goes out to my dear friend Fabio Serpa, who has already passed because he was the one who invented the term close encounters of the fifth kind. Of course, there are many protocols for contact, different techniques and different systems of understanding how these experiences occur. I have widely addressed it in my books, but in this episode, I will speak of four important pillars. This is the most important protocol. We call it the resonance protocol. It is based, according to the messages from the extraterrestrials themselves, on the equation light, form, and sound. This equation allows the contact witness to generate a field of ideal coherence to face these experiences and close encounters. In the first instance, it could be limited to mental experiences, holographic experiences, which we will talk about in a few moments. And in other episodes, much more intense face-to-face -face contacts, which could even imply the physical approach of these beings. This equation of light, form, and sound is not much different from old Eastern teachings that describe light as thought, the light of the mind. Shinta, deep thought, some Eastern scholars would say. The form could be related to the structure, to visualization practices with geometry exercises, or, even though this sounds strange or very different, practices involving certain positions of the human body, or some gestures known in the East as mudras, gestures of power to somehow fuse or manipulate forms of energy and consciousness. And finally, sound, which can be achieved with mantras or other techniques, which I have seen in the field. People harmonizing experiences in the field with sound bowls or even with some native instruments, as if it were a shamanic ceremony. In that vein, on my expeditions around the world, when I have lived with different native groups or shamans, they confessed to me to have observed bright objects in the sky that approached them, interacted with them, that gave off large beams of light, like flashes when they were singing, when they were reciting their mantras, or even when they were dancing and playing some kind of instrument. Incredible. It reminds me of the film that I mentioned, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Surely you will not have forgotten the scene in Dharamsala, in India. At the beginning of the film, a lot of people were chanting a mantra, and they had learned the sound, the frequency, the vibration emitted by the ship they had observed. That sound, the famous tan 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 tan, which was transformed into a mantra, ended up being the anthem of that famous film by Steven Spielberg. Then, the extraterrestrials and their communications suggested that in order to reach extraordinary states of consciousness as a means of communication with them and other realities, we had to work on this frequency of light, 
form, and sound. And it was done through meditation, concentration, visualization techniques of geometric shapes that were suggested, in fact, by these beings, such as, for example, the hypercube or the tesseract, which in his day, English mathematician Charles Howard Hinton called a contact route with the fourth dimension. In a book he published at the end of the 19th century, he even asked his students to try to visualize the tesseract in movement as a method of mental training to promote the awakening of the mind. Incredible. So all these techniques, light, form, and sound, have been applied by contact groups for many decades. I know that in the United States you are trying to study all this and apply it in the field. But in Latin America, these experiences have been happening for almost half a century. As a footnote on the mystery of the hypercube, as we have spoken on occasion, we live in a universe of three dimensions. Humans are in a universe, in our perception, of three dimensions, which are not the only ones. There are higher dimensions. Physics understands these dimensions as measurements, length, width, and depth. The fourth dimension would be time. Obviously, objects that move in a fourth or a fifth dimension are difficult to process, if not impossible. In more sensible terms, by the human mind, which is confined to the aforementioned third dimension. That's when the figure of the hypercube or tesseract emerged, which is a three-dimensional cube projected in the fourth dimension. The tesseract, however, is the reflection, the shadow of what a hypercube would probably be like in a fourth dimension. A hypercube in the fourth dimension is impossible to recreate in our brain, but we can see its reflection, its likeness, like its shadow in our reality, and that would be the hypercube. As suggested by Charles Howard Hinton, with the visualization of the hypercube, Ivica and Antarel, extraterrestrial beings who have entered into communication with different contact groups, suggested working with the hypercube figure through a visualization exercise. According to the extraterrestrials, visualization of the hypercube in a movement technique is how this figure evolves into a dynamic in your mind, allowing you to activate secret circuits in your consciousness to get closer to an extraordinary state of consciousness. And, in fact, this hypercube visualization technique in mental meditation exercises is what has trained, at certain times, contact groups in order to attempt telepathic communication or even making their own trip through time. To all this, when we speak of extraordinary states of consciousness, some achieve it through meditation, concentration, spiritual discipline, visualization of geometric figures. We just mentioned the case of the hypercube. Also, through some very intense experiences that can generate those extraordinary states of consciousness, nature, water, the sun's rays, contemplation, including a terminal illness, there are different stimuli that can precipitate these states. But contact experiences and their protocols suggest the techniques of meditation and inner discipline. How are you going to attempt contact with the universe if you don't at least attempt to be in contact with yourself? Since the most important close encounter, affirmed by these beings, 
is not with the stars, but with ourselves. In my coexistence with different indigenous groups, shamans, healers, with whom I have been able to talk about extraterrestrial contact and their experiences, they too have achieved an extraordinary state of consciousness after, for example, consuming sacred plants. A very famous case in Peru is the intake of ayahuasca, the vine of the dead, and through that sacred ancestral drink, for these jungle groups particularly, they can enter into extraordinary states of consciousness and connect with other realities, which has led to a great discussion among specialists, psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, if those extraordinary states of consciousness penetrate into other unknown dimensions or other archetypes that dwell in the subconscious of each individual. A fascinating case is that of Peruvian Pablo Amaringo Xunia, who through ayahuasca observed these other realities and in them, according to his testimony, which he depicted on hundreds of canvases, beautiful paintings. Flying objects even appear there similar to UFOs, flying saucers, entities with human features who, according to him, were ancestors of the universe or guardians of nature. The question that we ask ourselves when contemplating these images is, did Amaringo Xunia have some contact with extraterrestrial beings, with beings of nature, with interdimensional entities through ayahuasca? However, I must add that the consumption of sacred plants requires great responsibility and should not generate dependence on sacred plants. At least that's what I learned from the great masters of the Andes and of the jungles in Peru. They can show you the way, they can work like an oracle, but if you become dependent on the plant and you constantly have to consume it in order to see your shadows and follow your path, there is something that you haven't learned. The great masters say that any external experience, be it through sacred plants or even contact with life forms that are not human, like the experiences with extraterrestrial contact, they must not generate dependencies. They are just temporary external stimuli in order for you to find your own way. And how did the natives know about these plants? Good question. There are many traditions. Some of them say that their ancestors had contact with these gods and that's how they learned. And others say that they learned it by connecting with Mother Earth, with Pachamama. In any event, it is something to be taken very seriously with a lot of respect and with a lot of preparation. I will say that extraterrestrials and their communications within the contact protocols suggest techniques that are based on individual development without depending on anything external. Therefore, proper breathing, concentration, and meditation with purpose and frequency to get closer to these other realities is the backbone of contact groups who work with close encounters of the fifth kind in Latin America, as I said, for almost half a century. The second protocol is telepathy. Obviously, communication with these beings goes through mental pathways, but it's not that the contact witness is a born telepath, like apparently Benjamin Solari Paravicini was. But these beings make the greatest effort because they have developed their psychic faculties. And 
with an antenna or channel that has been prepared that has in some way opened your mind to receive it. They contact you and transmit a frequency, information. That frequency, information or energy contains images, contains data that the brain of the contact witness will decode in their own language or in words. Within the contact techniques that are well known in Latin America that were used back in his day, Enrique Castillo Rincón, who I mentioned, the Rama groups in Peru, or in fact, as happened in our case, our psychographics or instrumentalized telepathy. That is, the witness receives the telepathic impulse and feels the need to write it down. Everything that is received is written down in a notebook and decoded by the brain. It's like I'm getting a letter from extraterrestrials, even though it sounds odd, a written message. And this is so that it is not forgotten and can then be analyzed. In this telepathic protocol, the extraterrestrials suggest that the witness be in a state of meditation, in perfect balance and equilibrium. And within these techniques, these beings have even suggested in their communications that a witness who attempts them should maintain a healthy physical and mental lifestyle so that no type of distortion or interference may be generated in the message that is being received. That is, the witness be a healthy person without any dependency on stimulants of any kind that may affect personal balance. This is not a minor issue because entering extraordinary states of consciousness requires physical discipline, a healthy diet, and being rid of any stimulant that may affect your psyche, let alone drugs or alcohol or tobacco. All these things should be avoided in order for better mental preparation. It is very interesting because many people who have approached these matters to see if they could have some kind of contact or communication with these beings, what they were doing was disciplining themselves to lead a healthier life. Now, I want to reiterate that attempting these telepathic contacts is not something that happens automatically just by following protocols. It all depends on the agenda of these beings. We can try, but why do we want to have contact? Are we considering the consequences? Are we willing to face very complex processes in our personal context by making known what we have experienced? What good is it for a person to have these experiences if they can't, in some way, put them into practice in something that is very useful for themselves and for others? This is a little of what these beings transmit in their communications. Once these messages are received in this telepathic protocol, receipt needs to be confirmed, since the antenna or channel obviously could have some type of interference. Prior knowledge, readings, or emotions could distort the original message that these beings have transmitted. Within the contact protocols, these beings suggest confirming the message through a scheduled contact, especially if the content is very relevant. That is, they indicate at what time they might appear through a sighting with the day and time to verify the contact was made. And then the content is very carefully analyzed through wise judgment that the information is such that it can be verified over time, that it is balanced, that it promotes unity, 
messages that are convoluted, catastrophic, supposed communications with religious overtones, obviously are not messages from higher beings. Those could reflect the biases of the supposed channel who categorizes it as an extraterrestrial message. And it's nothing more than their own beliefs that spill into this supposed communication. Telepathic messages follow a strict verification protocol, which must be rigorous when attempting contact with non-human intelligences. This is the basic telepathy protocol that is used in contact groups. The interdimensional protocol is another of the pillars, and it is extraordinary. These beings have the ability to concentrate a large amount of energy in one place and break or distort. I don't know what terms to use. The concept of space-time, they concentrate such a great amount of energy that a kind of vortex opens which they somehow are able to keep stable so that the individual may enter into that force. In Peruvian contact experiences, this phenomenon is called sendras, a term coined by the Rama group I already mentioned, interdimensional portals. And, according to these beings, when you already have gone through the stages of the sightings, the stages of the mental contacts, and you are more accustomed to communication with them, the next stage is to enter inside these domes of energy. Here you are seeing a photograph of one of them that I was able to photograph at a contact in the Dominican Republic in the Constanza Mountains. It's like a concentration of bright white energy, 23 to 30 feet in diameter. When you go into this place, you may go through experiences of a mental nature, holographic or even physical, where you would find yourself face to face with extraterrestrials. It's like a field of coherence of artificial energy, where an interaction may be carried out with them in a safe manner. They usually give notice when these contacts will be carried out, and obviously, the same preparation protocol of personal balance, a healthy diet, are applicable to this type of experiences due to the high radiation emitted by these sendras, or interdimensional portals. It is a way of secure communication, which only occurs on very rare circumstances when they deem necessary. In my personal case, on different occasions, I've gone through these dimensional steps, which have been a part of the history of contact cases since the 1950s, but which have had greater dissemination as a result of the experiences recorded in Peru, especially in the Chilca Desert. We were going out into the desert. These objects appeared. They flew over the camp with a lot of flashes coming from them, as if they were lightning bolts in a storm, in an area where, by the way, it doesn't rain. It's a desert. These flashes, or this artificial lightning, came from these shiny objects and lit up the ground. Incredibly, though, this light, as if it had density, was concentrating. It was coming together and making a kind of bright crescent moon. At that time, by telepathic suggestion, mental instructions from these beings, we set aside any technological device that we had with us, or anything metallic, mobile phones, watches, cameras. We had to leave them in camp, and we were just walking, obviously with our clothing, without any devices or metals, at their suggestion. I suppose that's because of the field of radiation from this sendra, interdimensional portal, or whatever it was. And then, 
We went in there. We actually felt very intense energies in our bodies. We felt a type of headache at first, nausea. Some people even, I'm telling it here on camera without any kind of apprehension. Some decided to ignore the recommendations of the extraterrestrials, and they hadn't followed the prior preparation for nutrition, maintaining a balance, and they were in a rush, expecting to have this type of contact when they were inside the sendras. They had a breakdown. They felt ill. Some even vomited or had to leave the energy because they couldn't handle it. And the people who had followed a diet accordingly, who came in with a different consciousness, not seeking an exotic experience with extraterrestrials, but with other intentions, they had a better experience. Before physically meeting these beings, when they had gotten close to us, to our camps, and we had seen them in the company of other witnesses, I met them with the first step inside these senders. Their images were translucent. They were bright, as if I were seeing, and in fact it was, a holographic projection. It was a momentous step for us to get used to them, what they look like, and have the first virtual reality interaction within these fields of energy. And finally, the protocol for physical contact. You don't always get to have this experience. And I don't have much to add because the preparation is much stricter, stricter than everything I've mentioned so far. There are cases of people who, without prior preparation, have had direct contact with extraterrestrials. But to maintain that contact, that relationship, over time, they require preparation. But most importantly, beyond physical preparation and mental preparation with meditation techniques, concentration that I have already mentioned, there is a paradigm shift. Although it sounds incredible, we have to stop seeing these beings as extraterrestrials, like something beyond us. If we start to see them as intelligent creatures who are part of life in the universe in which the human species is involved, Perhaps we would start to see this phenomenon as a phenomenon. We would see it as something more natural. The protocol for physical contact comes when the time is right. The only preparation there is for these experiences, obviously, is a change in paradigm. Then there are details that these beings control. If the contact is going to take place in a remote location, usually so as not to affect other people who are not part of this process of experiences, They can do it on a mountain, in a desert, in a forest, in a secluded place. They follow these protocols. They usually point out places of contact, neutral areas so that experiences can take place. All those variables are controlled by mutual agreement among those who extend the invitation for the experience and those who accept it. But the paradigm shift is the most important thing, to have face-to-face -face contact with them, if that is meant to happen. And I dare say, after having seen them on several occasions, that there is no protocol that can prepare you enough for this experience. It's like going down a roller coaster. Even though you know how the moment will be, and the speed of the car, the roller coaster incline, and even though you know all the details, once you are falling in that great roller coaster, 
Nothing prepared you for that. However, it is a wonderful experience if you put it into perspective. An experience that you will never forget. An experience that must be taken responsibly and constructively. Because these contacts obviously have a purpose. In regards to these close encounters with the protocol for physical contact, I would like to reflect on the fact that these beings are attempting to make friendly connections with our species. And it is a gradual process. That's why they try to approach a lone individual or a small group of people so that they don't alter the order of our human society. They try, as I have said, for us to stop seeing them as extraterrestrials and that our species are united by many ties, not only genetic, but also consciousness in an intelligent universe. For now, they prefer these contacts with individual women, with individual men, with small groups, not mass contacts, because they are in that anthropological process of preparation. But when human beings, like I say, stop seeing them as something foreign, Instead, as part of a cosmic family, maybe we would be ready for definitive contact with civilizations from other worlds. Many scholars of ufology have explored contact protocols and extraordinary states of consciousness. They consider that the key for contact with these other realities is found in the mind, and, without a doubt, it is. But I must emphasize that this tendency to study external stimuli that precipitate those states, like consuming sacred plants or concoctions with DMT that stimulate the pineal gland, etc., would be changed to explore what human beings can achieve on their own through inner discipline without the need for a magic formula. It's a slower path, without a doubt, but safer and more long-lasting because it contains inner teachings. And that is the goal for contact with these beings. That said, all the tools provided by these techniques are wonderful, but they have to be addressed with appropriate preparation, respect, and responsibility. Contact protocols and any technique that stimulates those experiences should not be taken as a kind of spiritual fast food. As the great masters say, even the great masters of ayahuasca in the jungle, you cannot depend on anything external to acquire a vision for yourself. The tools are just tools, and their use is temporary. Not by chance do extraterrestrials affirm in their messages that the one main contact is the inner one. To achieve something extraordinary, first we have to achieve the extraordinary within ourselves. And that is the real message. I'll see you in the next episode. And on that occasion, we won't travel towards the stars, but toward the mysteries of the intraterrestrial world. I'm Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho, and you're aboard the Ark of Time. Oh my goodness, that's was uh, always... Uh, it's good to be able to see, I mean, they had some real starships filmed at the beginning here. Uh, I think the world's going to get to know Dr. Greer's not too long for 
his next uh, disclosure project, I guess you could call it, huh, Rama? Mm-hmm. 10th and 11th of June, and today is the 27th of May. 28, 29, 30, 31. That's next Wednesday. And then the 1st of June is Thursday. Friday, Saturday. Uh, second. Third is, uh, the 3rd of June is next Saturday plus 7, uh, would be, uh, the 10th of June. That would be two weeks from today. <laughs> two weeks from today. Full this, another disclosure project. Place the violet fire. Alright, Rama would like to play this for us, it's um, time travel, shifts, and ships. And George Nori is the host, <clears throat> and Von Brash, Von Brashier is the guest. What are the different types of time travel? Author and philosopher Von Brashear offers his research exploring astral dimensions and how consciousness operates, differentiating between science and fictions from Einstein and Newtonian physics to esoteric perspectives. Brashear discusses how we can move through time as a dimensional space, discover the interrelations between universal consciousness, expanding awareness, prophetic dreams, and space-time. Von Brashier is a New York Times best-selling author and lifetime member of the Theosophical Society. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His new book is Time Shifts, Experiences of Slipping into the Past and Future. Uh, without any more ado, this is 43 minutes and we will start now. Let's mm. do this. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Von Brashler with us, a former faculty member at the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, a lifetime member of the Theosophical Society, and the author of several books on consciousness and time travel. Von, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. What is your favorite, consciousness or time travel? Uh, At this point, honestly, I can't see the difference. And you throw dreaming in there, I can't see the difference. It's, It's all an exercise in human consciousness. And relating to the universal consciousness. Are you an Albert Einstein? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. What does time mean to you? Time to me is opportunity, a opportunity. And I think that, I think that it is our obligation to go around and around and around this big carousel we call time, the time loop. 
And every one of us goes around it. We call this our lifetime. And then we go around it and we call it our lifetime. And then we get on again and go around it. It's just like the Wizard of Oz, but it never ends. You keep going home and you keep going to Oz. So I think that a time is infinite. It's elastic. And it's everlasting. And it's a loop that all of us need to explore, not just here and now, but everywhere. Is time travel possible? It is possible. It's not only possible, but it's done all the time by people who are really skilled in various techniques to achieve controlled time shifts. When you have time travel, are you going forward or backward in time? Now, this is interesting. I have to lean on Professor Einstein. We tend to go back. And I think the reason is most of us simply can't relate to or believe in the concept of ourselves going forward. Or maybe there's a fear of the unknown. But mostly we go back. We mostly go back in time. Einstein, when he talked about uh, time travel in his relativity theory, he talked about going back in time. By achieving the speed of of light, which is a billion miles per second, you know, it's just a phenomenal speed. It's a universal speed that would be attainable, uh, but not physically attainable. It would be attainable somehow magically. He said, "Well, maybe through." He said, "Maybe through a black hole uh, we call a singularity. If you could achieve the speed of of light." You could, he said, then go back in time. He did not address the, the theory of going forward in time. But we know that people do. By seconds, how long? Well, you know, uh, years in advance. Uh, you know, we have examples. I've studied and researched and I've interviewed. Um, there are examples of people that have gone forward in time. And sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't. But uh, Rudolf Fentz, you know, it's a famous case. It was printed in Collier's. I mean, he went forward in time decades and never returned. He, what do you mean never returned? He, he was, he was struck, he was struck by a car and never returned, you know, and, and his body, it was then into the future several decades. Was that the guy who showed up in Manhattan or something? Yes, indeed. He That's was the him. man. Now we don't have a lot of examples of people that go forward physically in time to the degree that they interact and, you know, usually, you know, it's you go there and you're a witness and people don't see you or nothing seems to move. Um, but sometimes there's a complete physical case of going forward in time. And then, of course, there's a case of uh, prophetic dreaming, you know, where people go forward in their very lucid dreams and they have these dreams of prophecy for it and they come true. And how how could they know this? Obviously, they've gone forward forward in time and then back again with a memory or with a memory of it just like the shaman they go back with the memory of it is there a difference between what we would consider time and god's time yes so what is that so i i always like to quote leibniz the the what this the german uh rational philosopher mathematician i think of the 18th century, Godfrey Leibniz. And he said that there's God's time and there's man's time. God's time is, is infinite. You know, it, 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 it's fluid. It, it, you know, you, you can't account for it. It's, it's, it's flexible. You know, man's time is very controlled and limited and fixed. We have this boxed in, fixed in linear approach, this three dimensional view of, 
time space or space time as Einstein said. So there's, there's man's time and there's God's time. And Leibniz says, well, you, you just don't, he said, don't fret. It's just sooner or later. Is time travel physical or mental? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, I've written, this is my third book at, uh, on time. And early on, I thought, you know, it's all the examples of successful time shifting I've seen have been by people who would go into meditation or deep trances like, like mystics or shamans. And they would go like a, as a witness. And it seemed to me that they were traveling in time in an energy body. And I think this is very common. I think it's very common. And it, it's more than just astral travel. It's, 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 it's actually your, all your energy body is leaving. And consciousness, of course, is intelligent energy that occupies all your subtle bodies. But I do have to admit and with personal experience as well as research, that physical time travel is possible, though rare. Physicist Ron Mallet was obsessed with time travel, wanted to go back into time to see his father. But he talks about some of the possibilities of time travel. Yeah. Scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read that, it was like bomb to my soul. I thought, this is it. If I can build a time machine, then I can go back to see my father again and tell him what was going to happen and maybe change his life. So that became my mission in life. That's when wow. I really became interested in time You were travel. obsessed with time travel to yeah. go back, exactly. talk to your father and say, Dad, you got to be healthy. you got to do this. you got to do that. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is that it, it was a secret mission. I should say that even at 11 years old, I was astute enough to realize that people were already worried about me. And if I told them I wanted to build a time machine, that might not get the right response. So I kept it as a secret quest. But that was the beginning. Now, you mentioned Einstein. And uh, in fact, that was the thing. I, I knew this was science fiction, mm-hmm. and uh, I had this fantasy that it could be done. And as a child, I even tried to to use the model that was on the cover of the magazine, and I put, <laughs> tried to put things together with my father's uh, old television His pieces was right, and everything like that. that. And, of course, nothing happened. But it did say that scientific people know very well. So I knew that had something to do with science. And a couple of years after that, when I was about 12 or 13, I came across, you might say, the second book that changed my life and the second person. And this was a book called The Universe and Dr. Einstein. Mm-hmm. I, I picked it up in a, a Salvation Army story. I should mention that after my father died, we plunged into poverty. Oh, of course. And so, Income stream was gone. Exactly. Right? But I had this book habit that I had to feed. Yeah. And I picked it up for about a nickel. And the thing is, is I had a picture of Einstein next to an hourglass. So I knew it must say that Einstein had something to do with time. Yeah. And even though I couldn't understand all the articulations in the book, I did pick up the fact that Einstein said that unlike in classical physics, the physics of Newton, in Newton's physics, which everyone is familiar with, mm-hmm. time cannot be altered. Time cannot be changed. Space cannot be changed. Einstein's revolution was to say that space and time can be altered. So I knew if I could understand how that could happen, then that would be the key for me to uh, building a time machine. So Einstein became my second obsession. If we went back into time, Vaughn, mm-hmm. and changed things, mm-hmm. Uh, let's say we went back to the days of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and saved him from the cross. Could we change things like that? You know, I mean, I agree with your interview here. You can't really alter space time. I mean, I, I understand that. 
But to, to say that you can go back and alter someone's life or events in the past, you know, I think is, is, um, highly unlikely, you know, we just don't have good examples of it. Um, we do have examples of people that have come and made calls, uh, of warning. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's, there's some built-in protection. I don't know what it is that you can't interfere with, with someone's particular life course. We call it karma, what you will, or divide your ones. It's will. already set in stone. Yeah. Right? You, this is your life. I can't interfere with your life. Hence, I can't go back and shoot uh, Adolf Hitler in the head with a, a Luger. I can't do it. You know, I can't sign a contract. I can't buy stock at an amazingly low price or go where I know gold will later be discovered. You can't, you can't buy Apple stock or something. The Apple stock. Exactly. <laughs> And, and you think, well, well, why is that? I mean, I just think there are so many examples that indicate that it doesn't happen, that people go back in time and they tend to be what we would call or what Castaneda called a perfect witness. You go, but you, you are a perfect witness. You go and you observe the shaman would go back in time to observe what the ancestors say, not to speak with them, but to listen to them. And then he would go forward in time to see what the future holds for, for his or her people, right. you know, not to interact. So maybe time travel is not physical. Maybe I, it's I, like I, I think it is physical. Field. Here's here's where I'm, I'm I'm going to go up boldly until my next book. This is my new theory, George, is that we travel in time, generally speaking, by sending our our energy bodies into another point on the continuous timeline. That is to say that my energy bodies have contained consciousness, intelligent energy consciousness, which is universal consciousness and all living things. And it, it exists on my mental body, my emotional body, my causal body, my buddhic body, you know, my, my atma, my, you know, all the way, all, everything. And I know that this is true. I know that this is true. And on every level of our bodies, our energy bodies, excluding our physical bodies, just for the moment, that it is energized consciousness that exists on all these levels independent from our physical body. And I, and I get this from none other than um, the chakras in the human energy field. Uh, what, you know, um, and that was written by Dora Van Gelder Kuntz and, uh, Dr. Safika Karagula. Who was my aunt? Was your aunt? You know, and I, I think that is one of my Bibles, you know, along with uh, essays by uh, Einstein, because they declare that on every subtle body level, we have consciousness, we have intelligent energy at work. Therefore, well, I think when we go forward or backward in time, we tend to to travel with these six or whatever subtle energy bodies. Now, sometimes, sometimes the evidence would indicate the physical body goes with it. And why not? Because when you get into an altered state of consciousness, as most people do in going through a time shift or time slip, that, that you go into, you, you leave behind your five physical senses. You no longer see with these physical eyes, but you see with new eyes, you hear with new ears, and you are now living with a new set of feelers, which is your awareness, your conscious awareness. And your conscious awareness is in many ways much keener 
in your five physical senses. So, you know, when, when you have that, when you make that shift to go into a, a heightened state of consciousness, this consciousness shift allows you to uh, observe things with new awareness, with new eyes. And then you can see beyond the ground in front of your feet, which is why we call this the here and now. It's what we see. It's, it's where we stand on the conveyor belt that is the, the everlasting time loop that goes on and on and on. You can see that there are other points, or as Einstein said, other now moments, other moments that are just as, you know, instances of the now. Here's now, and then there's now, and then there's now. Well, there's all, there's multiple nows. We only see the now that's right in front of us. And we only see with our physical eyes. And what is required is to go into a heightened state of consciousness and assume this new awareness and see with new eyes and realize that there are places on this conveyor belt we call the timeline that you can jump aboard. Will technology get us there? I don't see why not. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a theosophist, so Madame Blavatsky often told us that science and the, the world of the phenomena, uh, the mystics world, would eventually, you know, join hands and work together. What is time shift? Time shift is, I, I try to differentiate between time slips, which are almost accidental slips in little time. Quarks in the system, right? Yeah, they're little, they're little side steps you make. It's like, they're almost little stumbles we make into a portal of time, you know, we, we somehow discover a quantum leap, a quantum leap, you know, what time shifts are, are more programmed and thought out. And there are people that do time shifts. You know, we have the, the, the mystics, the shamans, we have the, the Samadhi mystics. You have a story of the couple that came into the town over and over again. Tell us about that. It's a classic story. And I thought it was kind of unique when I heard it, but I find that true story. It's a true story. And I find that when I tell the story, other people come up and say, I had the same experience. So here's the story. This, um, this is Larry and Claire Miller and they live in, uh, Alsip, Illinois. It's this kind of Southeast Chicago. And they're going to take a trip from Southeast Chicago to um, New Mexico in 1990. They get in their car. And when they get to Missouri, they encounter a detour of Highway 44. So Larry gets the family station wagon going on the detour. They go 15 minutes. They pull off. And and Claire says, look, it's a quaint old town. Let's look. And it is really, it's like throwback town, you know. So they drive down and and there's a, there's children playing hopscotch in the park. This sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. There was a Twilight Zone like this to show you how common this is. But escape to Willoughby. Escape to Willoughby. You, you've, you've, you've heard it. You know, but this isn't the story of the Millers, you know. So they see the, the big clock and the clock says 12 o'clock and, and, and Claire's clock watch says three o'clock. She says, well, they don't keep time here and there's very little traffic and there's very little few people you know, in, in the town that they can see. And there's an old, this old clock and it has Roman numerals. They had very distinct memories of this. Claire says, Larry, this is strange. Let's get out of here. And you go back and they get on the, on, she, she was uncomfortable with this. Getting comfortable. And they, and he says, Oh, we're getting out of here fast, Claire. And they, he, he, he puts the metal pedal to the metal 
and they go 15 minutes at a high rate of speed and they pull off to the next side and says, let's check this one out. It's the same town, except that the clock is now, instead of noon, it's 12.30. Everything is the same. There's a, a woman with the red hair pushing a baby buggy, kids playing hopscotch in the park and the, and the clock, and, and it's crazy. So they get on, on, the, on, the, on the detour again, and he races even faster. He's going like high rates of speed, 15 minutes, find another town, pulls off the same thing. And now it's like one o'clock, you know, and it's like uh, it's not one o'clock. So they, they do it again. Four times this happens. And so they said, what are we going to do? And they get back. And luckily, they find they felt trapped. And they felt trapped. They were in a time loop. And and she accuses her husband Larry of going in a circle. But he says we're going straight on this on this detour. And the clock is is always crazy. So they they once they got Highway 44, they were fine, and it never happened again. When they got back, they related their story to a friend of mine, uh, Frank Joseph, who's an author and a researcher of ancient mysteries. And he, he told him the story for a book he was writing. And I got the story from, 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 from Frank. And the odd thing is that Larry is a no nonsense businessman. Right. He is very practical, very practical. And he doesn't believe in the paranormal, but he had no way, nor did Claire of explaining it. And they saw the same thing. So I love these stories that have collaboration. Were they in some kind of time warp? Uh, yeah, it seems like they were caught in a in a time war a vortex, a vortex, a portal or something. So it's kept going on and yeah, on. And, and I on. think that makes sense because we know there are magnetic fields in the earth where everything goes crazy. I mean, I live on an island where, you know, you can't use a compass because it's so the magnetics are not doesn't work. Yeah. I interviewed host Emory Smith on Gaia's cosmic disclosure about time and reality. Time is a very sensitive subject with the physicists and the scientists around the world that are not part of the clandestine projects because it's a hard thing to grasp because time really doesn't exist. And what's going on is there's multiple levels of time right now and multiple different types of realities and dimensions. So there is a a dimension right now just within a, a different frequency right now where you are here and I'm here. And it's just a little bit different. Maybe these uh, coffee cups are not here or the cameras or it might be some different people because there's many different levels. The, the hardest thing to explain is that time is irrelevant because you are already here everywhere all the time, which means <laughs> and that sounds confusing. But don't go back and see your grandfather. But, right? <laughs> right. And that's a big question I get. Like, what if you go back in time and you did something? Well, you just created another time. Uh, reality. So that's another another space of time. Uh, but you're still where you're at right now. And if you think you can go back and remove the coffee mug and then all of a sudden, you know, it's not there, it doesn't work that way at all. I mean, if you wanted to go back into time and, and do away with Hitler and prevent World War Two and the Holocaust and all that horror that he created, what would happen if you went back into time, took care of him, got rid of him? And what would the consequences be? Consequences would not affect you because in this reality, that never happened. Interesting. But would there be a reality somewhere there is. where it did happen? Correct. And what would happen there? Well, it's what's happening right now. That's the 
the paradigm here is trying to put all that together saying, okay, there are multiple dimensional realities and there's multiple different types of time zones that we are all part of. Uh, We're interdimensional, multiple dimension beings. And that's where frequency comes in with DNA and genetics and how, you know, we affect, you know, other worlds and other places in the universe where the light we see from the stars today, that star might already be out. But because of this distance and time continuum, we don't, you know, really think about that and realize that. You know, what's so bizarre about all this, Vaughn, mm-hmm. this is all possible. Yes. It's fascinating. Yes. And I, I think it's, it becomes very real. Uh, for a lot of people who have become somehow on some level aware that they are existing in, in another, you know, parallel reality, parallel world, parallel universe. I think it's extremely likely that, that we're all just layered, you know, this, this phys- physics theory that we're just layered realities and we're so close. We're only separated by um, maybe a tiny little place, but the light can't reach around. If the light could reach around, we would, we, we would, we would be as one with them, but we're somehow, somehow separated. But you know, many people will have dreams and they'll have very lucid dreams or they'll have flashbacks or deja vu moments or where they seem to recall living this separate but similar reality. And I think it's very true that we could this be the multiverse, the multiverse. Thank you. I believe it's absolutely true. I think you're right. Now, as to what he was saying about the uh, the level of change you can create, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. We'll call it Professor Einstein from beyond. We'll go we'll go back and pass in the past. We'll talk to the professor. I don't know. You know, it, it would seem that there's some built in safeguards. That you, you, you know, some bumpers that you cannot change this reality by this other reality. But we, we do seem to have, you know, what, what was the Seth theory of, of Jane Roberts that we, that we create our, our new realities, our other probable realities all the time through our, our, our mental and emotional energy that we project out through thought forms. We create this. Tell us about Brentwood. So I moved to uh, Oregon. And it was really fun, but I didn't realize that woods were enchanted. Well, some places just seemed to be enchanted. They told me huh. that you could bury things in the ground and things would happen, and that the Warm Spring Indians of um, Mount Hood in Oregon had long considered Brightwood as a very sacred place. They would meet there in the summer, hence the term Bright Woods, and they would gather there and they would talk to the trees and they would have their, you know, their gathering, their potlatch. And they would bury things in the earth. It was a time of commemorating, uh, commemoration and uh, reflection. Anyway, I was thinking about all this, and this Indian just pops in in front of me. I'm, I'm out walking in the woods. And I don't know if he was a chief or he was a sh- shaman, but he was highly decorated, you know, ceremonial robes, feathers, paint, very tall. Uh, a lot of red in, 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 in the, in the coloring of what he wore. And I was shocked to see him. I said, whoa. And he, and he looked back and he goes, oh, you know, and I said, you shocked to see you too. Yeah. And I said, you don't believe, belong here. I said, go. And then he poof, you know, and I thought, you right know, in front of you, in front of me. And I realized that I was probably addressing, um, a, a, a shaman, you know, 
probably from another time period. Who was time traveling? Who was time traveling? You know, this is what they do. They go and they they look in on things and they come back and say, "Well, I saw this man in the woods," and, and he said, "Whoa!" So we have to, you know, I don't know what they what they gather from when when they're when they're out there, but yes, that's what I did. I I saw him, and it was it was profound and it was very vivid. And I thought I was the only one who had these strange encounters on Mount Hood, but it's just one of those places. There are others where these things just seem to happen over and over. You had a strange call from somebody, some older gentleman. Oh, yeah. What happened there? That was a call that really changed my life. I was working at the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in, in Illinois, and I hadn't been there very long, and we were doing so, all kinds of projects. I was really, really busy, and I was up on the third floor of the publication building, and the phone rings. And a man is clear as day speaking to me, but I'm having some trouble because he sounds very elderly, and he has a thick Indian accent as though he's from India. And But it, but it was very clear. Now, this is this happens in the 80s, George, so I'm thinking like, whoa. If he's calling me from as far as I think he's calling me from, how can this call be so clear? And I mean, my ah. fo- my phone rang. I didn't have a dream. My phone rang. And I shared this office with an, another person down the hall. And you picked it up. I picked it up. And he said, hello, sir. You know, I'm calling you to invite you on a trip, a lightning uh, lightning rod tour of, of India. I make these these lightning tours of India every year. In late August or early September, it is the best time, sir. I tell you, it, it is the best time. And he says, you must come with me. It will change your life forever to experience what I have to show you. And I keep telling him, you know, uh, I can't go. I just started this job. It sounds wonderful. Right. I can't up and go. I said, you must be calling for my predecessor, Clarence Patterson, who started this publishing company. And I said, because he just retired. And I, no, he says, sir, I am calling for you. I must tell you that we didn't seem to have a two-way conversation, but but he seemed to anticipate what I was going to say, and he would say something that seemed appropriate. So I, I think a lot of these calls you get, you know, sometimes you these mysterious calls you just don't seem to have a lot of interaction. So he just keeps pumping me about you got to go to India, and so he says I will call you again, sir, after you've had time to reflect on this, on the importance of of this offer. And I think that's weird. He calls again. He makes the same offer and I have the same response. And so this time I go to the other building across the street, the main, the main building. And I said, okay, who's faking these calls? Who's setting you up? Who's setting me up? You know, and it has to be a certain voice because, you know, I don't think a young woman could have thrown her voice like this. So I'm, I'm interviewing everybody I think could have faked it. And I'm looking them in the eye and I'm looking for. You know, a, for anything, a right? smile, a smirk, a little twitch of the eye, you know, a nervous twitch or, or a laugh. Nothing. They look at me like I'm crazy. So I go to the lady that does the switchboard operator across the, the, the street. She gets the incoming calls on the 800 number or the calls that need to be right redirected to offices. And I said, Donna, a man called on, on these, on these, uh, these days and he had a really thick accent. He sounded very old and he sounded like he was from India. And do you remember transferring them to me? She said, Vaughn, I said, I would remember something like that. He, he called you directly. He called a third time and, and he said, if persistent you, persistent guy. Yes. Huh? He says, if you, if you do not go, 
on this lightning round uh, trip uh, to India with me, there's one more thing I can offer you, sir. You must learn to meditate in the light. You must learn to meditate in the morning light beside running water. And I said, well, I, I think I can find a blanket. He says, you must find, he just runs right over me. You must find running water, sir, and do this in the early morning light. It will change your life. You will move in the light. You will travel in the light. You will become one with the light. Sounds very good. So I, I, you know, I start doing this and he's right. This is the most amazing moving experience to, to meditate like this. So I'm thinking like, okay, who is this guy? He doesn't call after the third time. So I go downstairs where we have a bookshop, the Quest bookshop in Wheaton, Illinois. And I go in there and I talk to the manager and I said, now, where do you keep the really good books on meditation and yoga? She said, what do you mean by good, Vaughn? I said, the ones written by the people in India, the real masters, the real yogis. Where do you keep them? I, I don't want all this new age stuff. I want the real thing. She said, oh, they're down there in the corner. Just keep walking. And I'm walking in the corner. And I swear to you, it was on an easel. This book is it was face out on an easel staring at me. And I pick it up. And it was all about meditating in the morning light. How about that? And I flip it over and I'm reading, 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 reading in this, 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 this yogi master. He's an old man. And, and he's also famous for leading lightning tours of India in the fall. He's the one who called you. He's the one who called me. And so I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I drop the book and I run. But before I dropped the book, I read the last line on the back and it gave the man's date of birth. And his date of death. He called me from beyond. The other side. From the other side. So I did this, you know, and I learned that not only could I have a, a tremendous out-of-body experience by meditating in the light, but it was profound that I could move my subtle energy bodies in the light if I did this with running water in the morning light, natural light, you know. So I had a friend later on when I moved was a roommate she was dying of brain cancer and she was in a hospice program and the nun said there's not much you can do deb's waiting to die that's her job and i said well i'm going to make it as pleasant for her as possible i'm going to make it possible for deb to walk out of here they said nobody walks out of here vaughn i said deb will i go to deb who didn't believe in any of this right and i said deb you love Star Trek. She's, mm. she couldn't speak anymore. She, she was that far gone. She go, mm. and I said, do you love Star Trek? Yeah. I said, you know, they go in there and they rematerialize somewhere else. How would you like to do it, Deb? She said, mm. I said, how would you like to walk out of here? So we start these things where I move her bed a little bit in, in front of the, the light from the window. And I come in the morning, the early morning light, and I have one of these little, waterfalls you can put on a desk you know little models we hear the water the, the running water and we do this and we start going traveling in the light and we go from like different planes of existence you know we're just taking our energy bodies that i'm holding our hand and we're meditating in the light together and we go through the emotional of uh, a plane we go to the mental plane we go to the causal plane the buddhic plane it was incredible and we got up there to boy, the buddhic plane. It was all very blue and starting to get purple. And I'm thinking, like, I can't go with Deb any farther. 
I can't go where Deb's going. I come back and, and we come back and I said, Deb, you're getting really good at this, really good at this. Do you think you can do it on your own? Can you walk out of here on your own using these meditations? Can you do it? She squeezed my hand and said the first word she'd spoken in months. She said, yes. Is there a synchronicity behind any of this? Absolutely. Because, because the woman, uh, who was the head nurse there was also the head nun and her name was, um, uh, Sister Luke. She died shortly after Deb died of the same thing, brain uh, tumor, and she died in a hospice program. And the woman in the bookstore at Quest in, in, in uh, Illinois, she died of a brain tumor also in home hospice care shortly after I spoke with her. There was synchronicity. A Gaia host, Crotolo Sesamo, talks about synchronicity just like you. Yeah. Synchronicity is not positive and it's not negative. Uh, in a certain way, we might imagine that synchronicity is exactly what is a positive event for us. Let me give you an example. I might need a pair of shoes that is number eight. But, you know, I don't have the money in that moment to buy the shoes and my are broken. So I really need this pair of shoes. Let's imagine that exactly in that moment, from a van that is crossing the road, a door is opening and a box with a pair of shoes with number eight is just there falling in front of me. Wow, this is perfect positive synchronicity. And this is probably our interpretation about that. But there is not a positive or negative synchronicity. There's always synchronicity. That means that every single event that is happening in our lives, I mean, are not bad and are not good. They are opportunities. If time is this territory, is this huge sphere that contains everything, also the the different universe and everything that is possible here and there. Well, let me just try now to see how time is working with synchronicity and with complexity. So if everything is there, if time is containing everything, what is moving? Is moving my consciousness, is moving my soul. That means that the soul can contemporary live multiple realities. The soul can live contemporary in many different life forms at the same exactly moment. Even if it looks that in this moment, right, I'm talking to you, it looks that you're here. You're watching me, you're listening to my words, you might have a lot of thoughts or question mark, but you feel that you are in this place. If we can just increase our perception, our consciousness, we might discover that, well, I'm here now, but I'm here in many different places. And I'm here also in many different uh, life forms. Have you ever seen yourself in other time periods? Yes. What's it like? You feel a great attachment to it, you know, and you almost want to stay, you know. it's, it, it's And has that you seen you? I'm seeing someone else who was like me, you know, and, and an earlier me or another me, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very aware of another me right even now, you know, and, uh, and I wish him well. <laughs> and, and everything this man just said in this video clip is, is absolutely true. This is a profound statement. And, and this combines everything that we're saying here, saying here today. It's all interconnected because we're all 
going through so many synchronistic um, learning exercises, opportunities uh, where our consciousness is being asked to measure up to the universal consciousness. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly being upschooled, you know, and we get, we get like, you know, there's a pattern to synchronicity because, because if you didn't get it first time, you know, it'll be slightly different in pre, in the presentation the next time and the next time until you have to pay attention and learn and observe what's in front of you. Lucid dreaming. Is that part of time travel? Absolutely. And so my, my next book, two books are going to be on lucid dreaming. And and in in my book, Time Shifts, I talk about lucid dreaming. You can actually program um, lucid dreams where you can you can program your lucid dreams to to go to another point in time and another point in space. And you will really actually go there. Now, whether you're physically there or just in in an energy body, you're most likely going to be there in an energy body. You know, I think uh, for most cases. But it's going to be very profound. You're going to have tremendous insight from it. It's like the hero's journey, you know. The hero's journey is a metaphor for opening our eyes and seeing and learning in this great adventure we call our life. Can you induce time travel, Juan? Yes, yes. At will? At will. It, it takes some discipline. Now, you can do it through meditation or lucid dreaming. And the techniques are basically the same. But what I always advocate doing is visualizing what you want. And the best visualizations, the best meditations, I think, are where you don't use words or sounds or thoughts or memories. You're painting a picture or drawing a picture on a blank slate in your mind's, in front of your mind's eye. And on this blank slate, you're visualizing exactly what you want to see, where you want to go. As best you can determine it. And it can be vague, you know, because it's your sketch map. And then you tuck it in the back of, of your consciousness. You prepare yourself to leave. That when it comes back, it's a post-hypnotic suggestion. When that map comes in front of your eyes, you are gone. You use it as an unerring map to take you where you want to go. And you can visualize almost any place you want to go. Shamans are pretty good for time travel, aren't they? They're excellent because they know how to visualize. On Gaia series Yogic Paths, they discuss yogic powers such as time travel and how these used to be normal and commonplace abilities all the time. The emergence of these supernormal powers while following the Eightfold Path or any yogic path diligently is stated in rather matter-of-fact terms in classic yoga texts such as Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. The Siddhis are first kind of closely analyzed in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. In the third chapter, he explains how to get them, saying that if you practice this threefold meditation on a particular thing, the planets or the sky or a part of your body or so forth, you will get this uh, particular power. While Patanjali doesn't discourage these supernormal states, he also makes it clear that the cities are potential impediments to the goal of yoga. Yoga has always been closely associated with the cities, and it's clear that he doesn't see it as a bad thing if you strive directly to get these supernatural powers. He goes through 20 or 30 of them. So why would he do that if he's 
thought it was a bad thing. And he does say about three of them that they are not to be pursued, that the direct aim for those ones is a hindrance to the final goal of yoga. But he doesn't say that about the others. So it's a hard one to understand because later texts certainly do say that pursuing cities directly is, is a bad thing and is a, you know, an obstacle to the ultimate goal of yoga. But Patanjali's not so clear. My sense of it is probably at a certain period in history, a certain period of, uh, in Indian society, no one disbelieved in these powers, in these siddhis. And I think collective consciousness is incredibly powerful. I think people actually really could do things that we don't see now because we don't have this sort of critical mass of, of total faith in those possibilities. So if consciousness is creating reality moment to moment, why shouldn't that be possible? Is there a danger in time travel, Vaughn? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, and I, mean, I have studied, uh, you know, Patanjali's, um, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. You know, the first part is like, you know, you know, you're preparing the body to meditate, the postures and so forth. And the second one is like a more mystic approach. And the, you get to the last third of the book. You're going to get into magic. You need to read uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. That is the book. The point being made, I think, here is very important. You know, you follow you follow the sutras so carefully um, that they become slavish unto themselves. Uh, of course, I'm a Westerner, and, and I don't do it quite this way. The, the Westerner likes to cut right through in the chase. You know, the points being made are, are profound. You know, the the goal of of, of the book of, of Patanjali is is really a study in samadhi mysticism or, or the study of, 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 of uh, consciousness, which is, of course, Raja Yoga. It is Laya Yoga. It is Bhakti Yoga. Maybe um, the next time we see you, you'll be time traveling again. I'll time travel here. Bob, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. <laughs> Thank you, George. I really liked it. Time travel. It is fascinating and maybe one day very probable for a lot of people. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Well, maybe we should play that uh, that one, Rama, because it looks good. Looks what? Um, I just showed you the Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, the one. Yeah. Okay. Where did it go? <laughs> oh. Um. The dum dum. Yes. Oops. The Shakespearean equation. That'll take us right up to the last moment. But I think we should play it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then we got Rainbird. Um, But we will do this. And here we go real quick. Um, This is called the Shakespearean equation. What is... That, the Yoga Sutra, Sutras of Pantanjali. Write that book's name down. That is powerful. Mm-hmm. Book, the Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali. That's how you say that. Pantanjali. P-A-N-T-A-N-J-A-L-I. Okay, what is the Shakespearean equation? Author Alan Green illuminates 
how mathematical constants, like the golden ratio, excuse me, are hidden within the geometrically perfect sonnets of William Shakespeare, alias Saint Germain, everybody, by linking poetry, history, and and astronomy with the secrets of Shakespeare's identity and the connections to John Dee. Do you remember who John Dee is, Rama? Um, John Dee was, I think, Elizabeth the first uh, lover. I can't remember. That kind of he was a about. wizard, John Dee. And Edward de Vere. Yeah. Green continues piercing to get, excuse me, piecing together this esoteric puzzle. Explore how specific words were embedded to create an equation which approximated the speed of light nearly 300 years before Einstein's revolutionary discovery. And this is with uh, the host, Alan Green. Here we go. Let's do this. This is 29 minutes. Mm. And then, Rami, you can go find some good music or something. episode, we enter the dark, mysterious world of mathematics. I know, most people's reaction to that word is usually abject horror, followed by panic. But don't worry, you won't have to do a thing. I'm just going to show you a side of Shakespeare's genius the world never knew existed. A totally unique de-devere phenomenon for balancing left brain, right brain perspectives that I call mathoetics. It's that combination again that tells us the ultimate truth that time and distance are in fact one thing. Einstein's space-time is essentially geometry. And you're going to see that John Dee created an icon that defines the unity of all known math constants and hid it in plain sight within the cover of the sonnets. It's his GPS system, geometrically perfect sonnet. You're also going to see a system Shakespeare uses to draw our attention to specific dates that have been fixed to help us solve the puzzle he's left us. And finally, you'll see proof that Dee and De Vere knew about really big distances like Earth to Sun, Earth to Moon, and the distance light travels in a second. I know, it's an outrageous claim to say that someone 400 years ago, without even a telescope, accomplished what you're about to see. It will seem impossible. But his system, the Shakespeare equation, is duplicatable, and it proves itself several times over. You see, the great poet knew only too well the frustrating dilemma that poetry words, the loves of his life, no matter how beautiful or masterfully combined, are ultimately subjective. Their truth will always be filtered through the interpretation of the reader. 
Whereas the authority, the mathematical aspect of the codes lies in the probability of their randomness being essentially zero. When the same message is repeated over and over, such proof is not open to discussion. It just is. It's convincing beyond all possibility of doubt. That's why Shakespeare left us an overabundance of mathematical codes alchemically intertwined with his beloved poetic codes. So that whether we respond predominantly to the poetry, as most of us do, or to the math, as about six or seven of us do, we're left with this wonderful combination of mathoetics, which satisfies everyone and leaves the few remaining doubters necessarily mute. They are two sides of the same coin of the realm of possibilities. To be and not to be. It was the week of December 21st, 2012. The much anticipated end of the Mayan calendar and a strange intuition suddenly came upon me. An unshakable awareness that Shakespeare and Dee had embedded the speed of light into sonnets. I had no idea where this came from. I had no reason even for believing it. I'd done two years of preliminary research. Then for six years, I'd made countless discoveries, all from the poetic perspective. And though I didn't know it at the time, this was to be the start of the next six years of almost nothing but math and geometry discoveries. It's the last four years that have shown me that working six years in only right brain mode and then six years of only left brain mode were inexorably leading towards alchemical balance, the true wedding of whole brain mode, unity, consciousness. But back then, all I knew was there had to be this direct relationship between the numbering of the sonnets that contained the word speed and those that contained the word light. It's crazy, I know, but it, it, it had been triggered by looking at a wrong page number in the first folio. It's the most expensive printed book ever. It, it contains 36 of Shakespeare's plays, published in 1623. The last one that went on auction sold for $10 million in 2020. One book. Funny thing is, scholars say it would be worth a lot more if it hadn't been full of such awful wrong page numbers and botched printing and and in a sense they're right but for the wrong reasons once it becomes known that those there's about 67 so-called wrong page numbers they're all part of one gigantic interconnected code that solves the entire mystery and the price of those folios will skyrocket i'm telling you you heard it here first folks get one cheap now and you still can i'm just saying very first of these wrong page numbers occurs here. It goes from 48 to 49 to 58 to 51. Obviously it should be 50, but esoteric mathematicians like myself, meaning untrained, know that the slope angle of the Great Pyramid is 51 degrees and just between 50 and 51 minutes. So this might be about the pyramid again. And sure enough, Shakespeare gives a broad hint down at the bottom of that incorrectly numbered page. 
where Master Ford says, Here, here, here be my keys. Ascend my chambers. Search, seek, find out. In the play, it's a comedy scene in which he's searching in his three bed chambers for Falstaff, who he believes has been texting his wife. And it's funny, but of course it's also a code. And the three chambers are those inside the Great Pyramid, connected by their ascending passageways. Search, seek, find out. But then, of course, Shakespeare takes the idea to an entirely different level. Let me show you what he does. We might as well start with the most mind-blowing system of all. A Shakespeare equation. In the sonnets, do a search on the word speed. It occurs only three times. Once in sonnet 50, twice in sonnet 51. Now, do a search on the word light. We multiply all the lights on us, all the speeds on us, and divide speed into light. Speed of light. It's a ratio, so it's like one-fourth of something. The answer at this point makes no sense yet. But I knew there had to be a key, even though I didn't know yet where this was leading. My intuition kept whispering, pyramid, pyramid. Since that's so important to Rosicrucian and Freemasonic philosophy, I looked and found the only sonnet that has the word pyramid in it is number one, two, three. Of course, one, two, three. It's obvious. So I multiplied by that. Still didn't ring any bells, but I was looking for the well-known speed of light number, which, as we all know, is defined in meters per second. There's two nine nine seven nine two four five eight meters per second, right? We all know that. Sure, I had to learn some advanced math and trig for it clicked. But all of a sudden I realized, oh, we must be working in ancient Egyptian measurements. Well, converting Egyptian royal cubits into meters turns out to be very simple. You just multiply by pi over six. So I did, and there it was. Astonishing. The speed of light in meters per second to 99.84% accuracy. And it's not a fluke. And what proves it is that the system can be duplicated. On the left, you input the sonnet numbers that contain the words you're looking for. In the middle, multiply by what I've called the Shakespeare equation, 123 times pi over six. On the right will be the solution. For instance, Two other really important astronomical values are the average distance Earth to Sun and Earth to Moon. Just fill in the blank spaces with the numbers of the sonnets that contain the word Earth and the numbers of the sonnets that contain the word Sun. Multiply by the number of the only sonnet that contains the word distance, 44. Take that result, multiply by the Shakespeare equation, 1, 2, 3 times pi over 6, and there it is. The average distance Earth to Sun. Accurate to 99.994%. Here's the same process with the Moon sonnets, replacing Sun signs. Accurate to 99.9%. Any questions? Okay, I said that was the most mind-blowing of all. I lied. His GPS system is geometrically perfect sonnets. I reasoned that if these major math values were hidden within the sonnets themselves, 
What has been staring us in the face for over 400 years on the cover? Dee had encoded the sonnet's dedication page using dots, if you remember. So the title page might be using dots in a similar way, but there are only six of them. Perhaps they should be connected. Look at this italic T. You can connect these two dots by drawing a straight line along its slope. It acts like a T-square. The G dot is about six times the size of all the others, so it seems to be saying, hello, over here. Connect the two ends of this line to the G dot. We have a perfect right-angle triangle. I'm working with the most accurate digital version of the sonnet's title page available, licensed from the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. It's blown up five times life-size and measured to an extreme three decimal places of accuracy. This is not just close. This is perfect. Keeping the same hypotenuse, we connect to the end of this line, just hanging out there, same thing. Another perfect right triangle. Here too, same thing. And lastly, this one is not just any right triangle. This one's a perfect three, four, five triangle, one of Freemasonry's most revered symbols. And perhaps the only equation we all remember from school, right? Pythagorean theory, three squared plus four squared equals five squared, right? (laughs) Now, the magic. A perfect circle passes through all these marked points. And the common hypotenuse of these four triangles is the diameter of the circle. This is a visual representation of a famous theorem by Thales of Miletus, who was Pythagoras' mentor, but he's most famous for being the first person to measure the height of the Great Pyramid, and he did it using the geometry of right triangles. If we now connect where the circle intersects the two seemingly random lines, we find we have altogether six right triangles. So what's all this geometry doing on the cover of a little book of poetry? Mm-hmm. Obviously, D was the only one capable of pulling up something like this. And he didn't do it because it looks pretty. You can't even see it until you apply his principles. So we must be meant to measure these lines in some way. And space-time, geometry, remember, is all about ratios. So... First one, perfect to three decimals. We all recognize it, pi. Opposite side, not so well known, but just as important, E, known as Euler's number. It governs the rate of growth in higher mathematics, calculus, probability theory. It was not discovered until 1669 by Isaac Newton, but here it is, 60 years earlier. Here's E minus one. Even today, it's not yet recognized as being important, yet it's the Egyptian royal cubit in relation to the imperial foot. This one, this is something called Brune's constant. A very important value to do with twin prime numbers, also significant in the Great Pyramid, not discovered until 1919. Here's phi and little phi, well known back then as the golden ratio, derived from the Fibonacci series. These reveal T, a variation on Fibonacci called the Tribonacci series, not studied as far as we know until 1914. Here's another unknown, the Euler-Mascheroni constant, or gamma, 
It's important in connection with the harmonic series in music, and it's inverse, the square root of three. Even the lines that hang out here are not random. They give us the extremely important square roots of two, five, and six. But there's more. If we make this green line represent one foot, then the blue line is one Egyptian royal cubit. Remember, in the speed of light solution, D was working in royal cubits before we converted them into meters. And here, the two red lines combined are just that. They're one meter. Altogether, this reveals precise knowledge of 12 of the most important math constants, five of which were utterly unknown at the time, plus the exact value of the meter, also unknown at the time, and thus the relationship between the three major measurement systems of the world and their inherent sacred connection to the Great Pyramid. Still, all of this unrecognized today. All done with two lines and four dots. It's been staring us in the face for 400 years. But now, <laughs> hang in there, because the words left outside the invisible circle are by G, well, to the Pythagoreans, G meant geodesy, measuring the earth. Here it says to be, so to be measuring the earth. And now the two dots after the internal TT these allow us to see a horizontal baseline pointing to an E hanging outside the circle, indicating east, I bet. <laughs> Another baseline is tangent to the circle at G, pointing straight to the end of the lower line. It wasn't random at all. None of this is. Since all these lines are radiating out from this huge G dot, and the system is suggesting measuring the Earth, maybe these two points are lines of latitude and longitude. One is oriented to the east of its baseline, the other to the north of its baseline, and the only remaining letters left outside the circle are, drum roll please, N-E, northeast. The geographical coordinates of the Great Pyramid with a latitude that's 99.999% accurate now, that's another speed of light hint because the actual latitude of the center of the pyramid is the speed of light number, but in degrees. 299792458. Well, as amazing as all that was to discover, I knew one more device would be needed to go deeper into this puzzle and identify significant dates in the year. The sonnet's time code since the one recurrent theme of the sonnets is time. The poet is constantly comparing earthly with spiritual time, temporal with eternal time. And since I already knew Dee's system had sent a secure message to us across time, I suspected the sonnets might be used in some way for keeping track of that, of dates. Overlaying them onto a 365-day calendar... Sonnet 1 would be January the 1st, Sonnet 32 would be February the 1st, etc. He runs out of markers at Sonnet 154, but Malvolio gave us instructions, remember, in Twelfth Night, to revolve, just send them around once more, starting here, and then again here, until all the dates are full. So if Shakespeare wanted 
a means of hiding sensitive information about certain dates important in his life, the poet would now have a map with the ability to mark dated events he wants to comment on by associating a specific sonnet number with that date. For example, the Queen's birth, Queen's death, and her funeral. When you read the associated sonnets covering those dates, you see cryptic veiled allusions to those subjects. Let me show you just three coded dates that prove the system conclusively. Here, we're looking at the original sonnets publication. It goes from 114, 115 to 119 to 117. Obviously, this should be sonnet 116. It's the only incorrectly numbered sonnet in the entire book. The six has been inverted into a nine. It's one of Dee's favorite devices. It represents the zodiac symbol for cancer, his own birth sign. Balanced mirror opposites. The cusp of Gemini into cancer is the summer solstice. So what's the date of the proper sonnet 116? It's April 26. That date is listed in the church registry for 1564 as Little Shakespeare's baptism date, April 26, Guglielmus Shakespeare. The three X's next to it on the certificate are supposedly marks left by witnesses. The whole family was illiterate after all, so not the most promising start for the future world's greatest writer. Hey, here's something. If you find yourself trying to explain all this to your family skeptics, here's a simple way you can maybe get through to them. So, the Stratford family tree goes like this. Shakespeare's parents, totally illiterate. Shakespeare, greatest writer in the world. Shakespeare's children, totally illiterate. Yeah, Shakespeare never taught his daughters to read. That makes sense. Just saying. Well, hey, maybe these are not the family's illiterate marks at all. Maybe they're just another clue. Three crosses, yes? Orthodox scholars insist this wrong number is just a printing error, but the poet actually goes out of his way to tell us, no, if this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man ever loved. He's telling us, this is not an error. And he confirms it in line five. Oh, no, it is an ever-fixed mark. Ever, again, Edward de Vere this date has been fixed by me, Evere, to tell you that if the sonnet number is wrong, then the date it refers to is wrong. Shakespeare's baptism date has been fixed. It's part of the code. So you remember the monument and its pattern of four, two, six? But Malvolio tells us the codes go forwards and backwards, right? So Hebraic fashion, six, two, four. And that's June 24th, here. So what sonnet is attached to that date? Sonnet 21 also has the word fixed in it. (laughs) Why is June 24th significant? In the 16th century, England was still using the old pagan date for the summer solstice. Midsummer Night's Eve was celebrated as it cusps into Midsummer's Day. June 24th, 624. It's the moment of passing from Gemini into Cancer, 69. 
the very pinnacle of royal archmasonry symbolism for the sun at its highest point in the equinoctial cycle. June 24th is also the feast day of St. John the Baptist, patron saint of Freemasons. And finally, at midnight on the cusp of summer solstice, Edward de Vere disappeared. History records that he died on June 24th, but no one said a word. He was the Lord Great Chamberlain of England, the most famous nobleman in the land, yet there were no eulogies, no outpourings of grief, no one wrote so much as a letter commenting on his passing. So no, he did not die. Sonnet 21 tells us the date was fixed, as was the 426 date for Shakespeare's baptism. So does the poet use the word fixed anywhere else in the sonnets? Yes, in just one more, number 101. Anytime he uses a word only three times, it's very important, so you pay attention. Note the first character of each of these three sonnets. The only ones to have the word fixed in them. S-O-L. Sol. The sun. The solstice. Well, there are 201 courses in the Great Pyramid, so 101 marks the exact center course. And to understand its significance, we need to look at the structure of the sonnets themselves. We don't easily grasp today that during the Renaissance, poets placed almost as great an importance on structure as on content. The various sections are universally recognized as follows. 1 through 17 are called the procreation sonnets, because in every single one he's urging the fair youth to beget a child, so his name will live on. 18 through 125 are the fair youth sonnets, supposedly detailing the love life of the fair youth who may be the mysterious Mr. W.H. name in the dedication. 126 is called an envoy. It divides the fair youth section from the next section named Dark Lady. 127 through 152 are supposedly written about a dark complexion lover. And finally, 153, 154, the bath sonnets, very misunderstood and even said by some to be a mistake or very juvenile efforts by a young Shakespeare. But when viewed in linear fashion, their structure makes absolutely no sense. But given the fascination we've seen with the Great Pyramid, perhaps we're meant to revolve the sections and make the 17 procreation sites the base. 17th Earl, right? Continue up. Decreasing each level by one in pyramid fashion. The fair youth section then ends indeed at a pyramid course level. It certainly looks like he's building a pyramid. The dark lady section then ends precisely where the real great pyramid platform would be. At this point, it seems the poet has created a sonnet's replica of the great pyramid without its pyramidium. If he had written only one bath sonnet, no doubt this structure would have been recognized two centuries ago because it's the perfect triangular number, 153 on a base 17. Why did he have to ruin it by giving us two bath sonnets? <laughs> well, couldn't make it that simple, could he? There had to be some fun in this. Sonnets 153 and 154 are essentially the same sonnet written in two slightly different styles. Cupid, the little love god, Laid by his brand, laid by his side, his heart in flaming brand, 
fell asleep, lying once asleep, and so on and so on. It's the same story all the way throughout. Each reference is heat, holy fire of love, the sun, and cold, the goddess Diana, the moon. These are the opposites that must be balanced to achieve alchemical union, as depicted in this Rosicrucian emblem, all taking place in what's called an alchemical bath. Clearly, the two solids of the pinnacle are intended to be merged into one to represent the missing pyramidion of the actual Great Pyramid. Unfortunately, we don't think in terms of such structural perfection these days, so we would never think of taking the trouble to make sure that the fixed date we have for the Stratford man, his supposed baptism, lands on April 26, 426, exactly three days after his supposed birth, which traditional for the time was done three days earlier, such that the structural center of the sonnet's pyramid, sonnet 113, equals day 113 in the sonnet's time map, and would be the perfect day when England loves to be patriotic. St. George's Day, April 23rd. Yay! The totally made-up birthday of the man from Stratford. In the next episode, we'll see even more substantiating evidence building up as we learn why so many critical clues are focused on the center. For example... The center pages of the sonnets book, the center pages of the folio, even the center of de Vere's own signature. And most importantly, what the grids in all these centers tell us has been hidden in one particular location. The Holy of Holies altar stone. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm speechless. He was lovely. We're going to have to listen to that again. I might try that to, tomorrow mm-hmm. again. What did he? Rainbird, I'm passing the talking stick to you, but I wanted to ask you. Yes, Excalibur's here and Quetzalcoatl's here and the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, and crystals. But he said that St. John the Baptist was the patron saint of. Who? What? Do you remember? Pass the talking stick to you. Rainbird? I'm trying to. I'm sorry. Are you there? Rainbird? Yes, I'm here. I couldn't get my mute button to to do it, and I finally figured out to turn the phone off and turn it back on again. <laughs> oh, very good. Clever you are. Did you, yeah. hear, my, did you hear my I question? I heard your question. You put me on the spot because I can't answer that question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so um, we have to play that one again. You're exactly right. And it was a, but a great note to end on, for sure, for an amazing day. Just one thing after another. And the music was awesome, and it was just an amazing day. So lots of gratitude for both of you for putting on a great show. And I pass this talking stick to you, Mama. Here it comes. And everybody, thank you. And I'm calling in the abundance 
uh, for this last week. The special number is $289 for this last week. And, uh, of, of May, uh, I, I'm just, I'm sure that the fairies and the angels and all of the beings will, uh, inspire, inspire the prosperity we require. Thank you everyone and, uh, thank you. Yeah. And I guess we could say real quick, it's time, I know it's time to go. Um, Rama's got a really cool song, but real quickly, I will give Cheryl Croce's phone number for tomorrow night, Sunday night, and uh, Monday night at uh, a little before, well, 7 o'clock-ish mountain time, which would be 9 o'clock. Eastern time. So very quickly. Uh, synchronicity is with us. Mm-hmm. And so here's the number. 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. See you in your dreams, and the ships are coming. Hooray, hooray. I am so excited that we we are here, and they are here with us. And full disclosure is upon us. Namaste, and here's the music. What do you got, Rama? Oh, this is Rumi. Oh, Rumi. Oh, we have a Rumi, everyone. Yay. It's about three minutes. Okay, let's do it. How does part of the world leave the world? How does wetness leave water? Don't try to put out a fire by throwing on more fire. Don't wash a wound with blood. No matter how fast you run, your shadow keeps up. Sometimes it's in front. Only full overhead sun diminishes your shadow. But that shadow has been serving you. What hurts you blesses you. Darkness is your candle. Your boundaries are your quest. I could explain this, but it would break the glass cover on your heart. And there's no fixing that. 
You must have shadow and light source both. Listen and lay your head under the tree of all. When from that tree feathers and wings sprout on you, be quieter than a dove. Don't open your mouth for even a coo. You must have shadow and light source both. Listen and lay your head under the tree. Okay, see you in your dreams, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Sarah, now, I I command and demand. And uh, inshallah, Satnam Rama. Satnam Ki. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper. Aloha. Aloha. See you tomorrow night. Possibly. Namaste.